Radio Shack. Okay. What? The 80s called. Welcome to the Coco Nation, the world's first live and interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and its hardware cousins. Everybody, welcome to episode 307 of the Coco Nation Show. Today we have special guest Jeff Wires. Howdy, Jeff. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, let's see who we got on the panel here today. Top left, we've got Mark Overhoser. How does that happen every time? Hi, I glad don't know. To be here. <laughs> it's not even in the order we joined this join the Zoom call. I know. Weird. And then oh, well. in his usual place, Rick Euland. Howdy, folks. And we got El Cutterspoil. Welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, let's see. Character turn, line feed. We have yours truly. Uh, our special guest is next. We'll be coming right back to you. Ken Waters. Hello, everybody. And on the bottom row of the Hollywood Squares, we have Jason, CocoMan.biz. Oh, hello, hello in Hollywood Squares, and I will take Ken Waters the block. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have Ron Delvo. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. And last but not least, Alan. Yeah, I'm last. Hello, everybody. Oh, wait, not last today. That's right. Jeff. All right. In the center square, we have Jeff Wires from Chronologically Gaming. How you doing? Super. Glad you could be here. Thank you so much. Regret it yet? No, no. It depends <laughs> on what questions you ask. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, when the really give personal little, ones come out, that's... Uh... Yeah. Give him a little yeah. more time. He'll regret He's it here later. because of the 1.3 million viewers we have. <laughs> That, that's over the span of the entire show if you add every single yeah. episode. Yeah. 1.31 1 million? There's two here. The decimal point may move. <laughs> yeah. We have that Intel floating point bug. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we get divided by zero errors. Let's anyway, see. a big, big welcome to Jeff of Chronologically Gaming. Um, before we get into the actual interview, I'm going to play a little clip. Now, if you watch his channel on YouTube, you're getting like the core of the show. But if you watch it live on Twitch, he's got a little five-minute, you know, spacer intro, kind of like we do. But he's also got a, 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 I don't know what you call it, the, the official intro, I guess, that actually has a sort of morphing as you go through time, which is really cool. And I thought I'd play that first so people can kind of get an idea what your channel's like. Okay, great. And hopefully hearing it. Yep.
Hey, it's Chronologically Gaming, the only channel that's perpetually retro because we're playing every video game in order of release. Welcome to the 1981 Space Game Super Show. When you play all... Anyway. <laughs> hey, it's from last it. night. Man, you got yeah. the most current one. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta be timely on this show. It's a great <laughs> intro. We should try to get stuff like that. <laughs> I, I, I got some stick figures we can dance around a bit that's i think it's about <laughs> as close as i can get to that quality piece of animation well i can't take credit for that and the reason i do that in the live show is because it's a video from hyperspin that uh, was made by their community so it's it's free and anyone can use it but it's it's not specifically for my show i i, I adopted it while we go on, on live but loved it because it captures what i'm wanting to do i'm wanting to see the evolution of everything and not miss a game as we go throughout time yeah, and I mean, that's one of the fun things about your show, because you'll reference back, like this game, you can see it took elements from this game from two years previous and added this new thing type thing. So you're kind of like not just playing every game, you're literally going through the history of how they developed and when new concepts came online for people to try. And you've had some surprises in that, too, where you, you've go, I, I, I've played another game two years later than this that has the same thing. And I thought that was the first one type uh, thing. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so standard interview questions we have, we have a couple that we ask pretty well every guest, and I'll start with those first. So what was the very first computer or console or both that you ever used? And it didn't have to be in your own home. It could have been, you know, at school or a friend's house, whatever else. Um, what uh, was the first the, one you ever used? The very first one that I ever used is a mystery to me because I don't remember. It was in kindergarten. They had a system set up as one of the stations we went to in kindergarten. And one of the stations was a computer that had educational titles. And I remember typing on a computer or uh, answering the questions. It was probably like a, a match game. But for the life of me, I cannot remember what computer that was. I have guesses. It may have been a Commodore or it may have been an Apple. But uh, I, I don't know for sure. So the very first computer I ever used is beyond my memory. But uh, after that, the very first video game that I ever saw was Super Mario Brothers. Like the the, the very first I could capture as seeing. Uh, I was familiar with television, and um, uh, we went to daycare, and my parents uh, weren't, weren't exposing me to that because I'm sure most people here you didn't grow up with parents who're like, here, have more video games, have more TV content. <laughs> So I was, I was the same way. I was was not exposed to any of that stuff. And um, uh, they had to put me in daycare whenever I was very young before starting primary school. And I remember sitting down and watching someone else play this Super, Mar Super Mario Brothers on the screen. And it blew my mind because for the first time, I'm familiar with television. I know you sit and watch something. But I looked at the, the, the controller and I realized, wait, you are moving and controlling something on the you're 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 doing that on the screen. And as a kid, I never turned back. So that's that's where it all began. As far as the first thing I ever saw, uh, for systems though, the, uh, the we 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 were blessed with a couple people on the street that were computer geeks, and they had a lot. They had Commodore, uh, they had Commodore sixty four, and uh, the the very first IBM PCs. And so in our house, the first system we ever had was an IBM uh, 386. It was a custom-built one. Had DOS uh, version 4, I believe. Had 4 megabytes of RAM and like a 40-megabyte hard drive. And that, that was the very first computer we ever had. So um, I've been a PC master race since the beginning. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> uh, so Macs, no, I haven't done any of that. Uh, but but uh, we, we've been PC since then. And did you ever have a video game console at home too, or are you strictly home computers at that point? Like some parents just says, you're not filtering around playing games. You're going to get something you do your homework on. 
We, we were definitely that. Uh, it took um, several years before my dad was the one that pushed, because my dad's the geek guru. And if we wanted to go even back further than that, I found out much later in life that my dad's dad, who I, I never knew, but my grandfather used to work on the cathode ray tube and computers before modern computers. He worked in the, the computers the size of rooms or the mainframe systems. And uh, so maybe it's a history that I've, I've meant to be doing this, uh, uh, checking out computer software, hardware, and all that stuff. So my my whole history has been computing. Or, so it's uh, genealogically gaming instead yes. of just chronologically. <laughs> it's in your blood. <laughs> Possibly, right? That's that's and, cool because we we have a few other people in in our community that also you know had you know, parents and stuff that worked on the mainframes like you know the old IBM ASs and um, I don't know if they didn't go back as far as the cathode ray tube stuff. It's more the like, you know the sixties mainframes, the seventies. A lot of people did the PPs. I used the PDP eleven thirty four when I was young at work too. So, but um, yeah, that's that's cool. You have three generations. That's that's a fairly rare thing for somebody of our age to be able to say, you know, I'm a third generation computer guy. Right, right. I just found out later, and I don't have all the details because my dad does not remember um, because uh, his he, he, he died so young that we just don't have the information. But I'd love to know what because now that I've gotten into the history of it, I've gone way far back, uh, 40s and 50s, just to learn more about uh, what's there. And uh, it's cool to know that he was doing that. He was working on those systems. Yeah, that is cool. Um, but, as, but as far as consoles go, uh, we ended up eventually my dad pushed for let's get a console and it ended up happening with yard sales. So we went to yard sales and I uh, was born 1983. So I'm about to be 40, really close to being 40. And the yard sales we went to was after the crash or around the North American video game crash. So Atari was all over those yard sales. So we picked up a Atari console and the very first system that I got to play was Atari. And even though it was uh, like rudimentary because by the time we got the Atari, I think it was 87, 88. It's got to oh, be. We're talking the Atari 2600 or the 52 yeah, or the 78. VCS. Or, yeah, Atari VCS. VCS. Yeah. So it was late 80s when I played the VCS and I already knew other stuff that was out there. Didn't have it myself, but I still enjoyed the, the VCS had a blast, and that kind of is where I'm getting my let's let's go back in time and still enjoy games that just because they're old doesn't mean they're bad. And I I, I appreciated yeah. that at a young age. Uh, for for me, the the thing with video games is that the, the gameplay is king. Now, the graphics and the sound are like you know dessert that that helps heightened it, yes, but that's not necessary. If the meal's not good, it doesn't matter. And uh, that's that's one thing I've, I've we were talking about in the pre-show a little bit here too that you know that. Uh, there seems to be a settling on certain subgenres that are out now that, you know, almost every game is falls under these few core categories. Whereas back in the seventies and the eighties, where you started the chronologically gaming stuff at, you know, games were new. Like nobody had an idea. What, what can you get away with? What kind of things should you try? And it was a wild West where there's just all kinds of ideas. Some stuck, some didn't, but you know, there's some really interesting and innovative stuff happening back then. Yeah, it's great. And I believe the same thing, uh, graphics and sound are okay, but, it's it's a video game. Otherwise, we'd be watching a movie or reviewing a movie or a book. If uh, like yeah. like people come to me and they, like, I want a game with great story. I'm like, well, go read a book. If you want a video game, how does it play <laughs> compared? To how does it read? Or an Infocom game? You know, one of those. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, because because you're doing the whole chronologically gaming thing, have you gone back and become a, a retro computer hobbyist to where you're getting older consoles and getting older? 
home computer systems to collect yourself, or are you strictly interested in the gaming, gaming history through emulators? I know you well, use I, emulators to show because it's easier to capture, but... Yeah, my history was starting with physical. So I actually was collecting, and I had... Um, uh, I had Atari VCS with probably 150 games from in my collection, and then had uh, Sega Genesis with uh, hundreds of Sega Genesis games, Nintendo Entertainment System. I had thousands of Nintendo. So I, I was doing the physical media for um, computer space, though, PC, big box gaming, lots, shelves and shelves. And I started collecting more and more physical. But um, because of my the the tragic loss of the physical, uh, is one of the reasons why I'm doing mostly digital now. Uh, I had um, uh, an event happen, uh, like a, a bad disaster, and I lost most of the physical stuff. Oh, and then uh, with the stuff I didn't lose in the middle of the the, the move, I gave it to my, well, I don't really want to call out uh, bad things, but I gave it to a buddy. The buddy left all the stuff in their attic while like holding it on to me. And so in that process, it got pretty hot in the attic and majority of it is melted and it is ruined. So the, 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 yeah, it was there. It was in someone's attic for about two years waiting until I can get to another space. So I lost a majority of the, the stuff from there. And then whatever I didn't lose, then I just ended up giving away. So because of the, the amount of physical media and computer media and console handheld it, it since everything was lost, I I realized okay well I'm not I don't I don't want to start over from scratch going physical let, let's go to go nuts with digital let's just try to get as much as we can and that's what ended up me going down rabbit holes of wait a second they got computers from Australia I never even heard of this or or the, the weird obscure uh, systems and handhelds consoles all that stuff so I ended up going more and more and learning more and uh, having a blast with that. So I guess uh, you just covered one one subtopic I was going to ask about because you are not just restricting yourself to the North American or the Japanese market. Then you're the most common ones. You're actually doing uh, more obscure like European and the UK and Australia and, and other things like that too. Um, yeah, yep. Was that your original intention when you started when you got the idea of doing chronological gaming? I'd like to get the origin story too. Like what what prompted you decide to make this into a show? Um, but did, did did you have that as your original plan right from the get-go, or was that something you kind of added as you discovered some of these systems when you're doing your research? Because I imagine it's a ton of research. My poor little Coco game site has a ton of research involved, and I'm just doing one system, so. <laughs> yeah, originally, no. I was not planning to go this deep. The uh, <laughs> I don't know how much has been said ahead of time, but my, my channel's goal is I really just want to play every single video game in order that it came out. So you have a context of what was being out there. Uh, and so I, I honestly was going to start with the easy stuff. Let's just play the, the the consoles and then start when the VCS is released and then move on from there. But no, I uh, that when, when I was collecting and finding more and I, I didn't want to leave out anything else. And so I ended up turning into <laughs> making that of the obsession. And let's just go even further than that. And so now I... <laughs> Uh, and, and thanks to you, Curtis, by the way, Curtis has, has reached out to me and says, what about this one? I'm like, oh, man, another hole. And I want to fill that and make sure that one gets covered, too. So I, I ended up going more and more detailed, realizing there's even more out there and I didn't want to miss anything. We, we in, in fact, on that note, we had someone in the chat mention the Nebu network uh, from Ottawa, yep. Canada. And uh, I had no idea, never even heard about that. Just found out that was it uh, five or six months ago they got the service back where you can connect to it. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the story of Ken. Ken probably knows a bit more about it than I do. Uh, there's some other people in the co community actually have Naboo's now. Uh, but basically, it was uh, a system that was set up, and it was similar to what's that one from the late '70s that was also a kind of a network-based 
uh, Plato. Yep, yeah, Plato. Um, but basically, it was meant to be a network thing, like uh, the Taylor and Amy show, and, and they'll be at uh, Coco Fest this year too. Um, but they just got one too, and they got linked up to the server, so they've been able to download like basic and then download games and everything else. And uh, yeah, it was uh, basically one of the son, I think, of the original designer or the original owner or something of it actually had a whole bunch of these still boxed from when the company shut down and started selling them on eBay. And, and then people figured out how to get the software running so you get the network. So without the networking part of it, which is what it was based on, it's it's pretty useless. Yeah. But uh, you speaking yeah, of Leo Gunkowski? Is he the one? Is uh... I'm trying to remember the name here because I, I, I covered that a couple months ago, so I don't remember anymore. <laughs> But yeah, there's quite a few people that have been getting involved. Plato's the same thing because Plato was an earlier version of that from the states that, or was it Europe? Can't remember that. No, but it was an earlier system. University of Illinois. Okay, thank you. Um, But basically, yeah, it had the same thing where everything was network based, and you you had a bunch of games you could play, like you know, against people on the network type thing. But that was in the late '70s, and it had a graphic terminal that was a requirement to use it, and it was fairly high res, decent graphics, like way ahead of its time as far as a home computer would go. And it was kind of along the same concept, but. I, th- I think it was originally intended to be an educational tool. <laughs> That's what everything is originally. Let's originally make it educational so we can get it in people's homes. Yeah. Well, the, the, someone brought up the Nabu network, and that was something I had never heard of before. And I have researched and looked at, like you were saying, so many things. So when someone throws a curveball at me and I've never heard it before, I looked into it, and I'm ready. Nabu is going to be on the, the, the channel whenever we get to that. Yeah. I'm just trying to remember, does anybody on the panel today have, an, have one of those? Like, I know Taylor and Amy have them. I know uh, Aaron... Um, I had never heard of it before, ever. Okay. And well, I was pretty well only Rochester. sold in Ontario, as far as I know. Well, I lived in Rochester, New York, and we never heard of it, ever. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I'm in Canada. I never heard of it before, because it seemed to be local to Ontario, is where it was getting getting sold and installed. My guy did a Plato for Ottawa. Ottawa, yeah. 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 So Plato was only the uh, University of Illinois at, uh, was it Champaign Urbana? And uh, then some distance uh, Indiana schools and some other ones. So yeah, it was pretty limited to the Midwest. Yeah. Kind of like video text, you know, was originally meant for farming terminals and stuff like that, which was actually the prototype of the original Cocoa hardware before the Cocoa came out. That's not game related, though. So you don't have to worry about that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you're you're obviously into the gaming side of things here, but did uh, and you you said you work in IT, um, but did you as a, a kid get into the programming side of things with the home computers and stuff? Like, did you learn Basic or Logo or Pascal or something like that? That's actually what I went to college for. Growing up, though, no, I didn't do any. Yeah, I wasn't really involved with programming as a younger kid. Whenever I was in high school, I dabbled a little bit, but then my that's what my degree is: computer information systems. So uh, I did um, uh, C sharp. Uh, Python, the uh, basic COBOL. I'm trying to remember all the languages, but it, that, that's what my degree is in. But I've never dabbled and wanted to create or make anything using that. Because uh, what's what I also did in high school was gymnastics. So by the time I graduated, I ended up just do, being a gymnastics coach because I had more fun with that than sitting at the computer. Uh, <laughs> so I, 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 I worked physically rather than mentally. And I haven't used any any of my degree until just recently in IT, which is uh, it, I'm pretty much a jack of all trades, computer hardware, software guy. That's the, the or supplying that for my company. Okay, that's that's interesting because I think most of us you know some quite a few of us are a little bit older than you, but 
for most of us, it was kind of like learning basic, you know, when you first got the code, because it had one of the best manuals out of any home computer for, for learning that. So a lot of us, you know, at least did that. And then some people diverged into being hardware and creating their own, you know, cards to add in and whatever else or doing their own upgrades, et cetera. Uh, not me. I suck it. As everybody knows on the show here, I, I burn my hair with soldering irons. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that you're, I mean, you're, you're, you came along a little bit later and you actually didn't bother with the programming at home thing. Cause back when the Coco first came out, there wasn't that, as you've noticed when you went through 80 and 81, there wasn't a heck of a lot of games out there. Right. And a lot of them even being sold were in basic. So if you could learn basic yourself, you could make games for free, you know, type of thing. So I think that's where a lot of us kind of came from. I don't think any of us were writing stuff to become accountants or anything like that. So, <laughs> right. Okay. Um, next up. When, when when did you come back to the retro gaming community, or were you kind of always there in the background? And and when did this project start? I imagine you probably had a fairly big lead time of doing research to get enough to get off the ground and going. Or did you are you winging it as you go type thing? <laughs> Uh, well, I had already planned 1977 was going to be the beginning where, where I was going to go and then do consoles. But um, uh, for the retro gaming scene, I've been involved in collecting since high school. So uh, whenever I, it's whenever I got rid of my Sega Genesis, I sold it and then realized I really shouldn't have sold that console. And I really <laughs> I, I, I should have kept it around. So it it made me realize I guess everyone has that point when if you're a physical collector, if you've sold or or, or gotten rid of something, you realize you shouldn't have done that. It, it makes it gives you that drive to want to get more and bring back what you, uh, lost. What you lost. Yep. So th- that was the moment that I told me I need I want to collect. So that was high school. And I started to collect more physical media of the uh, consoles, handhelds. And then uh, PC computing, because, oh, man, uh, there's so many good stuff, uh, PC games that uh, I, I wanted the big box. I wanted everything that came with it. I love all the uh, the, the, the stuff that is included, the feelies, the the maps, the the coin. I wanted to, to find as much as I could. So that's where the, the drive first began. And then when you we switched over to doing the, the digital version of it, uh, obviously, due to some you know, disasters happening in your personal life type thing. Um you still try to collect, like, I, I know you show it on the show, but I don't know if it's strictly for the show or for your own purposes of trying to get, you know, scans of the original boxes and scans of the original artwork and, and that kind of thing. So you still have, not feely, but you still have a representation of some of that stuff. Is that something that you yourself personally like having, or is that more research for the show? Research for the show now. Uh, I don't, I, I have a small museum here still, very small considering what I used to have. Like I got Rob the Robot behind me and, and uh, the, my NES is still here. And uh, several other things, but little things from the, the that I have left from before. But uh, as far as like the origins of doing this show, it's while I was collecting physically, I'm sure everyone does too. You, you you check out the emulation scene, and so when I first had learned, wait, you can play Nintendo on your computer? You got to be kidding me! Because I was already full in with the PC Master Race, and when you're like, you're telling me, wait, the PC can do also all that stuff? Wait a second, that 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 just cements the PC Master Race. So I, I ended up dabbling into emulation, finding out what you could emulate and couldn't. And um, I so I was already doing a little bit of that, but still m- more mostly physical. So I but but I didn't shun emulation. I just looked at it as that's that's a cool idea. I like the, that we can uh, uh, make that happen. And it also had me learning more about how the games were made, because uh, if you're familiar with one of the first Nintendo emulators was Nesticle. 
yeah. whenever I got Nesticle, I went in and found out the RAM addresses and realized how their tile base, uh, creating the game's tile base and drawing them across. So, so I, I ended up uh, going a little deep on how the, the games were made and going in the hacking scene, realize how they hacked the games and enjoy doing that. So while I was dabbling a little bit in emulation, it's when I had I'd lost all my physical that I just went full into let's just do all emul let's make it all run. Can I, can I get everything to run? And uh, so I, when I when I realized I can get everything to run as much as I could, I kept going and kept going. And then the big change was when I discovered Launchbox because when uh, I was collecting things digitally. I had this thing in my head as a dream of programming this myself. I said, what if I could go from a game to another game or just say, I want to play all the Pac-Man games ever. And I just do a, a look, look up Pac-Man and all the Pac-Man games come, come in and I can just go play them. So I had this thought in my head, which is basically the front end, which is what we call now. And when Launchbox was released, because uh, I, I did a little bit with Hyperspin, it was a little more clunky, which is another front end. But when Launchbox came out, I when I discovered that and found out that my dream is already happening. By the way, Jason Carr is the main developer of Launchbox. He is phenomenal. So he, he created this front end where you can, if you can emulate it, you can play it and sh and showcase it or display it and and make filters to search for whatever whatever you would want, what kind of games you want, genre, uh, year it came out, all that stuff. So whenever Launchbox came on the scene that's whenever i switched to let's just go even for how, how how much things can we make work and put them in to and i'm sure you've seen other people online that they try to fill it with as much as they can just to see they're, they're like there's some guy out there that has i think uh 200 games 450 different computers and like like just just going nuts with it so i kind of went that far and then even further uh, it's because all, all my buddies that were retro fans are, are uh, uh, enjoying playing older games. They, I'm past that point. I'm going even further than than they would be interested because uh, I, I just wanted to make it. I, I wanted to see it all and play it all. And then the as far as the origins to having this idea, it was when I started to see other YouTube personalities and people in the retro gaming scene show in the past their experience and review those games in, in their from from their uh, youth or their, their experience of those and i was really influenced by uh, someone named jeremy parish who's who's now doing a, a youtube channel where he's going in order playing like every game on the game boy like he started with the first game boy game and he's playing all in order of the game boy games and while he's doing that, he talks about a game for one whole episode, like half an hour of just one game on the Game Boy. But he brings up the origins of where this game came from, which computer in Japan it came from. And so when I'm, I'm listening to that, I'm like, wait a second, this was not the first time that, that this game came out. And that's where more of the obsession and the hobby started to turn into even bigger because I was like, well, what's the other computers out there that were influencing and creating people. So that's where I learned about uh, the, the computers in Japan, the NEC PC-88, the MSX, the, and then also in North America, the Exidy Sorcerer, the, uh, the Coco, um, computers that I wasn't even aware of that had lots of the games that were influencing other uh, genres and creating, you know, the, the their, their own niche uh, uh, gameplay. So, I ended up adding more and more and more and more. And then when my collection was uh, was getting so large digital, digitally, uh, there was one day just for fun 
you can do this in LaunchBox where you set the filter up and you just say, I want to uh, just show me all the games that came out. Like um, I just chose like my wife's birthday. Like if uh, what, what games came out January 16th, 1982 where, you know, like, and I can make the filter say, give me all the video games and it gives me all the video games. And I'm just playing like the snapshot of January 16th, 1982. And I loved it. And I had a blast with it. And, um, someone at work told me, cause I do trainings also at, at uh, my job. And uh, they said, you have a really good voice. Have you thought about doing streaming or you know, Twitch uh, radio or things like that? And I said, you know what? That's a good idea. And so I brought those two ideas together, and that's the, the beginning of the, the channel uh, where I, I said, let's just play every video game as they're released so you can get an idea of what else is uh, is out there at the same time. Yeah. Now, I, I you're you're restricting yourself in some ways. Like, you're not doing adult content, obviously, because um, you want to keep it family friendly. You're not covering, like, the old mainframe games, um, of which, I mean, there's a bunch of text-based games that were out in the you know, oh, 60s yeah, and yeah. 70s. There's even like, you know, uh, what is it, Higginbotham? Or I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy who did the original Tennyson on the oscilloscope in 1958 or 59. Yes, yep, yep. I can't remember who it was, but there's a few other little oddballs there. Um, what, was it just because it was so hard to get emulation for those? Or or what was the reason that you decided to skip those? Or Oh, a great point. Yeah, uh, I said originally I was going to start in 1977 with the VCS, but then I said, well, I can go older than that. It's because I found some... Like Fairchild's Odyssey's Odyssey. Yeah, there's a bunch of earlier ones. Yeah, yeah. So when when I found some simulators for the original Magnavox Odyssey, I realized, oh, I can kind of show something. It's not the exact same thing, but I can show something. So I can go back to 1971 and get the very first, you know, computer space because Mame emulated that, or uh, they made it so you could play that. And so I said, okay, I'll start there. But yeah, that's correct because I can't emulate every mainframe. Game. Like I, I could do Play-Doh and I could do a few others because they the, they made possible by the community that allows you to play it uh, in, in yeah different like the ways. original Space War from the PDP in '62 I think that one I think simulated but that's right. probably but since I couldn't get everything I decided just to say no mainframe and I'll and I'll just stick with uh, the, the 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 big four the arcade computer or personal computers home computers whatever you want to call it, micros. Um, handhelds and consoles. So I'll, I'll just do all of those. And most of the people don't do computers because it's, you, if you've got a Commodore 64, you, you don't just pop in a Commodore 64 game and play. It usually doesn't work that way. Most people don't want to touch uh, pl- playing those games or making them work because it takes a little bit of effort. Yeah, you need a bit of, of, of knowledge of the system, like how do I actually load a binary program versus a basic program and how do I get it to run, et cetera. So, yes. So yeah. I had to do a lot of research on the computers. I have a uh, little cheat sheet notes whenever I'm doing the live show because if I'm going from system to system, I need to know, wait, I'm on the XD Sorcerer. How does the XD Sorcerer load their system? What kind of game is this? How much memory does it need? And then and so forth and so forth. You know, what generation of that computer it requires? Because some of them require later hardware. Yeah, my Model One TRS-80, my Model Three, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Now, one question: like you mentioned, the four basic categories that you're covering. One, one I wanted to ask you about because to me, it's not strictly video game, but it's it's of the era is the handheld electronic ones, which is you know, there's it's not really a video display. We're not talking Game Boy. We're talking older like Mattel football and yes, that kind yes. of thing. So what, what prompted you to get into that? I mean, I didn't even know there was emulators for those until I saw your show, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, well, the handheld part, whenever I saw some people do work in RetroArch, where they took, 
it's not even emulated. It's more simulated. They take a, 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 some video of the handheld and then they work on making the simulator to look really similar to the handheld. And so when I realized I could do that and collect and find those, um, uh, oh no, the, actually the big push was because MAME, MAME started doing that. One of the latest versions of MAME started incorporating handhelds where you could play them. And even though some of them, are not all, all of them were perfect, I said, well, I'm going to do my best just to eat, at least collect and find the box artwork, what the system looks like and explain what it is. Because at this point, I'm currently in 1981 and the handhelds, uh, we, we got some, I actually got some pretty complicated ones that are mimicking Galaxian and Pac-Man, but the ones that are just really simple, like football, uh, Mattel's f- uh, football, it's 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 pretty easy to explain how it works, and you can even show like some game footage. So I don't have to necessarily be playing it or emulating it. I I, I wanted to incorporate it because by the time we get to the the newer handhelds that have interchangeable cartridges, um, uh, Game Boy specifically, I want to play and see every handheld. And um, I also found a simulator for the Milton Bradley Microvision. And that's another push that's like, hey, I can play a, a game that is most people don't even can't even get that to work. And th- this one will work and I can showcase it. So then it's kind of like my I thoughts with the mainframe computers. I said, hey, I can get this Play-Doh game to work and I can get this game to work. Do I want to do all of them now? And so when I realized I couldn't do all the mainframe, I said, OK, I have to I have to shelve that. But the handheld I can do. I, I want to do every handheld. Let's 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 make it all do the best I can to show every handheld. Yeah, I think a lot of us that, that grew up in the 70s, uh, the electronic handhelds like the Mattel footballs, et cetera, like that, I think was a, really a stepping stone because they were much cheaper than buying a console. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. for me, the, when the VCS first came out, or the Odyssey 2 for that matter, it, that was for the rich kids, you know, the kids that had, you know, fairly well off parents that could afford one of those things. But the, you know, electronic football for 20 bucks type thing or 30 bucks was a lot better than a couple hundred. And, uh, you know, the batteries lasted forever. So you could do, if you had a bus trip out for some tour for thing for school and you were bored on the bus, I wasn't bored. I was playing football. Yeah. Yeah. Type of thing. So yeah, I'm glad you're covering them, but I did, I had no idea there was an emulation scene for those. I thought people collected them still. I did. I've seen them on eBay, et cetera, but I didn't realize there was a, a digitalized version of that available. Yeah, there is a couple websites I can't remember off the top of my head, but they they want to make everything work too. So I've been uh, they've been helping me out to get uh, them to be showcased on the channel, and <laughs> there's a lot. I did have to put some again stipulation on consoles that are uh, dedicated to one thing. So I, I had some people because you make the claim I'm going to play every single video and of course I'm going to have someone that says well you didn't do this one uh, that was in <laughs> and uh, one thing that's brought up is the Pong clones all of the like the Telstar uh, and, and things like that I, I shelved those because the dedicated Pong clones or the dedicated consoles from the first generation they're not even able to be emulated and they're essentially they're packaged differently but they're all the, it's same. the same game yeah, yeah it's the same game so I, I made the decision not only to do those, but I have had people say, why didn't you do those? <laughs> yeah, why didn't you do the Sears version of the... Yeah, yeah what, where's the Sears version of the VCS? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, that, that was something I asked you about too, because like for the Dragon 3264, which would be hitting in, in mid-1982, um, it's based on the same base hardware platform uh, that Motorola published as a, a basically a base way to use their... VDG chip, which had been out since 78, used the AK or Atom and some other machines even before the Coco. Uh, but basically, it's the same base hardware platform specs that they produced. And then, you know, Tandy ran off with it for the Coco 1. 
and the dragon ran off of the uh, dragon 32 and there's, you know, Brazilian clones like the CP 400 and there's a sample from Korea and, and basically it's all the same hardware platform with, you know, maybe some language differences. Cause you know, some people are doing English, some are doing Portuguese and, and whatever else. But I was asking like the dragon actually had its own ecosystem of its own. and was producing its own games. The first, you know, initial launch titles were, you know, imported from the, the States and, and, and even Canada and Australia a little bit, just because, it was so close in, in hardware, you could make a fairly quick conversion of it. It's not exactly the same, like keyboards map differently and a few other you know little differences too. But right, right. But then they started getting their own ecosystem and bringing their own games that you know never came here until decades later. You know, we started figuring out, oh, you guys have all that, and we have all this. Let's start swapping, patch <laughs> them up so they work on each other's systems. Now our libraries have expanded. Yeah. So yeah, I wasn't yeah. sure where the cutoff was for you. Like you mentioned, like the Tell Stars and all the various uh, Pong games, if you know, because like, like there's a few of the games that we were talking about when I was emailing you some stuff on on the Dragon, where I can say that's an, that's basically the Coco game, just you know, with a new splash screen type thing. But there's some others they actually changed a bit. Like um, one example I think I gave you was Ghost Gobbler, which is a Pac-Man clone from Spectral. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. They changed it to Racer Ball. They changed the title, and then they changed the graphics too a little bit. Like the the uh, bonus shapes, the ghosts, and the Pac-Man have all changed into something else to fit this new theme. And that, from what I understand, was more due to legal issues because they were a lot more strict about <laughs> copyrights in the UK than they were in in, in, in the US, where it was kind of loosey-goosey. <laughs> yep, yep. So you, I, make I, a, you make a really good point, though, because when uh, a, a system is released and it's being put in different regions, sometimes it they go off and do their own thing. And sometimes they are it's the exact same game uh, or the exact same experience. A case in point is uh, the Creative Vision, which is a really obscure uh, uh, console. And in Asia, when it was first released in Hong Kong or Taiwan, whatever you want to say, that system was its certain its its own game. But then it was taken to Australia, called the Dick Smith Wizard, and then New Zealand is called something. I think it's still Dick Smith Wizard, but it, whatever region it went to, it was all the exact same games. But uh, and w- whether someone calls it the Creative Division, the Dick Smith Wizard, or the Edu, I can't remember the other titles. But uh, kind of like whenever you uh, you, you want to say the Nintendo in Russia was called the Dindy, am I going to be covering the Dindy or am I going to be covering Nintendo? So I'm, I'm making it so that if the system doesn't have its own line of games specifically for the system or it doesn't branch off and do its own thing. I'm just going to consider that the same hardware because it is the, the, the same thing. So um, the, the, the dragon has done its own, the, the dragon 32 and 64, they ended up going and making games specifically for Europe. So I'm separating that and it's going to have its own uh, place on, on the show. And when it comes to, um, I did a console called the RCA Studio 2. It's one of the uh, ones that came out around the same time as the Fairchild and the VCS. Well, the RCA Studio 2 was bootlegged in Australia called the MGT. And now i got to keep my, my, my facts straight because it, it, it had a name in Australia called the a, a different name. But I played those bootleg games on the show, even though I said it, 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 it was packaged like the RCA Studio 2, I prefaced it that this technically came out for the a victory. There you go. The Victory MGT. So it was technically released on what's something called the Victory MGT, but it's just the exact same system. So if there's one or two games, I might do something like that. But I'm really looking forward to, though, when we go to Japan in 1983, because in 1983, the Famicom is released. 
and I'm gonna yep. I'm gonna showcase only games that are on the Famicom and play everything on the Famicom. And then in 1985, when the Nintendo Entertainment System is released in North America and then Europe, I'm gonna be simultaneously doing Famicom and Nintendo as if they're two different systems. Because and same thing with the Dragon and the uh, the, the Coco. So uh, I'll be release showing the re- releases of Dragon at the same time. What's happening on the Coco in North America, and then they all just keep going, and they're all gonna be lumped together as the like the global scope of video games. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to do it too, because uh, like with the Dragon and and the Coco, the Coco was sold in the UK. It was importantly expensive, so nobody bought it, but it was there. And you'll see like old micro deal uh, cassettes and stuff will say for the Dragon 32 and the Tier City Color Computer or whatever. Yes, yes. So it's the exact same game for that, but never got sold in North America. So yeah, I was kind of curious how you're planning on handling those situations. We have a question from TJB Chris to Jeff uh, says, are you subjecting yourself to the edutainment games like the Memorex VIS? Great question. That's the other thing we do. I've stipped, I made a video on which ones we don't do. in like, even though I, my tagline is we're playing every video game. I have a video that is saying what we really don't do. Cause anything that's involving early childhood. In other words, if the game is let's color, I'm going to say, here's the game and then move on. But I'm actually going to, I'm not actually going to play the game. I'm not going to color live on Twitch. And then it's in, in the same spectrum. Well, we don't play the short. There's a four year, four year old market out there that might be into that. <laughs> then they can check out the, the, the color on a different Twitch channel, but anything involving early childhood, we're going to just say, here it is. Then we move on. And the same thing that's adults only, because if it's, if it's involving uh, uh, sex or nudity, and that's the only thing, then we're just going to say, here it is. And then move on rather than play it. So I'm, I'm, I'm keeping that range as uh, something we won't play. Cause if you've seen the show, we we jump in a game. I check out the artwork. We look at um, history behind it. We just go pop and play for a little bit, get a little taste of it, and then we move on to the the next game in order of release. So the format of the show is uh, just experiencing what it is to to boot up and play a little bit of of the game or get an idea of what the game is like compared to whatever thing else is available in uh, that time frame. So yeah, anything early childhood, anything in uh, adults, adults only world. We're just, we're, we're not going to play, but it'll, it'll still be there, but it won't be like, um, uh, it won't be showcased. TJ, so something, Chris something that kind of crosses the lines, like leisure suit, Larry, like you're going to cover that. I presume it's not, I'm playing, Le- I'm playing leisure suit, Larry. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So go ahead, Mark. You had another question from the chat. Uh, TJB Chris, uh, he said, uh, there were some real games for the, uh, the Memorex, like links golf that were aimed at the parents and edutainment. Oh, links golf. We are playing. Yes. Yeah, and if it's edutainment, um, it depends on how much merit it is. Because uh, I am uh, showing and playing educational titles, but if it's just like doing an exam or equations, like we just came across, we played all the space games in Europe. They had space division and space math for the Commodore VIC twenty. I'm not playing the games. I just I show here it is. Give it a little. example of hey you're going to be doing math problems then we move on to the next game so it's it's there but it's not going to be where we boot it up and and play some uh, math games but okay. yeah edutainment um we actually did something because oregon trail is so popular with um ed- edutainment uh we, we had uh, mm-hmm. on the apple II elementary math volume six was the very first time you could have experienced oregon when it was before it was even called Oregon Trail, so it was the mm-hmm. the, t- the teletype converted to the Apple II. So we played mm-hmm. that uh, just for fun uh, because it was the origins of the Oregon Trail, and then we'll, we'll obviously be playing every version of the Oregon Trail when we get there. 
And uh, I just can't say that we'll play every single educational title because if um, anyone too else simple. is, <laughs> yeah. it, it's too much. Uh, a, a great mm. example is the Commodore 64. There's roughly about 28,000 video games for the Commodore 64, but that's video games or what people consider as video games. If you add educational titles, they have about 56,000 educational titles on the Commodore 64. So if I'm going to say I'm going to play every single game, there's no way I'm going to hit every single educational yeah. title. It's just, it's it's not going to happen. <laughs> but when you but when yeah. you get to Rocky's Boots for the Apple II, you should check that out. It's uh, circuit development. Oh yeah, yeah, we, we got that one. That, that one's on the list. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, there's it's, a couple uh, like that actually. Because there's a couple but, on the Coco. Rocky's Boots was one. What was the other one? Yeah, same thing. I think it was. Yeah. Uh, what was that? Robot was, uh, Battle, which is like a programmer's game. That's oh yeah, that one's cool. And what, way, what, what I do on the show is I say uh, we, we cover everything in order of release, and then we get to the end where we say, like, right, right now we're in 1981 and we're playing all the games we couldn't find the definite release date for. That's the time for anybody watching the show to say, hey, you forgot about what, such and such game, which Curtis does all the time. He's always saying, hey, what about this game? And so I'll be sure to include that so we don't miss anything before we end the year. But you know, Elliot has such a blast with the math tutor. <laughs> TJB Chris said thank you for answering my question and Mark Siegel says what about Adam A-T-O-M all capitals we got it we're on it we're on the Acorn Adam yeah. yep Mark's the guy uh, that designed that one uh, the specs for it uh, to make an educational one he's quite proud of that one. Oh, I see <laughs> and of I course he was the, the manager at Tandy too so I got three questions go ahead the f- first one is uh, why don't you hook up with a couple of other guys that are really knowledgeable and have your show as a corporate thing where you could um, put off other guys to do some of the stuff you can't just do yourself. And the other question is, do you sleep well? And the other question after that, is, <laughs> if you don't sleep well, is it because you dream in digital? Uh, I do sleep well. I'll answer that one first. The, 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 Even with the a point. newborn baby, I'm surprised. <laughs> uh, we, we got a cool dynamic going. So since, since I stream one hour only, I, I still have a good, a good sleep. For now, we'll see what happens later. But um, uh, for the first question, I uh, do invite people on. And one of the, the things I wanted to do for the show, which is I have never seen done before, is not only we're going to go in order of release, but uh, I, I invite other people that would want to come play the games on. So I've sent invitations out to several hundred people just to see if they want to come on and uh, come on the show for an hour and just play a time capsule of the different games that are available. And so I've had a few people that are more like Twitch personalities or YouTube personalities come on. And so I've had a total, I think, 40 guests on the show. But for professionals, I've sent I've sent invitations to Nasir Gabelli to see if he would want to come. I don't want to send invitations Yay. to uh, Kim and Roberta Williams to see if they want to come on because we're already hitting online systems. I sent invitations to um, – can I think of it right now off the top of my head? Uh, he's like the biggest guy that used to be at uh, ID Software. I mean, wh- I don't know why I can't it's think of Carmack? Carmack uh, or? Uh, the, 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 the Rebel. John Romero. Yeah, John Romero. There you go. Send an invitation to John Romero. But uh, I'm, I'm still pretty small time. So uh, if you got anybody else that you would recommend that would be good as a guest, because it's not just having someone on to play games. It's just because it is a live show and uh, you're, you're not prefaced which game you'll see. So whenever I had, um, uh, I had Chris Alimo from classic gaming quarterly come on, he's more of a nineties console and uh, PC guy. 
And so when he came on, uh, he asked ahead of time, am I going to know what we're going to see? Because he was slightly familiar with the, the games in 1980, but not completely. So you come across a game, you, you're not going to get the research to talk about it. It's 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 more of who's really cuff. good to do something live uh, off the top of your head. Now, you've actually had, the, like you said, you've had people come on and play the games and you actually you're playing with them um, through the emulators. Like how many of the emulators that you use support that? Um, interactivity as long as it's not a text adventure game where you need to have the keyboard you can play uh, you can play uh, with me and we use a program called parsec so they connect to my system as if it was a couch co-op game and their controller connects and then we're able to play everything together if it's a two-player game yeah because that was one thing i thought was pretty cool that you'd have people come on and you actually would play against each other or or cooperative depending on the game yeah yeah it's that's been the 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 most fun because uh, doing the show and explaining the history is great, but um, when you go, when you, it's about playing the game. That's what video games are. So if you can get someone to actually play a little bit, that you can understand what, how it is. However, we are going from arcade to handheld to console to like so. It's it's and com- all these computer games have so many different controls, and I cannot, and I wish I could, put in their hand a, a color computer a joystick so they could feel what it's like, you know, to play the game <laughs> on that that joystick. But <laughs> I knew you had one handy. <laughs> That's a hey, we, but it's we a have a comment joystick, from basically. What we have a Mark? we have a comment from Frank Lynn Harris about the C sixty four game numbers. He was thinking there was closer to twenty thousand total titles and only ten to fifteen thousand were games. Yeah, the, the the information I'm getting is from the. Uh, let me get that link. Commodore 64 database. I don't have the full link with me at right now, but uh, I'm pulling it off of the, the I'm, I'm basically saying which database of the Commodore 64 has the biggest numbers, not to verify <laughs> that's really the actual number. Yeah. You got references though. So yes. Yeah. We'll accept that. <laughs> yeah. If you can never make it to a Cocoa Fest, we usually do have some gaming stuff there. In fact, this year, I think we're having the most game oriented, uh, display people there uh like we're having the amigos gaming network is coming down for the first first time ever so you could actually set it up so we could have little competitions uh, of certain coco games if you if you so desire to do so nice that sounds awesome so well stick that stick that in your head anyway for the future <laughs> yep rinse and repeat cat hey uh the uh sibling rivalry is going to be there too yep Show yeah tim and aj and Taylor and Amy tend to play a fair number of games, too. I don't know if they'll be doing that as much. They also do hardware, though, so they're kind of like a cross-genre as, as far as what they're doing with retro. Is that, are you caught up all the questions in the chat there, Mark? Or is there any from the panel, actually, before I continue? I think I we're current know. on the chat. Did you, um, did you learn how to keep still? Because you st- keep still so well. At first, I thought you had a mohawk. <laughs> it's your it's your background and your your head doesn't move a whole lot so i thought <laughs> i don't think i do do you have any training uh in broadcast or because you you stay still and you enunciate well thank you very much i've never done radio i've always loved to because i'm sure people when they hear about wait you get paid to just talk that sounds awesome so i've i've always wanted to but no i've never done anything in radio i have done Thing in things in theater or, or stage work, uh, improv stuff just for fun on the on the side. When I was coaching gymnastics, which I did for a very long time, uh, if you can entertain a bunch of kids, like 20, 30 kids at once, then you know, you, you're, you're pretty much uh, ready you to be on stage. Yes. 
<laughs> now you you were mentioning that um you know you've kind of expanded you know both the year range of what you're covering and also what you're covering including the handles etc once you kind of expanded into all that did you fully realize how many games you have coming up here like did you realize how big this project had become Yes, I knew that once I started in the 70s, I could get through the 70s fairly easily because I've already seen how everything gets exponentially bigger. Obviously, you put computers in people's homes and say, here's how you program stuff. And then we got all these games that pop out. And uh, I think we mentioned it before on the limitations of are we doing type in games? What about all the the games that are in magazines, you know? And so um, I'm going to do some, but I'm not going to be able to do all the, the type in games. It's mostly going to be the commercial releases. And every now and then, if there's a type in game that's really amazing, I want to show that when it's first available. But um, the, the I, I already knew ahead of time how m- much it was going to be. And I already knew ahead of time uh, this for, for formula or the, the, the kind of show I want to run. I... I told myself, let's do this. Let's set it up and let's see what happens. Like how popular is this going to be? Is this going to be boring? Are people even going to be interested in, in, in seeing this? So I'm kind of doing this as a trial run guys. I it's, it's more like I'm going to be doing this for a year. Let's see how popular it is. What happens to it after this. And then if it really isn't something that's that catches on, then you know, I'll go do, do something else or uh, uh, d- d- just stop. But uh, if it is something that it interests people and people enjoy it, then I'll just keep going and going until, what do they say, when my uh, my kids take over chronologically gaming and continue to play? Yeah, genealogically gaming is when yes. the fourth <laughs> Gene- generation. Genealogically gaming. <laughs> <laughs> I know you always look for uh, games that are the best or you know most action or whatever. But um, wouldn't there be a cool section if you just uh, might might mention some of the real trashy, crappy stuff? <laughs> you just oh, he does. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we do. The- yeah. He has a rating system. Actually, that's another question I was going to ask about. So you have a five star rating system, and there's certain games like if you're not going to cover them for whatever reason, the emulation didn't work or whatever, you give them zero stars because you can't obviously test it. But um, you have a rather interesting way because you're covering so many different consoles and computers of such different levels of. Um, you know, technical ability on these machines, you know, some something released in 77 compared to something released in 81, as far as hardware goes, can make a huge difference as to what the game's capable of. So how does your rating system work when you're trying to compare, you know, you know, an Atari 2600 release from 1981 versus, you know, an Intellivision release or, um, you know, a, a more modern, like a VIC-20 or, you know, one of the higher end uh, home computers at the time? Because obviously they're on completely different scales from each other. And I thought you might want to explain how that whole rating system works for that. Yeah, good point. The The rating system is a five-star rating system. Part of it is just to, so people can have an idea of, in the context of video games globally, what was the good ones and what was the bad ones? That, that's the first reason I put the rating system in. Second reason is for controversy, because I really just want people to talk about it. And if you put a rating system in, more people are going to talk about the game. If you say, you know, it's three stars and they go three stars, that's ridiculous. Here's why. And so I, I, I knew I could get more people to talk about a rating system. So the way it works is if it's one star, it's, it's, uh, well, actually the, the, the five star rating system is you asking yourself the question, what do you think about the game? A one star or around the one star ranges is the game broken. <laughs> That'd be the one star <laughs> range. The, 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 the two star <laughs> range is if the game is bad. So if you tell yourself that that game's bad, it's around the two-star range, you know, one and a half, two, somewhere around there. If the game's average, like a, an average game for 1981 or whatever year we're on, 
or the time period we're on, that would be around the three-star range. If it's a very good game or an excellent game, that's the four-star range. And if it's one of the best games you could play at that time, then it's a five-star game. So we're putting ourselves as if we're in that time period and then doing the rating there. It's, it's not based on anything contemporary. It's just everything else we've seen. So, for example, if I come across a video game that has a mechanic I've never seen, I'm cranking that rating up because this is incredible. Uh, a great example is skiing on the Coco. We've never seen a first-person skiing game ever for any of the other games we've seen on the channel. So when I saw the skiing on the, the Coco, I'm like, this is way up there. I gave it four and a half stars because it's 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 an experience that is kind of similar to Battlezone. It's a first-person, you know, like a, almost in a virtual reality. Uh, yeah, with rolling hills and the whole bit. Like, yeah, not just it's just straight forward. Yeah, it's, it's great. Now, the we obviously can't rate handhelds based on other uh, hand uh, other systems like the arcade. So when we, when we rate the games, we're rating them based on what you could play them or how you could play them. So everything in the arcade would be based on the other arcade games. So if I, if I see a space game that I play in the arcade, I'm going to rate that based on the other arcade games. If you went to an arcade or were able to go to an arcade in 1981, how is that going to be compared to the other arcade games you could play? We play, a, we play a, a Galaga in the arcade. How does that compare to Frogger that also came out around the same time? Is that, um, I wouldn't be rating... Galaga on something you could play on the Atari at home, uh, basically. So it's, the basic four categories you're you're rating within that category, right? So uh, that has included the uh, home consoles and the home computers too. That's right. That kind so of- yeah, that's right. So like um, uh, we we all know the arcade game. You can put in the PCB and as much memory or whatever you need to run to make the game work. And so we, most of the stuff we see in the arcades is going to be much better than we can get anywhere else. So whenever I pick up a handheld and we play a handheld on the show, I'm only comparing all the handhelds we've seen up to this point. Uh, like uh, Milton Bradley Microvision has interchangeable cartridges and they, they they put a game in that you can play in the palm of your hand. I'm going to rate it on everything else you could play only in the palm of your hand. When Coleco Pac-Man came out, it would be one of the best handhelds you could play uh, at that time uh, compared to all the other handhelds at the time. And then the same for uh, computers. So um, it's been really tricky with computers because the hardware is so different on so many different systems. A great example is the ZX81 in Europe. I had mostly seen text games, and then we start playing uh, Mazogs, which is so cool. On uh, <laughs> There it is. Love it. <laughs> on the ZX81. And so when uh, we play the game, I tell everybody, if we were only playing and rating ZX81 games, Mazogs would be one of the best games you could play on the ZX81, bar none of all the games we play. But because we're we're comparing it to every other computer you could play. So if if, uh, you had the luxury or the ability in 1981 to take every computer and put them all in your home, that's kind of what we're seeing, the, what we're rating them on is uh, Mazogs wouldn't be the best of the best game ever. There's there's, there's, there's other games on the, the, the computer you could, or uh, micro that you could play. Uh, so it's, it's be, be contained in that category of computers, basically. And, and do you, do you put much credence to graphics and some, we're kind of talking earlier about how modern games have kind of settled on genres type thing. But it, like in your rating system, how much of that would be based on like graphics and sound within the category and how much would be based on the fun of gameplay or the innovativeness of something new that they've added? I, I would assume that the last two would be weighted a bit more than the graphics and sound, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, uh, the, the way the game plays, the gameplay is the top thing. And by that, it's also the fun. How fun is it to play this game? 
Um, whenever I first started to get into video games, I enjoyed and the the draw for me because my wife asked me all the time, you know, why are you doing this? Why why are you into this? But but <laughs> we all get that, by the way. <laughs> the, the the draw for me of playing video games is you are in control of something on the screen and you are doing something to influence what's happening on the screen and how that how that plays out and what it how it, how it makes you have a, a good time or have fun is the biggest draw so the graphics and the sound obviously has some part of the rating to it like for example the very first time we saw a horizontally scrolling game back in the 70s there's a game called superbug in the arcade it was the very first game we had ever seen that is scrolling around and moving as if they're implying there is more road outside the screen you're playing on so it makes you think of hey wait the, the car can i can move up here and it keeps driving uh, to, to the top it, rather than playing like sprint in the arcade, which is you look top down at the racetrack, the racetrack's yeah. all on one screen. And so when, when I play, when I saw Superbug, I'm like, now I, while graphics aren't everything, it is adding to the gameplay because it makes you realize you're seeing that the, the game knows you know there's more outside the screen than just what you see on on, on one screen. Um, and so whenever we get something with graphics or audio that's different, it does come into play because it's it, it, if it if it enhances the gameplay experience and makes it more fun to play. OK. And is so our understanding here is that the fun factor is the number one criteria for the score, the rating that you give it. Where would yeah. innovation be like if they do something brand new you've never seen before versus, say, graphics and sound? I'm assuming innovation's higher on that list as well. Yeah, yeah. And if we if we have something that, um, well, it, it, I guess it depends on how innovative it is because uh, we we came across some games on the Atari Home Computer by Crystalware. They are implementing and doing things that are extremely innovative, almost to the point that it's almost too complex and <laughs> causes some bugs in the game, but. Uh, I, I do take that into account and I remember that, but if it's not very fun, if, it, if, if it's innovative, but it doesn't in make the gameplay better, uh, like for example, uh, one of crystal wears games was, um, uh, fantasy land 2041 AD. They, uh, made it so that you were able to get on a ship and sail a ship around and then take get off the ship and go on the mainland. But the way they made it, the way they incorporated the gameplay um, was kind of clunky. So the idea of, hey, I have a character that I'm moving around uh, top down and I can get on a ship and go sail somewhere and go somewhere else. It, in, in, in theory, it sounds really good. But the way that it's implemented in the game isn't very uh, is, isn't isn't fun enough or, or isn't good enough to, to to merit the innovation, if that makes yeah. sense. So they, they had a good idea, but they didn't implement it properly. Correct. Yeah. Okay, and that was, that was my next question was kind of along the same lines about innovative but failures. Like they might have tried something brand new, never tried, but nobody ever did it afterwards because it actually just didn't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which yeah, I that's... mean, in the early stages of the chronological era, the era that you're in right now, that probably is happening a fair bit. Yes, we we see a lot of games that look awesome, or the the idea is really cool. Like, oh wow, they thought of that all the way back in 1981, but then you know you have to wait a long time. The the, the loading's bad, or it's just not programmed as well as it could be. That, that's also another factor because if um, you, you play a game and you realize that the system could be doing better or faster or performing uh, better because of the way it was programmed, then you uh, a good example is on the Apple II. I couldn't believe when I saw Phantoms 5 by Nasir Nabelli that he has a, a, a vertically scrolling shoot-em-up with 
the screen scrolling across. It, it, it was amazing. It, it made me realize, wait, you can do that with the Apple II? I couldn't believe it. So when we played another game on the Apple II that was a scrolling shoot-em-up and it was more tile-based and the screen's moving like this, I'm like, no, I know the Apple II can do more or better than that. Uh, the, the designer obviously was, and this year Gabelli is incredible. But, He's incredible. Uh, yeah. So I, I just knew that the system could perform better than that. Yeah. For that yeah. example. So uh, oh. listen, don't you have um, an appreciation for how uh, hardware is also um, gone up and up in um, quality along with, you know, like, you know, the Coco 3 came out and it wasn't totally backward compatible, but it had so much better stuff in it. Um, do you see that across lines of uh, computers that, uh, you know, sometimes they try to advance and they'd leave behind some of the old stuff because they couldn't emulate, you know, couldn't keep um, some of the modes or stuff wouldn't work on the newer stuff. I mean, that's all hardware based. It has nothing to do with the software so much, but um, we have that with the Coco three where, you know, there are some games we can't play or some things you can't use on the Coco three that was made for the one and two. I mean, great question. Happen? You're talking about like video modes, like when yeah, you like, change hardware, you can't have the same video modes as you right. did before. Yeah, where yeah. sometimes they have to break some backwards compatibility in order to you know get the chip count down. Or do you or see a lot of that? Yeah. So so far we haven't seen a lot. I know we are later because on Commodore we're going to have that when they go from system to system, the one twenty eight, the plus four, and all. They're they're, they're going to like they're going to get rid of like the eighty column mode and uh, video modes where you can't have the as much high resolution text games and things like that. I know that's going to come up, but uh, I I know that I I've, I've thought about this hardware wise. I'm not going to try to get into as much detail with hardware. Kind of the reason why I didn't um, uh, say that we're uh, uh, we, we go we go from the Atari VCS and then the Atari VCS turns into the uh, Atari 5200, and then there's other models of the the, the VCS that that change a little bit, but not as much of the hardware. So with home computers, I know with IBM PC, we're going to be changing. The hardware is going to go through so many iterations. We're going to have custom-built IBM PCs, and it's going to go to like the the the, the Tandy systems. But I'm not. I, I wasn't going to focus as much on the hardware side or explain as much of the hardware side when it comes to the game. And I and uh, we have we have a game that changes the uh, or a game that doesn't display as well as it could because of what video mode they decided to go with on, on that computer. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to mention it on the show, but I'm not going to really be hitting on as much of the hardware side. It's, it's more of what you see uh, and, and how the game is playing. And then we, we compare it to everything else we've seen with the other games that are around at the time. Does that make sense? Yep. Did I answer the question correctly? Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. Excellent. Yeah, you hit that a fair bit. I mean, you go like the you know the C sixty four, the Vic twenty to the C sixty four, for example. I mean, that that was mm -hmm. one that was a pretty big jump, and, and not backwards pedal or the pet to the Vic twenty, for example. That's completely different, except for maybe some Petski stuff. Yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. Exile um, Paradise had a question about uh, how many of the thousands of Star Trek games are you going to cover? <laughs> Is that going to have a dedicated segment or? All of them will be covered. That that's a whole sideshow. <laughs> exactly, it's a whole channel. Um, you brought up a good point about hardware, though, going back to what we had before. When I first covered my very first Commodore PET game ever, 
on the show, I pointed out how I'm going to call it the Commodore PET, but there is at least 15 other models of the Commodore PET that I'm aware of. And since we're playing games all over the world, I'm I'm letting everybody know that before the game's played, I'm not going to be telling you what model I'm playing on uh, or the reason why. Uh, so whenever we, we we play a game, I'm just going to keep it simple to say we're playing on the Commodore PET. We're not playing on you know the, the Commodore PET 3601, you know, like the, the the specific model of it. But I'm aware of the other models. I'm just not going to I'm not going to focus as much on the hardware side. Um, uh, same thing with when we played the console, um, the Philips video pack came out first, which is the European version of the Magnavox Odyssey 2. And so there's other models of the Philips video pack that were in Europe in different regions. Germany had their own model. Uh, France had their own model. And so whenever we're playing the, the, the games all over the world, just to keep it simple, I'm just going to say Philips video pack instead of the specific model for that region. Yeah, that'd be like us with the Coco 1 and 2, which are essentially, aside from keyboards, like, you know, cosmetic stuff for hardware, you know, shrinking it down to a smaller case. But playing-wise, it's pretty well identical. Yeah, uh, The TDP 100, which is a, a Tandy distributor product, that was their uh, attempting to sell outside of Radio Shack stores, which briefly lived on. But that's basically a Coco 1 F-board model with a slightly different case. So that's the same, same type of thing. You don't have to differentiate between any of those. Yeah. So when Coco 3 is a different beast. That's a completely different machine, basically, but... Right. So, so whenever we do play like the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the color computer, I'm just going to say we're playing on the color computer at this time, you could have had the Coco too, you know, like uh, I'll just m- m- have a brief little snippet that, uh, because of where we are, this could be the Coco too, but the main banner is just going to say, yeah. Yeah. Fall 1983 in case you haven't researched it already. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's, here's an oddball. Um, are you going to cover, uh, Tandy like model 100? 102 and uh, Kyocera and the games they had every single game on those systems. Yes. Uh, it's not going to be called the Tandy 1000 though. Like uh, no, I, I mentioned this 100. Or, or, or yeah, or 100 we're, we're, we're going to be playing every game, but I'm going to just say uh, DOS P- PC DOS or uh, MS DOS. So um, the hardware is, uh, w- w- won't be the, the, the showcase. It'll be the game more. When when we first came across the when IBM PC or in PC DOS first came out in eighty one, I just said here's MS DOS, but it's really not MS DOS yet. But everything that's that's PC booter, uh, MS DOS compa- compatible, PC DOS compatible, IBM like they're all just going to be. I'm just going to say MS DOS and then say you could have this system or it could be the uh, uh, Tandy uh, one thousand at the time. Well, Tandy uh, Graphics was huge though. Yeah, wow. well, that was actually the IBM PC Junior. I mean, the sound and the the graphics came from the PC Junior, which of well, but better. <laughs> I mean, Ron was Ron was talking about the Model One Hundred. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the little LCD screen. The ones the reporters all use, the little eight-line yeah. LCD screen, the keyboard yeah. built right in, modem built in. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think people bought that to play games on anyway. So there's no, a few though. I mean, they, the Amigos actually covered a couple of games on it here in one of their uh, ARG presents shows. Yeah, yeah. Um, if if it has games, then we'll, we're we're playing it. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's not till eighty three though. So you got some time. Yes, <laughs> I'm already scared for eighty three. If eighty two is eighty three is huge. Yeah, <laughs> it, I mean that was the video game crash, but it was the home computer breakout oh. basically. So and when Japan takes over, J- Japan's already it's it's really interesting seeing in nineteen eighty one 
how Japan reacts to video games in the computer space. There's even an article. Did you check out that episode where I was reading in Softline Magazine? Bill Budge went to Japan, and there's an article about his review of programmers in Japan in 1981, how they're they're shunned. They're looked down upon because it's just fun in games. If you're yep. a programmer for applications, then it's, it's a little bit higher up. But it, it blew me away that the article said that because it made me think of, I want to go back in time and talk to Shigeru Miyamoto. You just made Donkey Kong. Do you mean your parents don't like you because you're, you're a video you're game? You're frittering your life away playing these silly games. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which reminds me, couldn't you also, after this is all over, when you're an old man, couldn't you start with applications? <laughs> well, that's that's a good point too. I have to put some limit on the which is a game and which is an application because yeah. uh, I know like when uh, screensavers start coming out, do I want to show screensavers? And we've already had um, uh, s- several games that are really close, like uh, drawing programs. Uh, Coco had um, what was the name of the the, the Coco Micro Mac. Painter? Or yeah, Art uh, Gallery, the, one of those. Coco gal- yeah, paint, uh, Art Gallery. That's what it was. And so um, I will give a a small little snippet of it because they're they're also on uh, consoles because at this time they're kind of blending which is what's the computer and what's a console. I mean, the Ballet Astrocade and the The uh, Odyssey 2 is actually marketed that way because they had a keyboard. Yeah, because they had a keyboard. It's it's a computer too. So there's lots of applications that are cartridges that are usually part of the same library of games. And so there are some that I show. But very, very shortly, like the the, the drawing program on the uh, APF Imagination Machine, you know, like, or Doodle that's on um, Valley Astrocade. So I show a little bit, but I, I'm not going into all applications because that's even bigger. I'm I'm, I'm prefacing yeah. it's got to be a, a video game. Our, our you know, you'll have to get analyzer. some sidekicks to split off their own shows to do that, I think. That's right. <laughs> our, our audio analyzer was pretty um, cool for this, the day it came out. Yeah, well, like VisiCalc. I would have talked about VisiCalc because it was it was basically the killer app of the Apple II, and but yep. I didn't do that. It was. When you have, you have these games that have a boss mode or a boss key, <clears throat> you get a key and oh, it brings right. up a spreadsheet. <laughs> oh, yeah, it brings up a spreadsheet or a word processor or something like that. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. then you have what is it? What was it that was embedded in that one version of Excel, 95 or 98 or something, where it actually had a flight simulator built in if you yes. punched in a certain formula in the right spot? And it would actually kick into a 3D flight simulator flying around. Like no oh, wonder the I want to know about so those. I, I do want to know about those if they have hidden games within the application. Yeah, that, that that'd be cool to show. Excel definitely does. <laughs> that that particular version, I don't remember which one. Rick, I don't know if you remember. Uh, you don't cover cheats, do you? Well, we haven't had as many cheats, but I haven't been covering those because uh, when when we uh, boot up the game, we play a little bit of it, get kind of the feel of how the game is and what how to how to run it. But I, I'm trying to work that out because eventually we're going to get games where you want to show. Uh, you want to show what it's famous for. So when we we played Adventure on the Atari VCS, I showed the Easter egg. I wanted to to show off that, but uh, I don't know if you'll be able to show every cheat. Oh, the other especially thing, adventure games and RPGs. I mean, those those are huge. So I mean, <laughs> that, that's like several months of playing the one game, and you, you definitely don't have time for that. Sorry, go ahead, Rob. Are you going to cover anything about um, copy protection? We have lots. Have you? Lo- yeah, oh, a lot yes. of the bro- broken by screens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because a lot of the, the the games I'm getting on Apple II and Atari, they usually have a cracked buy screen uh, yeah. to, to play. And what's really what's really funny is the first time we played Adventureland by Scott Adams, I played the wrong version. I played the Scott Adams graphic adventure game, which at the time I didn't know there was a difference. So when I played it on the Apple II, the, the Scott Adams graphic adventure game or the Saga series 
uh, starts with a splash screen of of Scott Adams explaining the the pirate community and how you shouldn't copy pirated software. And it goes through, I think, 10 slides of a, a presentation of why you shouldn't copy the material. So it's really funny. Uh, and every time we play a game, yes, we have talked about the copy protection and we've even experienced it because we, we get some games that are not cracked and I'm not aware of it until we do it live on the show. And I boot up the game and it says you need the code to enter uh, to move forward or uh, it, there's a puzzle very difficult, you know, and especially with text adventure games. And so we've, we've talked about the reason why we can't get any further than this is because you need to have the paperwork, but I couldn't find any scans online. There's no manuals available online and just, just, uh, sadly, you can't get you can't get past that without that info. Yeah, because some of them used to have that thing like turn to page thirty four and type in word five of paragraph six to continue. Yes. Oh, yeah. We haven't even seen that yet, uh, but we will have those on the channel. Yeah, I'm I'm actually excited for those. Now, don't you think <laughs> there's a bunch of guys in 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 the world that spent their time trying to find programs that they can crack? I mean, just that as a, a oh yeah, a I, I know some of them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Actually, there was a guy that reached out on my Coco Games page a long time ago because I've, I've always put up, you know, if I get a crack game screen, because that's the only way I can get good screenshots. I usually put it in, you know, please email me if you've got some clean shots or if you have a copy of the game that's cracked, but not, you know, obliterated credits, etc. And another guy contacted me, says, I'm doing the opposite. I want to get a list of all the Coco cracked ones. I want to get a list of all the nicknames they had and, you know, which which rings of people did what. And he was looking for more crack games. I don't know if he's done anything with it since, but I, I gave him what you know, few I had. But yeah, it's like, pretty like interesting. Is there, is there a trend to have um, a pirate character, <laughs> you know, showing Oh, there was, there was back in the 80s. I mean, Steve Jobs is rather famous for creating the whole pirate section of Apple to work on the, the Mac. Yes. When he split right. up from the Lisa, when he got really? pulled off the Lisa project. Yeah, they had a pirate flag flying over their building. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that one. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, there's even pictures of them with the pirate flag on the wall when they were developing the Mac in like 82, 83-ish. Mark probably knows more about this than I do, but... Yeah, there's a great website uh, called folklore.org that was run by, I think it was Andy Hertzfield, I think, set it up. It's got yep. great stories about all that stuff. Yeah, and he was one of the guys working there at the time, so he knows he knows about it. It was all the inside stuff. Uh, Mark Siegel said, "Are you going to be covering game controllers?" Mark Siegel, of course, is I the had considered that because when you d deal with everything digital, I, I I really wanted to have more physical. So before I kick this off, I want uh, my first dream was I want to buy all the controllers. So whenever I get on the show, <laughs> I know, yeah, I'm watching Curtis laugh. I, before I get on the show and I start to play a game, I say, "Here it is." So I can show it on the, the the camera. Well, when I saw people taking the formula that I had dreamt of doing of every game in order, but people were starting to do little pieces of it, like uh, let's do just consoles, or we got uh, Greg Seward, who's now doing all the Sega Genesis in order of release, and people are doing Nintendo in order of release. When I saw more and more people trying to do something chronologically, I'm like, I got to go. I don't have time to buy the, the the controllers. I need to get this off the road now. And get started with it because I I realized I had um, all, all the games and research for the 70s and the early 80s um, uh, down. And I was like, let's, let's do this. Let's get it started now. And so I did not get a chance to showcase the controller. So 
I do show the controllers, and I've even had to, well, I had to uh, explain how I'm playing some of the games, like the uh, Fairchild Channel F has a really advanced yep. hand controller, and so I, I ended up just pantomiming. Here's the handle. You have the knob on top, yeah, the and you can turn it, and, and you can turn it, and it goes up and down. Yeah, so. I've had to pantomime and then have show pictures of the controller. But my first dream was I wanted to show it on the camera. This is what I'm playing as if I was playing on that. Yeah. I mean, just just looking like how many innovative controls, like I said, the early 80s was the Wild West. We had like trackballs. I have one. We had the deluxe joystick, the free floating one, pistol grip, um, red ball. Uh, you know, phaser light gun adapters and stuff for like the master system. Um paddle controllers light pens i mean it's just that's a whole dark hole you can go down that could be a whole chronologically (laughs) we we talk about all of them i got schooled uh, from one of the videos where we were playing on in the arcade oh man i don't remember what it was but it i called it a paddle controller but it wasn't referred to as that it's called a spinner uh the spinner arcade uh controller so, so someone told me no that's like Tempest actually or something a, or uh, say that again like Tempest or something yeah no uh it or, wasn't Tempest it was um it, it was another game that involved you controlling how far an artillery is being fired and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head but um I I I kept calling it paddle because I'm used to on the Atari VCS but they they called it a spinner yeah well I remember there was stuff like there was I actually had one because when you strapped your wrist and had a little rollerball to detect where it was, so you'd actually would rotate your wrist back and forth. Oh, cool. To steer. There was a surfboard one that came out in the early 80s. I was on the Commodore and a few others too, where it actually was literally a board that you put on your floor and you'd tilt and steer yes. yourself yep, they around had that, that one way. too. That's a really good point uh, or really, really good question because when I play the game, some if the game requires a certain controller, then I will talk about that controller. But um, like, for example, like the Activision uh pad you don't have to have the activision pad so i most likely won't be bringing it up on the show because it's it's again in that realm of hardware i'm going to focus mostly on just the games so you yeah. could play the sega activator with street fighter but i'm just going to play street fighter and explain what you would be uh j- just explain how you would play it normally on the show when i get to it you know in 2085 or whenever that is <laughs> you guys remember uh twister where you put the mat down on- oh yeah, yeah yeah it's still around what 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 was that hook to or or whatever? I the original game had nothing uh, attached to it. It was just like a board game. Oh, yeah. honor system. I thought maybe it was uh, connected to a, a video that you know they could do that. I guess. Was, yeah, well, they they have the uh, power pad that was for Nintendo that hooks up to the and it looks like a twister twister mat. Okay. Yeah, our our electronic book on the Coco was kind of like that, except it was done on a page sheet, but you would. You know, hit the big numbers there, and he would read it through the joystick port. Um, I think one of the best parts of your show is when you you find a hidden gem, and you've, you've actually had a few of those recently, where you you're playing a game, you don't have really big expectations because it's something you've never heard of, maybe by a company you've never heard of, whether it's arcade or or home console or home computer, or whatever, and then you're absolutely stunned by how you know innovative or fun or whatever it is. Um, and I mean, I've gone through that just doing my webpage too. I've discovered some games that I didn't have in my old piracy days. Um, you know, that I've discovered far after and go, why didn't I have this one then? I could have traded off a hundred of these other ones. Um, I'm just wondering of, of all the ones you've done up to this point, and it doesn't matter what, what platform, like just out of all, all time, basically, I'll ask you about Cook one specifically later. Um, but which, which, uh, games have really stood out for you? Maybe a top couple, three to five or something like that. And then also which, 
hardware platforms have really surprised you that you thought, you know, maybe from hearing about them in the past that, you know, they're kind of substandard and whatever else for the time, but they've actually done something really cool that you weren't expecting. Yeah. So I'm going to my list so I don't have to remember. I I have a a link uh, that I don't know if you'll include down below, but I made a, a Google sheet spreadsheet of every single game the the rating, what country it's from, and then a link so you can go right to that game. So if you uh, want to see, wait, you talked about um, uh, Gorf in the arcade. You want to see what Gorf is like, or you can you just click right to it. So um, the very first hidden gem was the Black Sage uh, for the <laughs> Apple II. Someone's calling. <laughs> oh, do you hear it in the background? Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. We have that. Yeah, you know, my cat was doing that too. So, yeah, you bet. The, the first, the first one I found was the Black Sage for the Apple II. Uh, it was a blast. Couldn't believe that uh, th- 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 there was a game like this, I, and it surprised me because I hadn't seen anything else like it. It was like a multi-user dungeon, but made for one person. So it was like a single-user dungeon, a sud instead of a mud. Uh, and uh, and and I, I never heard anything about the game, and found out later there's only two or three other games that follow this format. So that was the first uh, hidden gem. But then we also had um, Fracas was another one that was a surprise. It is a roguelike where you have a party of up to I think eight people, where you can take turns hot seat style um, in front of the computer uh, playing a role playing game like rogue like uh, rogue. But it's um, it, it's spread across like a, a even larger map than we'd ever seen before, and you make decisions and fights and stuff like that. And it's it's like the first rogue, you know, or, or um, uh, Apple um, beneath Apple Manor it has like one pixel to represent you. But um, uh, the, the the scope of that blew me away. That was another one that was uh, very surprising. And um, uh, let me see what else. I'm looking at my top. Oh yeah, Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. That was another one that was surprising to me. They made a game for the Atari home computer that allowed you to play a role-playing game using the Atari joystick, and you can you just need one joystick, one button, and you can play a role-playing game. And they have you it, – it's even impressive that the manual says you don't need to read the rest of this manual. Put the manual away. The game is that easy to play, and it was true. I, I boot the game up, and I could do it all on an Atari joystick where I'm moving a, a, a player around top-down uh, view – and the, you can go through all the menus using your joystick. You hold the red button down and it explains it all on the screen. The user interface was way ahead of its time. I, it was even enjoyable today. Uh, not Because whenever I go on the show, I put myself in that position of what we've seen so far. And it's just, it's just 1981 where we are right now. And pretend like that's it. That's all we've ever seen. And not compare things to uh, nowadays. More modern, yeah. Right. And this um, one you said was actually fun enough that you would consider it fun even today with everything that's come since. So yeah, that's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, so. And then, of course, um, uh, well, there's some that are just obvious, like uh, Eastern Front 1941. That was another one that's in- incredible. Uh, that's by Chris Crawford, one of his first games he ever did. Um, and then we have I'm trying to think of the ones that aren't popular because the obvious easy ones. Frogger, Galaga, you know, like all the all the ones everyone knows. It's well, the they wouldn't be a hidden gem. They'd be an obvious gem. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a glowing in the dark gem. <laughs> I, I, I now refer to them because hidden gems use so much. I call them diamonds in the rough when uh, I had not heard anything about them and uh, had no information until I played it for the first time. Um, another one is uh, Ghost Hunter. That one was 
uh, the best way to play Pac-Man that I've ever seen. It's a it's a it's a maze game like Pac-Man on the Atari home computer, but it has more game modes than anything we'd seen for playing Pac-Man. You have uh, comp- competitive play, two players at the same time uh, playing Pac-Man. You can even have c- people controlling the ghosts in Ghost Hunter, so you could play as the enemy. And then, attack. I mean, it's like it, it did way more than Pac-Man should have done. And it was 1981. That was really impressive. Um, just going through again. I got a list. Five minutes. <laughs> Has there been a particular old computer that wasn't that popular that you've been really surprised with some of the quality of the games they had? Oh, yeah. The TI-99. Uh but, but it depends on – everyone has their own first system. So while I, I'll say it's the, uh, you know, obscure computer, doesn't mean it's, it's obscure for everybody. But um, yeah. the, the, I was impressed with the TI-99, and I was impressed with the color computer. I was not familiar with the TRS-80 color computer until doing this show. So uh, when I first had showcased and prepared all the games, I only had – uh, like for the launch of the Coco, I think I even had it uh, in- incorrect. I put it at the end of the year because I didn't. Ha- I didn't have a Curtis to tell me what the the the, <laughs> the, the actual actual release date was. Mm-hmm. And when, whenever I started playing the color computer games, I was amazed by those too. So I'd say TI ninety nine and color computer were ones I was not familiar with, but I was able to uh, experience some of the games. The big one was the the big one that was the slap in the face was Dino Wars. When I played Dino Wars compared to all the other home computer games. Dino Wars is in a breed of its own. There's sprites, there's scaling on a on a computer at this point. It, it blew my mind. Yeah, that's actually a strange one too because that's one that there's no gray area whether you like that game or not. Either you hate it or you really love it. And I know younger kids tend to really love it. We've had like some of the developers like uh, Rick Adams who you'll hit some of his games in 82, 83, 84 type thing. But him and his cadre of friends that were doing programming professionally for Tandy at the time for some of their games they would use the uh, Dino Wars cartridge because they hated the game and they'd swap the ROM out with the game they were submitting to Radio Shack and send that. <laughs> like, it's, it's, <laughs> I don't know why that one is so polarizing. I, I did send you some of the background thing where uh, Robert Kilgus, the author of it, was mentioning uh, when I was interviewing him via email that, uh, you know, him and his wife would record them doing roars and stuff like that and then ship yes. the pitch up and <laughs> stuff like that. So, yeah, there was a lot of fun in that one. Jeff, one other thing. Um, like with the color computer, we still have people making software, you know, and it's, it's games generally. And um, there, it seems to be that they're coming up with more innovative things that we never had back in the eighties when the color computer first came out. And um, it's kind of like pushing the edge. Like I think uh, Nick Morenti's his latest games are maybe like that, where he has smooth scrolling, and you know he's doing really awesome work and it just doesn't seem like um uh, we realized that the computer could do that type of thing and is, is that happening yeah. across the board with other machines oh yeah i, I see that and uh, well on, on that note you make a really good point because as i've researched other computers all over the world there's there's still make there's always the fans that are still making games for them now uh, and so I, I thought it was like consoles, you know, you, a console has its first release and then they stop making games and that's it. There's, there's no more games. Uh, so when I first went into this, I thought there was nothing else, but I found with every single home computer, there always has more, uh, software. There's, there's always more games. So 
I, on that note, I've thought to myself, how am I going to continue with all the stuff after the life of the system? Because uh, obviously everything's going to get more and more exponential. Uh, if, if you go past the 80s, that means I'll be in the 90s still playing all the computers, the, the computers from the 80s with the, the, the newer software. And so it's a, it's a really tricky concept, but, but I have seen where I'll play a game on a, a computer and expect that's what that computer is capable of. And then a few episodes later, I'll go further uh, in, in uh, playing, playing playing games, and then something comes up. I've never seen that that before. Can't believe the computer can do that. Uh, a great example is the ZX81. We played the games when it was first released, and then we get to uh, this year, 1981, and the games are coming out. I'm like, wait a second, wait, how's the ZX81 doing this? <laughs> yeah, I think I think every home, even home consoles. I mean, they're still producing Atari 2600 games, et cetera, too. Yes. Thanks to Atari age. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think I think part of that is that just that the programmers themselves, if they decide to stick with it, or even if they come back to the hobby afterwards, they've learned so many programming techniques since, learned the limits of the hardware. <laughs> Excuse me. That you know, you perpetually can keep improving. And Nick Marinis, who's on the panel here, has done that with a lot of Kogo 3 stuff, even Kogo 1 and 2 stuff now. You make a good point. Whenever we played the Commodore VIC-20 around the, the time it was first released, uh, you, you mentioned how it was kind of harsh on the rating because it's a pretty good Space Invaders game that just came out for someone who is getting used to the hardware. And that's a really good point because when the games first released, like the IBM games we're seeing, they're terrible. All, all the ones for the, the IBM PC because they're not used to the hardware. And then the same when, when a game is first coming. We're going to see it in 82 when the ZX Spectrum comes out. We're not going to get the best looking, best best games to come out in, for, for that system. And then uh, what else is the big one next year? And 82 is the... ColecoVision 82? Yes, ColecoVision. That's right, yeah. So when um, uh, whenever a system is first coming out, and I should say computers, not consoles. Uh, consoles usually, uh, they, they get a handle of it faster. But uh, when a computer first comes out, it's not we're not going to see the best games. And it, it, it really does impress me, though, whenever I'm uh, researching the computer's like you're saying with the Coco, and I find out what they're making now. It's it it it's it's incredible. It really shows um, uh, p- people becoming familiar with the hardware and that blend of technical ability and creativity. It's it's it's, it's impressive. Yeah. Now we've covered a lot of the hidden gems here, like for various systems, et cetera. Now I'm going to go with the opposite tack here. What what are some of the ones like? I, and I know I've encountered this in the Coco world itself, where you you get a lot of hype about a certain game. And you think, oh, this is going to be great. And then you finally get a copy of it, and then you go, oh, God, this isn't that good at all. What are, what are the most underwhelming, most overrated games that uh, you've hit on any any particular console? Oh, good question. We were not screened before this interview. So um, <laughs> being, being put on the spot, uh, at this point, I've played or checked out about uh, 1,200 games um, on the channel. And there is games that I heard about that are good. And the, let me think of the ones that were underwhelming. You've already forgotten about them. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm keeping a list. So I don't have to remember. Because I, I know like back in the the days of Rainbow Magazine instead on the Coco, you'd see a screenshot on an ad and you go, wow, that looks awesome. And then you get it. And like you said, it's tile based and, you know, looks like a, a kid programmed it in basic or something like that. So or it's really slow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do on the channel show advertisement flyers 
or um, like uh, ads. And so TV commercials and stuff, yeah. And TV commercials, yeah. So we'll show the commercial of what the game looks like or the ad of what what it looks like or what you saw before the game came out. And then we just go right into the game and play it afterwards. I'd say the most, some of the underwhelming ones was when we get the ad for uh, Bally Astrocade. And then we play the game and the frame rate is subpar. Or um, what they capture on... um, uh, what, what, what they show that the game is supposed to be with like a pitcher, but then you play the game and because the frame rate's bad or the controls lag, it's it's disappointing. And so um, for Bally Astrocade, I would say is it had some of the games that were, weren't, weren't the best. Okay, here's another one. Um, when we played on the Intellivision, the, the ad for Astro Battle, which is uh, the Intellivision's version of not Astro Battle. It's in television's version of Space Invaders. And we saw the ad for it, and it looked like an excellent version of Space Invaders. And I started to play the game, and I rated it so low. It was very disappointing because at this point, we had seen Space Invaders on the Atari. We'd seen Space Invaders clones on computers, and they had different game modes, variations. They changed the formula up, made it um, uh, more exciting or different. And the Intellivision Space Invaders variant was a was bare bones. It had color, but it was only one player. And the same for Bally Astrocade. Their version of Space Invaders, which was Astro Battle, it was uh, it, it, the 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 Bally Astrocade has four controllers, and they made the game one player. There's it's not even two player simultaneous. We've seen two player Space Invaders simultaneous. So so those would be examples of underwhelming uh, games that look impressive, but then I play it and. I'd say the biggest thing is when the frame rate drops or when the controls aren't good. Uh, whenever it lags, you move something in the direction and it doesn't respond. So, um, yeah, exactly. And you're losing the fun factor because it's just, it's irritating. Yes. I want to call out more games though, because now you got me me thinking about it. What what are the other ones that that, that, that were underwhelming when I played it? Um, Atari home computer. Uh, so the Atari 800, I got, um, trying to find it it was another one by crystalware because they 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 promised so much and then i played the game and realized oh it's not it's not going very well or it doesn't work very well let's see Ken Riker in the chat is mentioning one that I remember was so hyped up when it first came out back in the day and it turned out to be crap was the Atari 2600 Pac-Man, which I don't think oh, you've hit yet, but no, we haven't. We're going to hit it though. Uh, beginning uh, or uh, pretty soon next year, 1982. Okay. I remember what it was. Yep. It was uh, forgotten Island. So forgotten Island for the Atari. 800 was uh looked impressive but then whenever i played it it uh, it, it didn't really hit all the marks <laughs> and then of course i'll ask you the same on the coco i mean you've, you've had a very limited scope of the coco so far because basically the launch was september october of 1980 and uh, 81 i mean third party stuff didn't start coming out till february i think it was the very first one so there's not a lot and people are learning the new chips and stuff too so what, what are your high and low points out of, the, out of those so far the the first one, like I mentioned before, was a smack in the face of Dino Wars when I realized that I'm playing. What, what actually is funny because I played it two times. 
the first time I didn't realize what was happening because I didn't think I had, had even control of the dinosaurs. I thought it was an <laughs> educational title. <laughs> and then whenever I played it again, I realized, wait a second, this is this is like Primal Rage back in 1980. It's two dinosaurs fighting. There's even health bars. And when I realized what was happening, you know, you roar and you try to trip them up and you can, you can move forward and backward in the background. Uh, I thought that was really impressive. And then the other one uh, was skiing. Uh, skiing for uh, that, that we've checked out this year is uh it, it, it's i didn't think it was possible to have that kind of sprite scaling uh who is that is that mike potter who's the one that or is, uh, robert, oh, robert kilgus kilgus yeah so <laughs> d- programming that and doing even the slopes up and down and uh where you can even stop you can uh, lean back and just move left and right across the screen i think you even mentioned in the chat how you can just go off <laughs> off the rails if you want to far away from and, the, the and, course and that, what about the crowd at the end and the crowd, yes, the crowd <laughs> scales in too. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that that was way too impressive, and that'd be for any computer game because um, we've seen a few people dabble with like wireframe or three D graphics, but no one's tried to hit on something that, that impressive. We've even seen on the the TRS eighty, not not the Coco, but the TRS eighty has uh, their version of Battlezone, which I forget the name off the Is top. That of Armored my head. Patrol or something like that. That's right, yeah, Armored Patrol. Yep, and that that was just impressive that the TRS eighty did that. Uh, so th- th- I guess I, you could add that to the list of a game you couldn't believe uh, whenever you played it. Yeah, that wouldn't impress me. I remember a guy at school had a Model 3, I think, at the time, and he showed me that. I was like, I, I didn't think a Tier City Model 1 or 2 <laughs> could do that either. And and Nick Marenis, who is on our panel here from Australia, he's he's primarily a Coco uh, programmer now and has been since about 84, but he started on the Model 1 and 3, and he's had a couple hit games on, on that platform that you'll, you'll be hitting in the 80s too, so... Awesome. If you have any questions for him, uh, now you've got your contact. Yeah, great. Assuming Nick's still awake right now. <laughs> I'm still awake. Still okay. <laughs> okay. And then I wanted to ask you a bit on the preparation for the show. So um, about how long did you do research getting facts ready and, and finding manuals and downloading stuff before you actually launched the, the show? Like, was this months or was this weeks or... Well, I've been amassing and collecting. Uh, I, I would say the research has happened once I lost most of the physical. So I'd started doing it and uh, collecting and researching since. When was that? About 2005. So I've been uh, uh, going and trying to get scans and uh uh, going to different databases and finding as much information as I can for a certain system to to collect for it, and uh, so 2005 has been since since then just getting more and more and bigger and bigger. Whenever I decided to do the show, uh, I went even harder because this was just a hobby, having fun on the side doing it, and then I started to go even farther researching, trying to get as much as I could. And now that I do the show, the original formula was I wanted to react. To it, so I have Launchbox. I wanted to have Launchbox do the filter, and then it tells me what the next game is, and I don't know. So I experience what the next game is with everybody else. And uh, nowadays, I have switched it up because I started to find too many games crashing. <laughs> yeah, you want to make sure they work first. Yes, so I, I'm now making sure that they work correctly uh, before we go on on the live show. So it's not a complete reaction. Um, when I do have guests, though, the guests are 
they, they, they come on and they don't know what to expect. But part of the draw of the show is you're getting lumped into a certain year and you're getting to experience what came out, what was the newest release. We're going to see that a lot when we get to 1982 because I've now, I've now spent a, uh, what is it, the last two years, Curtis went on 1982. So I had prepared and got all this stuff ready and then I just kind of said, just go, just go, start the show. But with 1982, I, uh, I worked really hard to make it as accurate as possible, finding the release date. So I've gotten a little more, more stickler on when they came out. Uh, and I had to use some like common sense. Like for example, the uh, ZX Spectrum comes out in April or uh, it, people say sources sometimes say April 23rd. You know, you could, you could go back and forth on the exact date, but if I know that the Spectrum came out in uh, April 23rd, then I know that when, when people say the game games for the Spectrum came out in 1982, but they don't know where in 1982, I know by common sense it couldn't have been released in January, February, or March. So I use kind of like clues like that to help me out. And then I also have been just browsing magazine publication after magazine publication, articles of when they say it was available. So whether or not it's true or not, I'm trying to find the first available release date so that whenever we we, we play a game, it's getting as close as it can to the other releases at the time. So that um, we're, we're, we're kind of comparing... Uh, uh, what's happening rather than lumping them all at the end saying they were released at some point. I, I, I want to, uh, if I could, I'd want to experience 1982 in order every game exactly when the release date is. So you can have a, a really good idea of that context. Yeah. And actually finding your channel some months ago uh, is what spurred me to get back into my timeline on my, my site too. Cause I started that years ago. And I did 1980 because it was like six games. And then I started doing 1981 and then just like, oh, it's too much research. And yes. Screw it. <laughs> but now that you've actually spurred me to help you and I've been trying to get you as many release dates as I can, it's actually helped me get my own site. So it's a double purpose here. I'm kind of doing it for my own self, but it's kind of the kick in the ass I needed to get back onto it. So thank yeah, you, you for that. You're welcome. You've been a really big help getting the, the Cocoa releases down. And it's helped me um, try to find magazine publications to get the articles because I'll uh, I'll find an ad. It'll say you know like the uh, uh, the Atari uh, eight hundred has a game that's available in July of uh, nineteen eighty two. But then I'll find another magazine publication that also says it's going to be available in June. So I'm, what I'm what I'm what I'm doing is I'm just picking what's the earliest that someone says it's it was available to buy or purchase and then use that to hopefully get them the, the, the most accurate release date. So you're yeah. in 82 still? I'm no, in 81. 1981, oh, finishing 81. up uh, playing all the games we couldn't find a definite release date for in alphabetical order. Okay. And you're on the S's. Ask, I was going to ask you what you thought of the MC-10, but uh, that's further along yet. And I suppose yeah, you that's, that's uh, have any idea what it's like. Summer of 83, I think, that comes out, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. I think a lot of those ads... And the release dates were, we hope it's out by then. That's yeah. true. I've, I've hit that. <laughs> and there's some that have really long delays, like Dungeons of Daggerath. I mean, the copyright date, if you look on the screenshot of the of the you know the game when it starts up, is 1982, which is when they originally programmed it. Yep. But then Tandy said, you know, this is too big. It's going to require a 16K prom, and we don't want to pay for that. So drop it down to 8K, then we'll sell it. And that actually took them months because it was over 9K and they had to like crunch the game down 12.5% in size, cut pieces out, decide what to cut out. 
so yeah, they ended up being delayed. I think it didn't actually go on sale until July of 83. So like six months later. So it, yes, it's, it's hard been, to pin those down sometimes. It's been very, very difficult. Um, uh, it, whenever I come across a game and I think that the release date is a certain date, it frustrates the hell out of me. Whenever s- someone says from their publication, it's going to come out in 82. And then someone says, no, it's 83. And the, one of the big ones was War and Robinette's Adventure on uh, the VCS. Because Warren Robinette has a story of when he says it, it came out, but then Atari says it was this date, but then the the the, the manual says this date, and so <laughs> it's like yep. it, 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 Warren uh, Adventure could have come out 1970, 1979, or nineteen eighty. So it, it could have been any one of those uh, years if you, if you look at everything on the internet. But but that's not the uh, only. I wish game. I could remember because I remember a friend of mine got it at launch. Uh, I wish I could remember what year that was. I was still in elementary school, so it would have been. Mid eighty or earlier, but that doesn't really help you between seventy nine and eighty. Yeah, but but I've I've experienced that with games. They I can't find the exact release date, so I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to get uh, your example, get magazine publications to say when it is, rather than just go by the manual or the the boot up of the system. Yeah, yeah, because those sometimes are off by half a year to a year, depending on. Right, especially uh, like uh, Mark Siegel's mentioned it too, because I actually asked him after I'd found your channel, we were trying to figure out dates. And he was mentioning, like, if you submitted games to be sold through Radio Shack and Tandy, that basically if you were doing a cassette or disc-based game, you might get a three- to six-month turnaround because you have to get the manuals made and print the discs or make the discs or cassettes or whatever. But he said cartridge games add another three months because they have to do a lot more quality control testing on the actual hardware and stuff that goes into the cartridge and get the plastic moldings done and everything else, too. So he said that those just take longer. And I'm assuming that's probably the same with other companies that sold, you know, cartridge and cassette and disc-based games type thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's yeah. just for computers. Computers, we can actually get publications. Arcade, that's the that's the tricky one. When, yeah. when, the, when was the game available and in what region was it, was it available first? Because uh, a lot of times people are pointing out when it was available in North America or the United States. But this game was by Sega. That means it was in Japan. When in, in Japan could yeah. you first play it in the arcade? It's been tricky. Yeah, and sometimes that can be like a year or two difference. So. Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah. Jeff, now, when did I'm, you, when, I've been trying... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Ron. When did you find our... Um, Coco, it was probably Coco Talk back a ways. When, what, when did you find her? Did you hear about us? Or oh, did through, you ever watch uh, Curtis? the show? Uh, uh, Curtis uh, mentioned it to me, and um, uh, whenever he started to help me with the dates of the color computer... He brought up his uh, a channel, and he even—I think he sent me—he sent me an invite before, and I was like, "Well, I'm uh, not able to really uh, spend a lot of time away because I think you heard in the background some kids running around. So it's uh, uh, it's it's a little hard for me to just get away and do a, a, a few hours uh, from the show." But uh, it was from Curtis. Okay, thanks, Kurt. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and speaking of, I've, like, I've been trying to help you as much with the Cocoa stuff because, of course, I have the uh, the secondary reason of it. It's spurring me to get my stuff, you know, done as well. Um, do you have a lot of other helpers that are helping you that are, you know, say specialists on certain other systems or that are helping you with getting some of the dates or finding games, et cetera? Or are you pretty well a solo show? I don't. Um, I have a couple that are sending in information like email but uh, or, or chats because uh, – uh, when I post on YouTube, people comment and I get some help like, oh, really? That's interesting. And they'll send me a link and I'll go look for that. So they're not dedicated for a certain system. I would love to have uh, a contact in Europe, uh, but um, uh, for like the ZX81 or a contact in Japan, because uh, one thing we also do on the show is we read the ma- we do read magazines. 
uh, for the time. And so um, I have some of the more popular ones like uh, uh, Gaming Illustrated and Analog Computing and Atari, uh, like the, the stuff for more, mostly consoles. So uh, we, we, we even discussed, you know, having Rainbow Magazine on yeah. there. And I said, well, I can't really add any more because I already... If I keep if I keep saying yes and adding more, it's just going to go on forever. But um, whenever we go through magazine publications and we're we're, we're reading what is a, a available at the time, that, that's where I also get some information from from those magazines. But I would love to have someone dedicated for the other systems because I'm having to pin them down myself uh, uh, the, the release dates or information on those. Um, the and, and on that note, the, another reason I wanted to do this is because. Everybody has the system they love it's, uh, because uh, I, I've already seen everyone has websites they make. I mean, Curtis, you made your own website for the Cocoa. That's 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 the the computer. And every, and there, there's lots of people out that have their that their dedicated computer. There, there's a TI-99 website where I found a lot of stuff because this person was dedicated to the TI-99 and they have everything about the, the, the TI-99 4A. And then there's also people that are the Bally Astrocade masters and they have everything about the Bally Astrocade and information on the Bally Astrocade. So there's like a database of someone that's dedicated to just that system. There's a de- database dedicated to the, the Coco. And one of the draws of doing this show is I wanted to bring them all together. I wanted to have everything all together and being played in order of release. So you can kind of get a, a, a great idea of the, seeing the different games that came out rather than just be on a system. You see everything uh, work, work, work no, not work together, but you, you see everything compared to what, what, what else was available all over the world as it came out. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I remember some of that because back in the day when you had generic magazines like Electronic Games Monthly, which covered all consoles and home computers, you had Creative Computing, Byte Magazine, and others that, I mean, Byte didn't really cover games much, but Creative did a fair bit. And you get to read a review of like Star Raiders for the Atari 800, and here's Plant or Project Nebula for the Coco, which is a Star Raiders clone. And they would actually would compare them themselves. So you kind of got this feel like what's happening in the others. And as I mentioned on the show before, my high school... On Fridays during the summer or spring summer, we actually would have people bring in like we had Apple II Plus as, as our computer lab, but people would bring in their own home machines on Friday afternoons, evenings, and we would stay at school and all play each other's games. So I'd get to play on this guy's TI-9 and this guy's Atari 400 oh, and this guy's cool. Apple II. And that was awesome because you get to say, oh, my, but Donkey Kong's better than yours. And, well, right. my Space yep. Invaders is better than yours type thing. <laughs> the whole you know, that's school a, ground wars. Yes. And the, the, the magazine, I loved the magazines that had everything. All together, so that's like the, what I want to do with the show, and that's that's a blast. That that's essentially what I want to do. I want to be able to see how many Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong clones have we seen so far, and and the, <laughs> the ones you've never heard of before. I want it to. Be, I I love being surprised by what was out there that uh, I w- I wasn't aware of. Yeah, you'll be getting three of them on the Coco One Eighty Two. Just to tell you, Donkey. Oh wait, I I, I, I remember now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Now, we're nearing the end of the two hours, and you said you've had a pretty hard out at two. So I do have one last question, which actually is a question for you to us. Uh, Do you have any questions about games on the Coco or about the Coco in general for any of us? Um, What is it that draws you to the color computer? Like, why is this? What is special about the, the, the color computer compared to what else was available at the time? Is it only because that was the first one you had, or is it because the... uh, uh, were, there's something were there the other ones had. available? <laughs> <laughs> we had a Actually, radio shack. Well, Mark, for that one, you want to go around the panel? Because I'd be interested to hear other people's views on that, too. I know what uh, mine is. I'll save myself for last. Yeah, let me get back over here. Ooh. Oh, David Ladd rejoined us. 
Uh, what do you mean rejoined? I've been sitting here listening attently. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Got to find all the right buttons here. Okay, now we got a panel back. Okay. um, I'll let you pick the order there, Mark. Well, we'll do the order. It comes up on my screen. Um, So, Marco. What was the question? Sorry, I was multitasking. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Not very well, then. (laughs) Yeah, obviously. (laughs) Task switching. Now, his his question was basically, what what makes us stick with a cocoa? Was it uh, because it's our first love, because it was our first machine? I know in your case, that's definitely not the case. It is definitely not. So, yeah, (laughs) I got into the cocoa in 2012 with a cocoa 3 new inbox. Uh, But I'm an Apple guy. I've had one since 83. Uh, my parents still have it and they're playing, they're going to get it to me one of these days, but I have a bunch of other Apple twos, Apple twos and stuff. And then the Commodore, I have an SX 64 supportable. So I'm a multi-platform guy, but I, I stick with the cocoa because this is a great community, way more interactive and way more friendly than the Apple community, which is pretty good too. So, but I like these guys. I've been hanging out with them for you know six years now. So yep. anyway, this is my family, even though, you know, I'm a transplant. <laughs> Okay, uh, Curtis, you're next. No, I'm saving myself for last. Okay, uh, Ron. Uh, MC10 first, then uh, I bought a Model 1, and I stuck with uh, the Cocos because, you know, I went to a user group um, in our hometown, and we could copy files like mad. So gaming was not as important to me because I was in the sign business, and I used my computers in the sign business, uh, I used to actually use applications and, um, I would, uh, digitize buildings for, uh, my, uh, sign business and show a customer how his sign would look on the building before he, he, um, bought the sign. You know, I do, uh, uh, proposals and invoices with, uh, deskmate and, um, telewriter and, you know, so I use the computer. And I've always had a color computer in my house up and running, at least one, maybe many sometimes. And so um, that's why I love the machine. Plus, Radio Shack was close by. And really, I I never, even to this day, I've never really seen or touched uh, Apple, Apple One, Apple Two, Apple Three, any of the Apples. Uh, I can hook you up. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I wouldn't even know how to... start a program on their machines so i only know what i know it's easy it's it's fun to watch on tv you know a program that shows some of this other stuff and it's like what you do jeff and um it's interesting but um you know i just so for you it's, it's kind of the first love thing because that was the first one you really got into yeah, and, you, know, and I, you know i did pcs i used to build pcs back in the day especially for family and friends and um so i've had that and still have PCs today, but that's that's about it for me. Okay, uh, Rick. Yeah, my first computer was a teletype, so I was always after the most computing bang for the buck. I migrated to the Cocoa because OS nine and sixty eight oh nine CPU, and there were all these registers and stuff that I never learned to manage properly. But it was a fun ride. So, <laughs> okay, uh, Ken. Well, my first computer was the Coco 2, and then when I got back into uh, collecting retro stuff, uh, 
Curtis tricked me into being on this show, and you guys haven't let me go since. <laughs> yeah, we're expecting you to join the panel too, Jeff. Just kidding. <laughs> I think you're busy enough. Okay, I guess I'm up next. Uh, I mean, I started with the uh, with the time at Sinclair, but uh, Coco was pretty much really all I remember even being available. But then I also was working for Tandy at the time, so kind of stayed with it, never really looked at anything else. Uh, let's see. David Ladd. Oh, this is going to be loaded. Let's see here. Um, <laughs> let's, um, no, that comes later. Uh, so the Coco was my first. Um, it was a Coco 2. Um, I got it for Christmas. Um Actually, at first when I got it, I was kind of disappointed because the school, my the middle school I was going to, had Apple II's in the library. So that's what I was kind of expecting I'd get because the teachers were pushing my parents to get me a computer. But after I started using the Coco, it was um, the basic was better than what I had experienced on the Apple II. So I actually loved it after I started messing with the basic and one of the cartridges my parents got me was Ed Tasm plus. So I started tinkling, <laughs> tinkering with assembly, right. You know, it was, right off it, the bat too. So it was, it was educational, right? Oh yes. I loved it. <laughs> um, but you know, there was, uh, uh, three different color computer clubs here in the Omaha area. Um, and you know, the community was great here. Um, and then when I started getting into BBSing, my parents were unhappy about that the, because where I lived, everything was long distance. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I was getting cocoa stuff. Um, a friend of mine, um, he was on Delphi. So he managed to get me, this is where the floppy stuff comes in for you, Nick. The high density oh, no. mod for the um, first floppy controller for the Coco. So uh, I spent like a week getting the chips and, you know, doing all the chip stacking and doing the high density mod to the, 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 what was it? The 26 3022, the 12 volt controller. Oh, oh that was a great hardware project. And that's great. the other I'm thing that's great talking. about the Coco is. All the things that you can do with the cocoa that was hardware experiments. You know, um, one of the people that was at my school, they did model rocket launchings. They made their own PCB that plugged into the cartridge slot so they could launch rockets. You know, there was just so much stuff that I saw that the people in the cocoa community was doing that, you know, I didn't see, you know, most of the people I saw that had like a Commodore 64. Most of those people I saw were playing games. You know, so it's like here it was like everything. <laughs> so okay, and I'm still Excellent. here. <laughs> and last but not least, Nick. Thank God, David's finished. Um, <laughs> um, well, I was always a Tandy. I was that little snotty kid that would always uh, rock up at the uh, Radio Shack store because I just loved all the. Uh, electronics the toys the gadgets and uh the this store had a TRS-80 model one 
that was my first exposure to a computer at all. And uh, I just kept going to the Tandy store and playing it, programming it. And I just fell in love with it and just bought one myself, started writing games. And that led to the color computer and I'm still here. So, yeah, I just, yeah, just, I, I was a Tandy guy all, all, all along. I just loved the whole um, electronics thing. And games were just great. Okay. So over in the uh, chat, um, let's see. Uh, Daddy Burrito is certainly the first one I owned, but uh, spent lots of hours with it. Uh, can can make it. Only had one. Couldn't afford to get anything else. Um, That's a good reason. Another way to say it, it's our roots from Daddy Burrito. Uh, Jay Jones, least expensive way I could have a multitasking OS at home. And Fred Provencia, why, why I love the Coco. It's version of basic was superior to other systems Two, the 6809 was superior to other eight bits at the time. Three Raider shack stores were better support than other systems. Number four, OS nine. That's excellent. And then yep. I guess I guess to do my summary, which is basically a combination of everything that's been previously said, but uh I, I first used a pet in school the first year I ever used a computer in seventy nine at the Apple II Plus. Like some others had mentioned, I was hoping to get an Apple II Plus at home until my parents discovered the price. Because it was like twelve hundred to two thousand bucks to get one and the cocoa was five hundred and forty nine bucks. So I kind of sold that. I almost got a pet because they were I ended up selling the pets off when they bought apples at the schools and they were offering for 150 bucks which was dirt cheap, but they only had two of them on for sale. And by the time I, I managed to convince my parents to actually agree to that, they were sold. <laughs> so that was just the luck of the draw. But I mean, in my case, it was because it was a very well-rounded computer. As many others have mentioned, it had a really good basic, one of the best, had one of the basic, or the base, best basic manuals I've ever seen on any 8-bit micro. Um, the CPU at the time, I didn't know how powerful it was, but I mean, there's a reason Williams used it for a lot of their big games. Um, because it was the most advanced of the eight bits. Um, OS nine when it came out, multi-user, multitasking, preemptive multitasking OS came out in 1983 for the Coco. I did been out already for other six and nine, you know, big big business systems uh, since 1980, but I didn't even, even realize it even had that power. And then the Coco three when it came out, when they finally added in the 40 columns and 80 columns and higher graphics and stuff that was more competitive with, you say Atari ST or something like that, and and the OS got windowing and stuff too that uh, actually multitask better than windows 95 did at the time this is the reason we ended up using it at work for 10 years instead of windows we used windows as a terminal <laughs> to log the coco because we had eight ports serial ports on our coco at work that uh, we had terminals all over the, the building including pcs so it, it, it's it's the fact that it's it's um advanced cpu advanced operating system Decent gaming machine. Is it the best? No, it didn't have hardware sprites. It didn't have a separate sound chip. We did kind of come up in the middle with sound. We actually had a DAC instead of just raw one-bit sound that some of the other machines had. So it was capable of doing some good stuff if you took the time to program it. Um, but a decent games machine, not the best, not the worst. Uh, there's some pretty good stuff on there, some innovation. The the fact that we were kind of our own isolated island, even at Radio Shack, because everything else was you know Z80 based, model one, two, three, four, et cetera. We, we kind of did our own thing right from the word go. The magazines kind of did their own thing right from the word go. Like we kind of became our own community and uh, we all supported each other. We were always the underdog. And I, I kind of like that whole mentality thing too. So 
Uh, in my case, it's it, in general, it's because it's such a well-rounded machine. It's a good game machine. It's a good programming machine. It's a good hardware hobbyist machine. I personally didn't get that side of it, but I know tons of people that did. Um, it just was a well-rounded machine that kind of filled all the niches at once. If you wanted one platform that you could take your pick, what kind of special do you want to get into? You could pick any of them and you could go for it. Whereas some other machines, you kind of had to focus on a couple of its core competencies. And then the other stuff, you'd probably want something else. And the Coke was one of the few that I know of that actually kind of tried to cover all the bases at once. Do you remember back in the day? Um, well, I in, in like 79, I was in the side business with my dad. And um, this guy came by. He was selling um, uh, changeable uh, uh, sign system. On the top of his van, he had a panel. And it had, you know, thousands of lights on it. And he was controlling the lights with a uh, Model 3 computer inside the van with a um, generator running. And um, he was trying to sell for, like, um, airports and stuff to have uh, a sign with a message scrolling across. And it would work on the Model 3. And um, that time, when we saw that, we were totally flipped out about the fact that they took something like a computer you control and make a sign work with it. And you could say anything you wanted it to say and it would scroll across. That was pretty awesome. And yeah. that's what kind of got me into computing was the fact that, um, you know, right from Radio Shack, they took the machine and they interfaced it with a large electronic display. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Bill Noble, my partner in crime with Nitrous and the operating system that we've worked on, uh, he did that a custom job of doing that too with LED lights. We had a cocoa cartridge with some built-in ROM to control the signs, and he actually was selling it in, in several places here in Saskatchewan. So, yeah, he, he did the same thing. Does that kind of answer your question, Jeff, or did we go That was that? excellent. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, any final questions for Jeff before we let him go? And, and Jeff, if you have free time, which you probably don't, but if you do, you feel free to hang on the panel if you want to stick around or you know, maybe hop in the chat there and fire off any other questions you can think of or comments on anything else we discussed on the rest of the show. But uh, I want to thank you for coming on and, and agreeing to be on and promoting your show. It's a, it's an awesome show. You guys, if you haven't checked it out, you should. Um, but if there's any last questions for Jeff from the panel or if there's any others from the chat, we'll probably go through the panel first because the chat's got a bit of a delay. No, well, not for me. Potty break time. <laughs> that's not a question ron <laughs> tmi ron tmi i'm just gonna see if the chat's gonna catch up here my is saying no dick smiths nearby I, I don't know if he's talking to nick about that nick remembers the dick smiths but I don't see anything. No, no, nothing. Nothing in chat. Okay, so uh, before you go, Jeff, you want to just do an official plug for your show? Let us know where you can find it, uh, when it's on, etc. Yeah, uh, thanks very much. It's Chronologically Gaming. So the, anytime you look up Chronologically Gaming, either on YouTube or on Twitch, Instagram, I'm not even a social media guy. So I have I have my wife doing the social media stuff. But I, anywhere you look up Chronologically Gaming, you can find us. And uh, they're, they're, uh, if, if, I, if I need to, I'll send some links to you, Curtis, to put uh, for either the spreadsheet or where you can find the show. But it's every weekday we're live doing the show from uh, 9 p.m. Central to 10 p.m. Central. 
Yeah, and you are interactive in the chat. I will mention that because some people just broadcast and that's it. But you actually do react to the chat room during the show each each day. And I the YouTube is basically I, your replays you put up, I think, the next morning or that evening or when did this uh, Next up? morning on YouTube, yeah. I, I would say I'm, I am I fail because I'm usually in broadcast mode and every now and then I'll look over <laughs> at, at the chat. But uh, yeah, I do the best I can. Well, it's just hard to do when you're a one-man show, but uh, but you do react, which which is good. I mean, that's one of the things I like about our show is that it's very interactive in the chat. Excellent. Well, thanks okay. very much. Great seeing everybody. I appreciate it. Hopefully we'll do this again. Yeah. Well, if you, if you come across a Coco game that really strikes you at some point in your journey through the years and you want to come on and quickly discuss it, we have a game on segment we do every day, every week too, that Ken Waters is in charge of. And we have a game of the week. We have to actually have two going simultaneously. And we have a live gameplay on Thursdays. If you ever had time to do that, that'd be awesome too. But I think it overlaps your show somewhat. So yeah. <laughs> you have to pop in quickly. Plus, you're probably getting prepped for it anyway. But anytime you want to come on uh, to talk about some you know gem that you found or something, or or if you have time to pop into a live Thursday, if you want to try one of the games a little bit outside of the year you're in, or maybe we happen to coincidentally do one that's in the year you're in, feel free to pop by. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you all. Have a great one. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, let's take a break. Don't miss the 31st annual Last Chicago Cocoa Fest. April 22nd and 23rd, 2023. Go to tandylist.com or blendsideccc.com. Register today. Don't miss it. Tandylist.com, blendsideccc.com. Register today, April 22nd and 23rd, 2023. Don't miss it. April 22nd and 23rd, 2023. BlendsideCCC.com. The Coco Nation Show is an unscripted, live, and interactive broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own, and not necessarily those of the Coco Nation Show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds are encouraged, and a sense of humor is recommended. Thank you for being a part of the Coco Nation. The Coco Nation Show would like to thank the following patrons. Alex Gayer, Brendan Donahue, Brian Walsh, Brian Weasler, Karen Ascom, Daddy Burrito, Diego BF109, Dinty's Hideaway, Don Barber, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Grant Leedy, John, Boat of Car Schaller, Henry Strickland, Justin Larson, Ken Reichard, Mike Rayburn, Patrick Euland, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, R. Allen Murphy, Retro Tech Time, Rob Inman, Rocky Hill, Steve Batson, Terry Stiege, Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom S., Tony C., 
and William Athing. Thank you so much, patrons. Welcome to everybody's favorite segment, Who's New to Discord? PWZII says, My name is Paul Z. I've fiddled around with Coco's on and off for years. Last few years have been off. I helped Rob Bull set up the couple CocoFests he put on in Pittsburgh and Harrisburg. Mostly have been fiddling with VCC and MAME emulators last couple weeks. Trying to understand how to integrate DriveWire for and figure out how to use that. The previous bios were edited for time. Thanks to, Cruise Mongers, Glenside Computer Club, Knight Beard, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Tandy Color Computer 3, and the Coco Nation patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. Just go to discord.thecoconation.com. Because cocoing is better together. And now, Coco Thoughts by Samuel Gimes. Boulders keep falling on my head. <laughs> And that probably means I will surely soon be dead. This game's not for me, cause I'm never gonna get the diamonds today. I guarantee no points are there for me. That sums up my thoughts in the game, too. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good... Welcome everybody to the Coco Nation Game On Challenge of the Week results video. This week we played Stone Raider 2. We had a total of 9 players. Ron Delvo got a score of 0 when he got stuck right away. L. Curtis Boyle with 50. Mark B. 100. Worm Food 200. Wow, Mr. Dave sixty three oh nine two hundred twenty five. I sucked at this game. <laughs> Rich N two hundred fifty. TJB Chris three twenty five. Canadian Retro Things three fifty. And the number one score this week was Buck Owens with two thousand seven hundred and fifty six. Thank you everybody that played, and we'll see you again next week. The Coco Nation salutes Buck Owens. Yeah! <laughs> wow. Well, good good job, Gimes. That was a good one. I yeah. think the, the Gimes song pretty much sums up what most, most of people us. found with that game. <laughs> I think even Ron Delvo would approve of that one. Yep. <laughs> uh yeah. Not an overly popular game this week. Um, probably because it was very difficult. And yeah, and the I controls were sh shoddy. How's sum that? that up to the controls, yep. Like it was very random on whether you moved, moved one space, moved two spaces. Like I don't know how many times I died by 
yeah, trying to the just joystick move one space and, <laughs> and it goes up two spaces and takes me right into one of the bad guys. But yeah. I mean, I the presentation, the game, the graphics, the yeah. rest of it was fine. It was the controls that really sunk it. And having read the instructions, it sounded like that the game would have gotten really interesting in the later levels with a lot of mechanics that weren't there in the regular uh, boulder games, the boulder dash and bouncing boulders and stuff like that. Yeah. But, yeah, other than Buck Owens, nobody was able to get that far. So, I don't know. Well, well obviously, it only begins. He's no achiever. Looking at these scores, Buck Owens is the only person that actually completed level one. So, it does kind of look like those old pinball games that only went up to 9,000. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I don't know what there is to say about that game other than um would actually probably be a pretty good game if maybe somebody went in and fixed the uh controls on it made it a little more responsive and actually do what you wanted to it would still be a hard game but i don't know what else does anybody have to say about this game <laughs> so was it doing that on uh, all systems or like just the emulators was doing it. Was it doing it on the hardware? Oh yeah. In real, I think it was, I mean, it was doing it to me constantly on my Coco three. So. Okay. Sometimes think, the controls are slightly different on the emulators. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, and, and Nick, maybe you can attest to this because you've more experience with pal than the rest of us do. Um, if they were doing some timer interrupts for keyboard and joystick response based on 50 Hertz versus 60 Hertz that we're getting in North America, would that have caused some of these problems? The controls? No, not really. Like key bounce or no, no. That's okay. Well, oh, because I was using a joystick through the whole thing, and you know, as quick as I could flick the joystick in the up direction, half the time I wouldn't move. About ten percent of the time, I'd move one space, and the other forty percent of the time, I'd move two spaces. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, if it was pushing, you know, the fifty hertz refresh rate, like I only have to redraw the screen, yeah, twenty five times per second. Mac, well, obviously it does less than that, but some whatever percentage of that is for uh, how many you know interrupts of a 60, 50 hertz interrupt for PAL, speeding it up to sixty when you have less time to do the screen refreshes and stuff in between. I'm wondering if maybe that threw it off enough that it was catching it, you know, in the middle somewhere, and that was causing the problems. But is, did anyone uh, run that game on a uh, European Dragon or or Australian Coco? Not that I'm aware of. I don't think most of us even have one. <laughs> I have doesn't one. Mame, doesn't MAME emulate it to 50 uh, hertz? Yeah, I think it has the option. I mean, Actuar might even let you do that, too. I, I didn't try it. Yeah. Actually, it does. Yeah. I'll let you know as soon as I can figure out how to get MAME working. Well, Actuar, I think, does it, too. So that's actually a good, a good, good thing, maybe, if one of us can try for next week just to see if that makes a difference. Like, maybe that is the problem. Maybe it's it's it's... The game was written expecting a 50 hertz V-Sync. Mm-hmm. And if it's trying to time the joystick reads and stuff off of that, and you know, you're actually running it at 60 and the graphics are taking a little bit too long in some cases, but not others or whatever, depending on how you did it, um, that might cause some of these issues we're having. Because I can't see a game getting released commercially that bad of controls that late in the game, because that's an 1886 game. I mean, that's several years after the Dragon stopping me i know like watching the um twitch video that uh steve rasmussen did of his gameplay he 
seems to be able to control it a lot better than I ever could figure out how to do it. So, well, he's in the chat here. So, uh, Buck slash Steve, there, if you want to let us know, did you play that on a 50 hertz setting? Is that why you seem to have better control over it than we did? Come on, Buck, tell us what your secrets are. Yeah, the game. Or, or the was game it just your robotic over. self? You know, <laughs> <laughs> what joystick do they use? And while we're waiting for Buck to answer, I am going to show something else that he found in there. Um, this was in the code as the uh, original title screen. So originally, I think they wanted to call it Dig It, but for some reason they changed it to. Um, so Buck is, Buck is saying in the chat, uh, NTSC Coco 2. Oh, okay. okay. So he's a robot. Okay. That just. Yeah, he's a robot there. So. I guess he's secrets just... out now. And and a digital joystick? Oh yeah, that's another question. Uh, Buck, did you use like a, a stock Tandy controller of some uh, sort, like a deluxe? A, Atari style controller using the Boysen Tech gimmick. So switch based joystick. Yeah, yeah that'd be the with the Might have been uh might have worked a little bit better to uh give you the readings uh, that the for the joystick more definite just one Oh, right. What is it? 47. Yeah. yeah. I I can honestly say I did not try it with my Atari joystick, so maybe it would have worked better. Anyways, um, yeah, I don't know. Any tips or tricks for this game are... Uh, yeah. The only tip I have is if you hold down the joystick button, you can punch out something without moving. Yeah. That, that was helpful. Um, there was a, I think it was um, uh, last week thir uh, Thursday that showed us a, a trick on how to get that gem out of the lower right uh, or lower lower left corner by dropping a rock in front of the uh, 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 moving thing. Yeah, and every time I tried to do that, I ended up killing myself. So <laughs> yeah, me too. That was a tip to tease us into thinking you'd actually succeeded the game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You or I could do that. That looks so simple. Die, die, die. So definitely not one of the better bouncing boulder style games on the uh, color computer, which, as I said, is too bad because it sounds like there's a lot of interesting stuff in the upper levels. So. I'd still be interested if somebody who has a PAL or or can get X were running properly with the PAL 50 hertz uh, system, if, if if that makes an improvement in the gameplay. I'm kind of curious about that now. That or, might make the difference. Or it could just, like, uh, using a digital joystick might work better. Then you don't have the uh, joystick actually reading in the whole motion of moving up yeah, or down. Yeah, it's just, like, far left, center, yeah. far right. It's either on or off. It's not... Yeah. It might be reading it as too wide of a like a variation of where the joystick is, so you can't physically move it fast enough to stop it from moving two spaces. Yeah, that would make some sense. Yeah, I'm kind of curious now, because maybe the game is a bit better. If that turns out to be the case, maybe we'll have to revisit it sometime in the future, right before we do Predator. <laughs> <laughs> right, David? Or do you step away? You know, I'm going to have to check out this game Predator I keep hearing about. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Per I was purposely not commenting on that, Curtis. 
<laughs> okay, so Buck Owens is saying that uh, most Boulder Dash games have kind of a sticky movement feel, and he was wondering if maybe the uh, author of this was trying to emulate that kind of sticky feel of movement. Maybe. I mean, we've we've got two other bouncing boulder clones to try. We've we've done uh, we've bouncing done boulders, right? Bouncing boulders, which was a pretty good game. Yeah, and then there's another one I talked about last week, another dragon one, actually. Yeah. So maybe. So we'll have to visit that one in the future. But for now, I think we've had enough boulders dropping on our heads. <laughs> yep, I have to agree. <laughs> and uh, the other game we're playing this week is Rad Warrior, which is a Coco 3 game by Epix. And, Mr. Jesse uh, Owens. Yep. It. Uh, yeah, another one that has a few issues with how it moves. <laughs> yeah, to me that one it, it plays better. It's still a little bit awkward, yeah. takes some getting used to, but it's not impossible. Which it's, is what. Yeah, it Stone moves good. Like you said, you had told us before, use the keyboard, and it moves really good up, down, left, or right. But when you have to do a diagonal jump. It's very touchy to yeah. get it down. Yeah, I found like you can that. technically use the up arrow and the right arrow to do the jump, but that seems to be a bit flaky. So I usually use the space bar long press to do a diagonal jump. Yeah, and I didn't even know that a space bar long press would do a jump. Yeah, a quick quick hit will fire or whatever, and then if you hold it down, you can actually jump. So Okay. Well, I didn't, think... I, didn't I read the directions? Yeah, I know, but, you know... They were so long, I got bored and stopped listening. <laughs> <laughs> I know that that that's a fun game, and like uh, like we actually saw TJB Chris actually won the game on the live stream. Yeah, on uh, Thursday there, which I have done back in the early nineties, late eighties myself there, and I I remember being in awe of that effect uh, when the implosion happens, but. Uh, even this time, I, I think I got I got the anti-gravity boots, I got the blaster, I got up into the radiation areas a little bit. I didn't get as far as Chris did, but, you know, for not playing the game in 30 years, except for briefly to take screenshots for my site, it actually, some of it came back. I just couldn't remember where everything was, so I'd never, yeah. like, randomly explore. But the critical thing in that one, if you want a tip on, the, on that one, is kind of map out at least roughly so you know where to find things. Like, gravity boots, bottom level... Or second level from the bottom on the far left. You know where to get those. Suit's going to be almost on the far right. The blaster's up over here. And then you got a couple of things you can pick up too. Um, and then also map out where your energy things are. The other tip I can give is that sort of looks like a plant that's firing sideways constantly. If you time it right, and it's easier on keyboard than joystick, you can duck, pop up, walk one or two steps, duck again. And if you get the timing right, you can actually... You walk up and pick up, say, the any or the blaster or something like that, um, or an energy pack if it happens to be in front of it without actually getting hit once, even in your raw form as a human, you know, caveman type person. So that that's another tip I'll, I'll give on that one. But uh, yeah, that that one I had a lot of fun with it back in the day, but it did take a while even then to get used to the controls. The ones that I did it, it seemed to be almost second nature. And obviously, Chris still has some muscle memory for it. <laughs> he wasn't expecting to to win it outright, <laughs> win the game. But if you're going for points, don't go for winning the game right off the bat. Go mine. Mine yeah. for points. You can uh, leave screens and go back and it'll respawn some of the enemies so you can uh, keep killing them. Yeah. 
And I always also, liked that one for the graphics because the graphics actually were very well done yeah. for a 160 mode. So, so if anybody if anybody's starting out playing it, you'll notice you don't have a score. You actually don't get a score until you get the suit. So yeah. um it won't the score won't display until you get a suit the suit. And once you get it, it'll add up your score that you've gotten to that point and then Yep. And for there. those who didn't catch the dramatic reading of the instructions from Mark, anytime that your human's getting injured a fair bit, like when you're running around trying to find things and the suit's not mobile yet, um, if you feel that you're going to be getting close to dying, you may not make it to where you're supposed to, you can run back to the suit and sit in it for a bit and it'll recharge your human's life. And then you can run back out and try to get the, the object again type thing. It's kind of a recharger. So if you can actually get to your suit when you need to, you can actually be virtually immortal. All right. And um, yeah, so that brings us to Thursday night's playthrough where we're playing both these games. And that is, where's that? That's right here. So I think we had uh, basically four. Did we ever have five people playing? I think it was mostly just four. So, uh, yeah, most people were playing uh, Rad Warrior. A couple of us uh, tried a little bit of uh, the... That didn't Stone. last long. No. <laughs> Stone Raider 2. And, by the way, if you're uh, looking for Stone Raider 1, there is no Stone Raider 1. There's just Stone Raider 2, which... I don't know if that was just a joke on part of the, the part of the author to... Uh, I've done that to mess with you. So no, it, might, it might have come out on a on another system. Nope. I, there was a story behind it that was actually mentioned in one of the Dragon User magazines. I can't remember what the story was. I came across it. There was no Stone Raider one ever released. I know there was another game um, done by the same people. Uh, had a different name though. It was the same style layout and everything. It didn't come out on the Coco. It came out on, uh, I think, a Commodore 64. Oh, maybe. I didn't check across other different Yeah, there is another one. If you look it up and do a search, you'll find another one. Very similar graphics, uh, but it improved in areas. Better control? (laughs) I don't know, but visually it was a little bit better. Actually, visually, I didn't find this game too bad. It's... Yeah, very much not, in the genre bad, yeah. of all of the other boulder dash bouncing boulder. Yeah, I mean like the, the graphics and even this this sounds fairly minimal, but it's 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 a well done as far as presentation goes. It it was the controls that killed it for me. Yeah. And for those of you wondering why there's some uh, different colors on the lower right corner, that was TGB Chris. He was playing an RGB locally on his real Coco Three. But his capture device is composite, so some of the colors are a little bit whacked. You'll see anything that was supposed to be gray is pink. All right, so, uh, yeah, that was the live playthrough. So um, Now, Ken, I I wanted to make a note, because I don't think Chris will be playing again this following week when we come to the deadline for Rad Warrior. But if you want to make a note to play that... uh, the winning scene 
when Chris did it. Okay, I should because uh, almost nobody's it. seen that from what I know of. <laughs> so okay, and I actually haven't uh, searched through and found it yet. I just loaded this up. Yeah, I wouldn't do it now because we have another week of it. But uh, just yeah. because that's something, uh, I think ninety nine percent of people playing the game are not going to make it. So I, it'd be kind of cool for people to see the ending of the game. Oh, okay, I will try to remember to cue that up for next week. But yeah, um, as we were saying, this is the live playthrough that we do on Thursday nights at five o'clock Pacific time. So that's my local time. I don't care what time it is for the rest of you. It's five o'clock for me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so if you want to join us, then uh, drop into the Discord channel. We're there. You can just drop into chat or you can drop in to play real hardware, emulator, whatever. We take them all. And you don't even have to play the game of the week. You can play any Coco game. All right. So shall we move on to what is happening for this next week? Now, of course, as we said, that was only the first week of Rad Warriors. So we are playing Rad Warrior for one more week. So submit your scores this week or you can't submit them. And our next game is right here. If anybody recognizes this. I do. <laughs> uh, it's a Coco game. By Adventure International, programmed by Roger Schrag, if that helps anybody. Originally, it is a cross-platform was... game that was on multiple other systems. And it was originally built for the uh, Model 1 and 3. Correct. And then it I was... Rick's... Hey, look at that. There I didn't you have to go. say it. And, and I'm not even looking at the screen at the moment. I'm in the kitchen. As soon as you said Roger Shrag Adventure International, that was the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe this is uh, available on, it's for a color computer, one, two, or three, 16K. Right. There's also a um, Atari 400, 800 version. But uh, yeah, we're playing the Coco version, so I think there's also a few other platforms that have it too. I haven't found it on any other platforms, but uh, my my search <sighs> searching through the other platforms is pretty yeah limited. So I will mention that if you guys want the actual manual for this game, the Atari version of the manual is on the Internet Archive, so you can actually pull that down and get the full details of the game. But basically, it's it's. I think the closest arcade game I can think of would be something like Kicks. Yeah. Because uh, basically you have to fill in a percentage of the grid, but you actually have backgrounds that change as you go between levels. Plus you got certain creatures that you can run over to get extra points. Or if you let them go too long, they'll mutate into a missile that will just kill you. And yeah. then you have to try to dodge around it. And if you stay still too long, your trail will start exploding behind you until it catches up with you. But unlike... Uh, Quicks or quick kicks or whatever you want to call it. Um, when you cross the screen, it doesn't fill in everything below you. It'll only fill in each dot behind you. So you have to manually paint the whole screen. And you can't cross your own. Uh, um, can't cross the streams. You can't cross your own stream. Yeah. So you can actually get yourself trapped and not be able to finish the level quite easily. So. It's both um, 
kind of an action game plus a strategy game. So you have to yeah. uh, think ahead of time. You would definitely want a self-centering joystick for this one. Yeah. Uh, so I just pulled it up on Moby Games here. So the Eryx was ported to the Atari 8-bit, the Commodore 64, Tier City Model 1-3, the Coco, and apparently, according, I don't have screenshots of it, but apparently it was also ported to the Apple II and DOS in 1983. So hmm. I did not know that one of those, but I have seen the C64 version before. Okay. I've seen the Atari 800 version, so I guess I didn't look too closely at the there's just too many Commodore 64 games out there. That's why I couldn't find it. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a fun game. I had a lot of fun with that when I was a kid. That was one of my I wouldn't say my top ten or anything, but it was in my top half of favorite games to play. The other yeah. game that Roger Schrag put out at the same time through Vendor National, which is called Airline, not not in my top half. <laughs> And if uh, Adventure, Adventure International sounds familiar to you, then uh, you probably know it because that's who released the Scott Adams games, right? Yep. That is Scott yeah. Adams. Adventure International is run by Scott Adams. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, Scott, there you go. Adventure International was Scott Adams' con- company. Yeah. So, And they did quite a few Coco games. So they did Airline, Eric's, Sea Dragon, Eliminator, uh, Star Trek 3.5. There's a few others, too, that we haven't actually got anywhere. Like, there's a few other earliest releases by Roger Schrag and a few others that uh, I have not been able to find anywhere. They're not in the archive. I can't find them in my old discs, so there's a few lost ones. Uh, but they they actually, there's a, also even some later ones that got released that I haven't seen. Like, Triad, apparently, was a, there was a Coco version. I've never seen it. Even had a full-color ad in their catalog for it, so... All right, well, that is the Game On Challenge for this next week. And I see that uh, a couple of people can can or can can make it as saying it's like Pepper 2. Eh, kind of. And uh wasn't Pepper 2 an... by Adventure National 2? Ah. I'm not sure. I've only ever played it on the ColecoVision, so I maybe I'm thinking Preppiers. I can't remember. And 8 bits in the basement says it's like looks like Snake. So kind of, yeah. It, it's a bit beyond snake. It's it's more yeah. It's, it's a snaky. bit beyond snake. It's but it's kind of the same thing. You're but you're never growing the bat like the back end of you. You're always growing in it. You're so you're yeah. always you're leaving trying. a trail you can't cross again. Basically, yeah. Good sound effects though. Uh, graphics aren't you know to write home about, but perfectly serviceable. Yep. And it's an earlier game and runs in 16K, so. Yep. And, of course, for those of you who recognize the name Roger Schrag but aren't gamers, uh, he's the guy that uh, took the cartridge version of Ed Tasm and made the first disc Ed Tasm we had. All of his patches. Super patch one, yeah. Yep. Okay, well, that's all I have to say, so how about some Game On News? <laughs> okay, before we get into game on news, I will mention that Jeff, uh, first of all, he thanked uh, us for having him on the show, but he sent me a whole whack of links and stuff. So I'm going to paste, or did I paste them already? I can't even remember now. I think I pasted them in the Zoom chat. So I'll paste them in the regular chat, but there's uh, like how to get to a spreadsheet of every game he's covered so far. Although I direct think links when... to his Twitter, Instagram, Discord, Patreon, 
I think you're not a moderator, so when you paste links, it's just showing up as dots. Okay. Well, I so think I paste them here in Zoom, so somebody else can paste them into the chat then. Okay. Uh, you might also add them to your uh, news notes that you haven't posted yet to the Discord. Oh, I didn't, did I? Shoot. Yeah, way to go, Curtis. <laughs> Bookkeeper, 10% doc of uh, Curtis's pay this week. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Oh, I get a raise oh. right on. Oh, that explains why I couldn't find the information when I went to look when I got on. Jeez, thanks, Curtis. Yeah, I, I noticed, though, before the show, nobody mentioned that it was missing. So that means nobody was paying attention anyway. Yeah, <laughs> are, exactly. Are we supposed to read those? Guilty. Actually, I'll do that right now before I forget. Well, you might as well add those links show. that you got to the those notes so that we got them. <laughs> Yeah, I just added them on the end here. So anyway, the links for all the various things there related to chronological gaming will be available. I just put them up in the chat. So okay, thank you very much, Kim. Let me find Discord. If you want to play the news intro while I'm fiddling around here, Mark, go ahead and then I'll kick into that. Okay, or I can do another commercial. I hopefully it won't take me that long. I just gotta find the stupid channel out of the five billion but we got commercials to burn so push the button frank yeah yeah go ahead hello this is mark siegel product manager for the Color Computer product line and designer of the Tandy Color Computer 3. And I'm proud to be a citizen of the Coco Nation. Shall we play a game? Making games for the Coco for over 35 years. Go to my Coco Games website at www.nickmarentes.com for information and pricing of my later games as well as downloads of many of my older games. Coco 2's got... 
personality, lots of practicality, fun is sensational, learn is educational, Coco to is expandable, so easily commandable, it's programmable, so term exam grammable, just you and Coco to do what you want to do. Coco 2, the color computer with personality from Radio Shack. Sale price for Christmas giving from $149.95. Radio Shack's Coco 2, do what you want to do, just you and Coco 2. When you want the latest in TRS-80, Tandy, Dragon, MC-10, and all of their hardware cousins, no matter what it takes, or where news breaks, from around the world, to your nation, Coco Nation News with L. Curtis Boyle. Idea. I'll get rid of the trash can icon in uh, Nitrous 9 and put a little Kirk on fire. Kirk uh, um, <laughs> on fire icon. So now I'm going to make G-Shell handle anything? animations right on the yeah, main exactly. screen, is what you're telling me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stretch call. <laughs> Actually, before we get into the news here, I wanted to ask Ron Delvo, did you happen to catch the Gimes song today? No, I did not. I think you would actually ah, like it. You would like this one. Play it again. I think again. you would. Play it again? Yeah, I think play it again for Ron. Get the game. All right. Here, here we go. And now, Coco Thoughts by Samuel Gimes. Boulders keep falling on my head. And that probably means I will surely soon be dead. This game's not for me, cause I'm never gonna get the diamonds today. I guarantee no points are there for me. <laughs> What'd you think, bro? Is that one of his better ones? Classy. <laughs> <laughs> one word. <laughs> He's actually doing better, I must say. Yeah, that one's a good one. Yeah, yeah that was. That, that'll go in his Hall of Fame. <laughs> if he has I one. didn't even know he had a Hall of Fame. <laughs> so it's a Hall of Fame of one now? Right now. <laughs> <laughs> He's had a couple others. I think I was mentioned once in one, which I admired. <laughs> okay under the game on news so i uh, just want to mention oh, he played a couple go ahead. this guy Sorry. looks familiar yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i thought if miles would plug his channel the first two hours wasn't enough obviously um so basically he covered a couple of coco games here uh this past week in chronological gaming where he's covering the tail end of uh or the tail end of the games for 1981 so uh, the first one he did was skiing. This is the second time he's mentioned this one now. I don't know where he got the first copy, and I don't know why somebody did this to the game, but somebody hacked it to run in artifacting colors, which means you're skiing in pitch dark, and that is just not skiing. I think somebody was trying to make it look more like a night driver or something, which defeated the whole purpose, because why would you have cheering people at the end at the bottom of the track type thing? Made no sense to me. So I 
I pointed that out to him and he actually played the actual proper white color skiing. Um, so I won't oh, play that, that one because I mean we've all seen skiing. The other was one that he the played Olympics version. What's that? Was that the Olympics version? What do you mean? Well, you know they they sometimes they run a little long and it ends up dark where they're still performing. <laughs> uh, maybe I don't know. Whatever excuse <laughs> they had, it wasn't good. <laughs> Let's be honest there. Uh, but the other one I want to cover here is one that I had never seen before until. I put it up on my site just a few weeks in the last couple of weeks. And it's one of the rare basic arcade games that Aardvark put out. Aardvark at the very beginning of the Coco's life when they started publishing games in May of 81, I think it's the first time they did it, were all adventure games. And then later on when Dave Edson started working from, they brought out some arcade games like Caterpillar, Venture, and uh, Zeus, and a bunch of others. But basically, this was their first attempt at a Coco arcade game, and it's totally text-based. Now, from what Jeff was saying when he uh, covered it, it's actually based on a VIC-20 game that came out um, during that same year, whose name escapes me at the moment. Now, I don't know the exact release date of the VIC-1, so it might have even been the other way around for all I know, because uh, this came out the first half of the year. So I'm going to skip ahead to that one called Slash Ball. Find it here. Uh, right in the middle. Yeah. All right. We're going back to the TRS-80 color computer, and this is Slash Ball. We don't have a box for this one, just a few screenshots. So let's just hop in and play some Slash Ball, released in 1981. I'll fast forward a bit because the beginning he was trying to figure out exactly <laughs> what he had to do. Those are mysteries. Whoa. Player one wins. Oops. Went too far. So that's to the right. Got it. There you go. So you're trying to get it to the barrier in the middle and then serve it up again. So we now can use those or they may hurt us later on. So let's go that way. And then that way. Nope, I went the wrong one. So basically you hit, you hit a key to create a slash right where the ball is, which will change its direction 90 degrees. And you can you know, go. fire it off 90 degrees um, <laughs> no, clockwise or counterclockwise. But the pieces that you put on there stay on the screen as you progress in the level. So you get the formula, how the game So then you're, you're, you're having to deal with all the stuff you previously put on there. You're trying to hit like that target in the middle. Gonna be good. So uh, apparently no, it's somewhat similar to a, a Vic-20 game <laughs> around the same time. But uh, it was a one not wild game concept I'd seen before, but actually it looks pretty interesting. And, you know, very done rudimentary graphic-wise here, early days. To get a really good capture but of the video games, pr pretty cool concept. I hadn't seen that before. Has anybody no, else seen anything no like that? Will we have games struggling for played the uh, Vic Twenty One that he was referring to. This is new. I like it. The closest things I can think to this would be Reactoid has a bit of that same mechanic where you flip the flipper, you know, ninety degrees to deflect the ball in, in both directions where you're trying to aim stuff. And and that game itself is similar to Neutroid by Nick actually. In some ways, by the original Neutroid, not not the Coco one. This yeah. looks like a Jim Jim Gary game. He could port it. It's it's in basic, so it wouldn't be that hard to port. And Jim Gary actually has been kind of following some of these early early nineteen eighty one games that I've been putting on my site lately to kind of coincide with Jeff's channel. And he ported, uh, as we mentioned last week, um, that artillery style game, which name's escaping me at the moment. Which actually runs on the original four K MC ten. Anyway, for those of you who have not actually seen the show there, you got a little bit of a sneak peek at it. Next up, I'm catching up with a site called C P 
CRPG addict. There's a slogan in space, role-playing games. And uh, speaking of Aardvark, he comes back, uh, this one here. Now, he's covered stuff like Paladin's Legacy and Seventh Link and Gates of Delirium and a bunch of other uh, Cocoa games back. He's got some other Cocoa games coming up in the queue, too, so there'll be more to more to see. And he's covering all platforms, just like Jeff is, except he's just covering RPG games. But the one he decided to cover here is called Quest. Now, he played the C64 version of Quest here. So that's what the C64 version looks like. But it's basically almost identical to the Coco, um, except the color of the text, obviously. And it was a bit of a different game because it's... You're leading a party around. You're wandering around this map, you know, similar to an Ultima or whatever type thing. But you're gradually getting better and more powerful weapons. And you go into dungeons and caves. And your eventual mission is to figure out how to get across the river in the center... And then down to this warlock's castle in the lower right corner, and you have to be, have enough, you know, ammo and people to storm the castle and 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 you know win the game that way. And it was a bit of a different thing. It, like Aardvark at this stage was usually doing the really early, you know, text adventure games and basic. I think this is a basic too, but it's it's a bit of a different play, and it's randomized too, which is something else a bit more innovative at the time. So that you don't get the exact same gameplay twice. The uh, warlock's castle is always in the same spot. The river is always in the same spot, but towns and dungeons and the mountains and trees and stuff move around a bit and are partly randomized. So you do get different gameplay each time you play it. But anyway, he does a very deep dive on it, uh, going through the gameplay, et cetera, here. But he mentions like the C64 version came out in 83. The Coco version of the Cure City Model 1 3 version actually came out in May of 1981. So uh, the C64 port was quite a bit later. Uh, Vic 20 got it in 82. Anyway. I thought it was kind of cool. He's covering those, but he's got a couple other ones coming up. In fact, I think he has it on the right-hand side here. Exeter. That's a uh, Coco 3, a Calabeth-style game. Uh, that was actually made in Australia. So hopefully Nick has a ton of insight when he gets up to that one, we bring it up. Oh, that's where my program went. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you've ever done a role-playing game or even an adventure no, game no, of any I sort, have you? No. Uh, I recognize the name Robert Clardy. What's that? I recognize the name Robert Clardy. Apple software. Where are you looking? Oh, Quest campaign clearly inspired by Robert Clardy's Wilderness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, from 79. Next up, this, this is actually the next... Three or four web tabs I've got here, all devoted to one single game. Um, Jim Gary's been working on a port of Cribbage, the card game, for the MC10. Um, this is a, based on one originally done by a person named Shepard Yarrow in 1979, whom I think did it for creative computing, if I remember correctly. But Jim's not that familiar with the game Cribbage, so he doesn't really know how to play test it because he doesn't understand the game that much. So he was posting onto the MC10 group on Facebook that he would like some beta testers to kind of go and give it a shot. And he actually set up this online MC10 emulator here um, that you can pick Cribbage as the game to try and then run in the emulator if you don't have an MC10 yourself or an MC10 dedicated emulator, you can just do it on a web browser. But it looks like all that testing already got done because then he later wrote in a blog post uh, about the different testing. He had to do some debugging of some of the original code, um, which he's had to do a few times. Uh, there was also a mention that the magazine follow-up article to the original one mentioned that they found some bugs even in the original version of it that they again corrected a few months later. And then he did some other playtesting with some of the other people that actually understand how to play cribbage. They tested it for him and gave him some results, etc. 
Here's the correction that was published a little bit later. And uh, basically, it's up and running now. So uh, he actually has a video. And he's got some of the, the various conversions into different machines here. So I'll just play a few seconds of that. But uh, yeah, if you want a deep dive onto figuring out how to how to convert a game that you don't even know how to play. <laughs> and then getting some of the play testing in the MC10 community to help him out with it. That was pretty cool. Now, I don't know, like Ken, uh, I'm, uh, Saskatchewan's kind of known for being cribbage friendly. I know quite a few of my family played it quite a bit. Yep. Um, so I'm assuming you know how to play it just oh, like yeah. I do. I know how to played play it poorly. a lot of cribbage as a kid. Okay. In the States, there, I'm not sure, or in Australia, do you, did you guys ever play cribbage? Uh, well, I never did. I don't, I'm not aware of it being that well known. No. Okay. Anybody else in the panel? Like, are you guys in the States here? Grand folks did. Now you're making me feel old, Brick. Thanks. You know, Uncle Cotton, all those guys, they played cribbage. My I mean, you're family. older than me, and you're saying your grandparents played. That I means this is like the 1800s <laughs> or something, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, most of the bars that I worked in when I was younger in the prairies all had dedicated crib tables. Yeah, the big 29 or whatever it was. Well, there there would actually be tables with the crib board built right into the table so that people could sit there and drink and play crib. So And drink. And drink and play crib and drink and drink. <laughs> See, I'm more modern. I did that with Pac-Man, the tabletop version. You just set your drink oh, yeah, on there. That, that was me too. But <laughs> for the old times, the old farmers used to always come in and uh, cheat at crib. They'd always you... see who could cheat the best. Cheat? Okay, that's well, a new one on me. Who could take an extra point here and there? And then at the end of the game, it was always, it was not who won, but, you know, I, I cheated eight points and well, I cheated 11 points. <laughs> <laughs> so who really won? Yeah. That's, that's a moral gray zone, I think. My wife's family plays cribbage a lot. And I've actually been learning the last few months since I got my wife a nice cribbage board, so. I know. Yeah, play a I mean, bit. in four players where you're doing cooperative, like two players on each side, it's actually kind of fun. I mean, I'm not mm-hmm. a great card game player of any sort. I'm not really a fan of playing any card games because um, I suck at it. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's it's fairly simple. The hard part is is trying to figure out all the points with all the different combinations you get to get points. And then I think, remind me if I'm right on this, Ken. But I think the rule is that if you missed counting some points, your opponents got them instead. Yeah, if opponent, if an opponent could uh, say, "Okay, you missed that 15, I get the two points." Sir. Yeah. Isn't yeah. this why they invented the automatic bowling lane, though? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I do know there's a pretty kick-ass version from what my mom says of this on iOS because she plays it all the time. It even allows network play against people all over the world. But. I'm glad he got it out, though. I'm glad he actually got some help from multiple people in the MC10 community on, on Facebook that volunteered to try his earlier versions on that emula- online emulator on his site and kind of figured out, you know, it's, it didn't count these points correctly or this is wrong or whatever, and he actually got it all fixed up, and it seems to be running okay. So if you're a Cribbage fan on the MC10, you go ahead and grab it, and uh, if he saves it in ASCII, you can probably run on the Cocoa pretty easily, too. Okay, next up. Uh, the only way is OLED display on YouTube. Did a, a rather quirky little video here. Um, he goes through in alphabetical order and picks one game for the Dragon 32 or 64 or Coco, as you can see in this particular one here. 
and goes alphabetically up to W. Why he stopped at W, I have no idea. Um, but he just decides to show a shot of the cassette with the cassette artwork. Um, and just, you know, kind of goes through each letter. Um, I will ask you guys, did you want to see the whole two and a half minutes or should I just play a couple of seconds of it? Couple of seconds. Yeah, I think a couple of seconds. Okay. Yeah. So I'll play a couple. So there's Aquanaut 471 for the A from Microdeal. There's Bean Stalker by Microvision. That was a uh, Load Runner style game, if I remember. Cashman, of course, a rather famous one for us here from uh, Computer Shack Dr. Mitchon. Anyway, it just kind of goes through. Like I said, I don't know why he stopped at W because then they missed like Zaxxon and Whirlybird Run. Or I guess they could have done Whirlybird, but um, you know, there's some games that started with the Y and stuff too that could have been covered. I can't think of any games that started with the next top of my head, but but was Zaxxon on on cassette on a on a cassette? Yeah, I thought, I thought, that's how Microsoft Datasoft originally sold it before Tandy. Oh, I thought he's just showing uh, uh, cassette cases there. Yeah, well, uh, Datasoft themselves, when they sold Zaxxon directly before Tandy picked it up, they sold it on cassette. Even Tandy sold Zaxxon on cassette. But not in a um, cassette jewel case, right? I think they had a box. Um, well, Tandy one did have a you know big plastic thing. Yeah, I don't know how they sold it when they sold it directly through Datasoft. I don't know what kind of packaging. Have. Actually, Mark might know because he was at Datasoft and Tandy, so... I honestly don't know. Anyway, it's a very interesting little concept video to go through. And and some of the artwork I'd not seen before. Uh, a couple of games. Most of it I had. And it's, it's very different seeing you know, what the uh, UK version of the artwork looked like compared to ours. Yeah, and we next know up, it was better. Ch- What's that? We know it was better. Yeah, in almost every case. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, on the games section here is a channel that I've not seen before. It's called A Gaming Channel by LR. And he's doing a bunch of retro games of all kinds of systems. I just highlighted his, his Dragon 3264 page. And these are long play videos, like 10 minutes to half an hour. Um, now, some of them lately, he's been actually putting in the actual name of the game itself. And then what his score was, etc. So you can kind of see what you're doing. The earlier ones, he just put his score and the date. The original recording was, I think, is what this other part is. But he just put these up in the last 10 days. Um so you have to like look at the screenshot and try to figure what you want to play because the score doesn't tell you what game it is. So, but he had a couple of interesting ones in there. There's a few that I'd not seen before, um, like this one here. I don't think I'd seen this one. I've seen, but not in action. I just seen screenshots. Uh, that one's uh, big red or big red minis or something like that. It's kind of a 3D Pac-Man. Anyway, he's covered a few of them here. So uh, I don't know if he's planning to continue on with more Dragon games because he's switching between all kinds of consoles and other home computers scattered in the 80s and 90s. But if you want to check out his channel, it's in the show notes on Discord. And that's it for the game on news. So we'll switch on over to the regular after I bring my window up so I can see it. This is where we get a bit nerdy. Oh, we love nerdy. (laughs) Really? Hey, you're seeing that? Fun with yep. Trial Division? Yep. The author of this article is actually in the chat last time I looked. Uh, it's James Jones, formerly of Microware. So basically, this um, is going through the uh, benchmark. <coughs> Excuse me. 
from Interface Ace Age Magazine, blah, 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 uh, that we covered a few weeks ago. It does initial speed tests of Microsoft Google 3 Basic and then Basic 9, which I'd done as well. This is a cross-platform benchmark. But then he goes to the benchmark itself to figure out where the benchmark, the way it's written, is not very well optimized. And man, he managed to crunch it down. Now, the purpose of a benchmark for something like this for cross-platform is you don't want to change the way the code works. Otherwise, you're not comparing apples to apples. You're just you know, saying, I, I can program better than this guy. And, you know, they try to pick a benchmark that's basically lowest common denominator. So, you know, certain computers have certain languages that you know, don't have certain functions or whatever. So you have to kind of make something that works on everything. But uh, it's a pretty good deep dive onto, uh, you know, how the benchmark is working, what it's trying to accomplish, more efficient ways to accomplish it. And, you know, it goes around with various tries and even discusses specifically that it's a benchmark that, you know, why, why, why he fiddled around with it because he's kind of curious. But the original benchmark on the Coco, uh, let's see if I can find that here. Yeah. So the original color basic version took 759 seconds to do. And then the basic nine version with all the variables staying as reals, which you don't have to for this particular one, it's 153 seconds, so about four or five times faster. And then he starts converting it to integers. And then he starts, you know, modifying the actual algorithm itself to be more efficient, not, you know, duplicating work that didn't need to be done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, he actually did the same change to color basic. So we got color basic down to 1.7 times faster at, at this stage. Uh, basic 9 version, 96 seconds. So one and a half times faster than the original basic 9 version. And then he keeps going and going 27 times as fast as the original type of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a pretty interesting deep dive on, on that kind of stuff. So, um, benchmarks, of course, are artificial. Um, and you know, a lot of the manufacturers started cheating on benchmarks and specifically tweaking chips and languages specifically to make a certain benchmark look better because they knew it would help them sell product. Um, even though in general, that benchmark didn't improve as much as they claimed for that one particular one. So I, I always view these skeptically, but it's interesting seeing, you know, you know, how far advanced Basic 9 in particular was compared. Like we were, you know, getting close to PDP speeds and some of these things. That's a mini. Uh, there was two updates from uh, Tier City Retro Programming, and I'm going to try to get him on the show here after the fest sometime. Um, I'm going to see if I can bring in Alan Huffman for that as well, because I know Alan's interacted with him a little bit too and, and kind of likes what he's doing, you know, the whole learning as you go thing. So he did a little bit of an update. I won't play any of it here. I'll just show the screenshot of uh, his Ultima style game where he's got his little character running around. He originally was trying a concept like this here is a long stream, it's 36 minutes, but it's him kind of thinking out loud what he's going to try to do. And he originally was going to have his little guy walking around with his little sword. He can swing and stuff. These are mountains up in the upper left. But basically, he's going to have the strength of the character, like how many hit points left, as a floating number following the character around. But the graphics slow down enough when he's doing that, because, of course, that's dynamic and has to change, that he's kind of by the end of the stream, he said, no, nah, it's not a good idea. <laughs> this is the kind of programming I do. Pre-planning? What's that? And the next one here is his Tales of Suburbia which is basically, you know, walking around in real life almost. Um, but he's actually finally converted this one to use the P-copy technique so that it restores the background faster than he was, you know, literally redrawing and repainting everything as he went. So I don't know if you guys remember the old version of it. I'll just play a little blip in here in the middle here type thing. I think he's got some music routines in here when you go between rooms a little bit too long. 
I don't know if he's planning on leaving them that way or if he's going to shrink them or maybe he'll give it an option if you've been to this room once before, it's not going to bother playing the music. Uh, but it switches between a text mode to describe stuff and you hit the joystick button to basically examine something. So it's going to be a completely joystick-based game. Um, and it switches back to the graphics mode for walking around. But it does look better if you remember what the old one looked like. I'll explain a little bit here. Now he's taking some time to draw some pretty decent graphics for the, the res he's in, which I think is Penal 1. Now it's still got the green box around the character because of the put. He's even got some animation on the candles on the mantelpiece there. But it's an interesting interface. I mean, he allows you to walk fully around in, in the scene, and it's kind of like pseudo 3D-ish look. Sometimes it's more of a 2D-ish look. To examine things, you walk up and you hit the button like you just, you know, walk into this character and it says your sister and, and wants to play cards, etc. But he's adding little animations and, and the game is running smoother and faster than it was before once he switched it from draw statements to the, the put and p copy method. And uh, I think it looks pretty good. I mean, it, it's it's definitely a different concept for an adventure game than I've seen before, um, especially on the Coco. And uh, I'm interested to see where he takes it. Now that he's learned some of these newer programming techniques and stuff too. So and he's got like, multiple games on the go here. So he's like me, he takes on too many projects and you never finish any of them. <laughs> but I think he's actually finished a few. So he's ahead of me. Ah, this one here. I will play a little bit of the intro, then I'll cut the sound out and let Ken explain because this is a special episode of Canadian Retro Things. Hey there, everybody, wherever you may be. I'm Ken. This is Canadian Retro Things. Welcome. It is time to celebrate a major channel milestone. And I'll let Ken explain exactly what that is. Okay, well, um, I just hit, uh, last week, I guess, I hit 1,024 subscribers, which is 2 to the power of 10. So I decided to do a uh, special for that. A little, little bit different than the people that usually do the 1,000 subscriber special so yeah you're a true computer geek going with a yeah, two to the power of ten million subscribers <laughs> so i basically just uh did this video where i talk a little bit about uh myself answer a few questions about myself and give a little tour of the utter That's unorganized mess of my basement and your garage yeah and my i didn't realize you had stuff out in the garage yeah i had to expand when i bought some stuff at an auction a while ago <laughs> how's that going over with the rest of the family that lives there <laughs> um they pretty much just let me have the basement <laughs> so yeah and the garage um, it sounds like well just part of the garage the garage is mostly full of everything from my old uh coffee shop so it was pretty much unusable anyway and you know they're all the shelving units from my coffee shop so they're just full of computers now, computer stuff. So you vastly improved it is what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you sell virtual coffee there? No, I'm out of the coffee game now. All right. <laughs> Other than just drinking it. Actually, one thing that surprised me is you mentioned you've kind of got a little side gig now for earning some money, and I didn't realize you were doing that. Do you want to mention that too? Because that's kind of cool. Oh, so yeah, I decided to, um, I've gone into the movie business. I uh, 
do background performing for uh, TV and movies now. We're just the guy that sits in the background of a scene eating spaghetti while the main characters are front and center talking. So, now, are you allowed to talk about any of the projects that you've actually have done this with? Or, um, I don't know. I don't mention them just because I don't want to get in any trouble. But I have done not child friendly, is it? It, well, no, <laughs> child friendly. I've done some. Um, I'm some imagining Disney. NDAs and stuff would be the big thing. <laughs> I've done some stuff for some Disney shows and some. Uh, the, basically, I'll I'll mention some of them as they get released. I just don't mention them before they're actually released. So, okay. Well, what's so how like long have you been doing this? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Rick. Just a few months. I was just wondering, what's it like chewing on five-hour-old prop spaghetti? Uh, you don't actually put any of that in your mouth. <laughs> yeah i'd be weighing 500 pounds but you know take 42 it's an interesting thing if you watch the people in the background often they're just sitting there that you'll twirl the food around you'll bring it up your mouth and then start pretending to talk to the other person and set it down and kind of like your teenage daughter yeah so is it actually still real spaghetti or is it prop spaghetti it's some weird plastic um i just use the spaghetti thing as an example like uh, I actually don't think I've ever had a, one where I've actually got spaghetti in front of me. <laughs> I like that Pac-Man uh, arcade thing. Yeah, that's my uh, one-up arcade. It's got a bunch of Pac-Man. Huh. Pac-Man, Dig Dug, um, Mappy, a couple other different Pac-Mans, Galaga, Galaxian. I got a comment from Texas Foosballer, one of the guys that frequents the Amigos quite often. He says, hello, everyone. Nice collection. So he saw some of your stuff <laughs> in the garage, I guess. I haven't gotten to the garage yet. Yeah, and Foos is also part of the TSI group as well. That's the team speaker. There's really. the garage. Oops, I don't want to close captioning. So it means Ken is a professional extra. Yep. We prefer to be called background performers. Background. <laughs> so have any of the ones you've been on been released yet, or you still pretty well can't talk about any of them at this point? Uh, no, I don't think anything I've been on has been released yet. So, Can, can you specify whether it's movie or TV related or both? Um, It's been all TV so far. Is it Netflix stuff? Uh, Disney, Disney um, and other like just small commercial projects. And Are you going to be on a Tubi commercial? No, probably not. <laughs> I guess if you if you need any extra help, let us know. Although the big thing, I guess, now that they just announced like yesterday is that that uh, new TV show, The Last of Us, is moving to Vancouver. So well, maybe I'll get to be a zombie later. next year. I can be a zombie. <laughs> That's pretty well what you look like after the news is done anyway. So <laughs> Tell them about David. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, they make another horror picture, are they? <laughs> David comes with his own... Um, Makeup. <laughs> now, so, yeah, next. All, those, all those games you're uh, seeing on the screen right now, I bought all of those in one shot from an auction. I think I paid twenty dollars for all of those. Wow, that was a good deal. Yeah, here you're going to make me hungry. These are some homemade cupcakes. And Brian Weasler is kicking himself for missing out. <laughs> <laughs> next you have to travel have all the way to Vancouver to get them, though. Next week, mm-hmm. I'll have a large Ooh. one on that desk. Look look at the Apple keyboard in the background on the left behind those uh, the food. You mean with yep. the uh, Mac Mini right under it? 
Mm-hmm. That's one that has like 20 function keys and it's a USB hub too, right? Yeah. yeah. I got one yeah, of those. I have one of those too. I hate the uh, new Mac keyboards. So yes. I have the old ones that I just directly plug in. Bill Noble's got my old one right now. I need to get it back. <laughs> I've got like four of those because they came up at an auction one time. <laughs> the new ones are the chiclet keys, aren't they? Oh, they're just those little thin... Yeah, they're thin. Ken, uh, you need to show us your um, closet where you have all these different uh, shirts. Shirts, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Hawaiian closet. I tried it, but the camera exploded. Hey, I, I, I wanted like to, that. to show this because I wanted Ken to talk about some of the stuff in his collection. Um, but I also wanted to congratulate him on hitting 1K subscribers. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Nice. Definitely congratulations. Mm. I don't think I've even broken 10. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't broken 50 yet, I don't think. Mine's been up for 15, 20 years, so you're doing better than me. <laughs> oh, before it's I get on this one, I wanted to mention a couple of corrections from last week, which I forgot because uh, they're not a tab. Um, so the first correction was uh, one last week we talked about a mini 6809, 609 board with serial ports and a PIA. That was that little tiny square card. That was Torsten Cito who posted about that on Facebook. He posts on Facebook under his wife's account. So I, because I don't cover him that often, I keep forgetting that. So I wanted to apologize and, and correct that, that that was actually him. Um, the second correction, Mike Miller let me know, and this was the post that I mentioned on the show about the history of the Dragon Dream Assembler and its development. And he mentioned that, uh, and I think this one I confused the names when I was writing it down. Um, but basically, the assembler was actually written by Mike Carey. Mike Miller is just the guy that cross-posted it between the Dragon and the Coke groups. So it's actually Mike Carey that wrote Dream and has the explanation of how the whole thing came together and how he kept using the 6809 right in the 90s for ham radio and stuff. So my apologies to both Mike Carey and Mike Miller for the confusion there. Anyway, on after that... Uh, episode 94 of the Coca Crew was just released yesterday. Uh, a few of the features mentioned in it, besides the regular features of you know news and stuff. Uh, Neil did a review of Space Marauder, which is by fellow Aussie to Nick Craig Stewart, and probably his main competition in the early days, because they both wrote some really excellent him. games. What was that, Nick? I didn't know about him back then, so... Well, you must have seen his stuff in Tandy. I saw his stuff, but uh, yeah, it wasn't really a competition as such. Oh, okay. I know he so what did he say? Oh, good. What what does he say about the the game in the review? He quite liked it. And then that is, I think, Craig's best game, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Lots of stuff moving the screen. Like it's a very busy screen with lasers all over the place and explosion particle effects and all kinds of things. Um, basically two levels to it. Um and it was the second one that he won a programming contest, I think it was. Um, Neil yeah. mentioned during that. Pursuit was the first one. Pursuit's a bit more uh, that game doesn't really enamor me as much with Space Marauders pretty good. Actually quite impressive for the, the time period it came out because I think it came out in 87 or 88. So it was fairly fairly early on. And yeah. sold by Tandy as well, I think along like your Donut Dilemma was at the time. So the other one was a discussion. And they titled it as Sharing Time at Cocoa Fest. And when I read that I had no idea what the hell they were talking about. Um, but basically, and it's something I actually agree with. Um, they're talking about uh, some people come to the fests and they want to get stuff not just explained to them, but done for them. 
and I've had this uh, myself, you know, sometimes with Nitrous Nine stuff, um, they'll go up to somebody that's an exhibitor or somebody selling stuff and they want to kind of like take their time. Like, I don't want to bother figuring out how to make a boot disc or I don't want to figure out how to install this or whatever. <laughs> Can you do it for me? Which, I mean, we're, we, most of us vendors and stuff are trying to be friendly. We would like to help you out. But I mean, when you're at a show, you're, you want to see the rest of the show yourself. You've got, you know, a lot of people coming out asking questions like this. And if you started doing that, you'd never get anything done. You wouldn't be able to see the rest of the show because you'd be busy doing this type of thing. So basically their emphasis was the fact that, you know, maybe the show isn't the best place to get it done. Like maybe ask, you know, could I get some help later on that? And then you can do it through email or maybe through Discord or or whatever else. And I think that's a good point because I've, I've had times where I've gone to the show, especially when Nitrogen 9 was a commercial product. And back then it wasn't as easy to install as it is now. And, you know, I'd get people that would do, you know, they read the manual if they even did that and just say, yeah, I need it installed with this custom hardware here. Can you do that for me? And that, that's going to take me a good, you know, 10, 15 minutes, possibly longer if I don't have the drivers for whatever particular hardware they had. And I did try to do that the first couple of times. And then you find out you just blew half a day. You haven't been visiting with any other customers. You haven't talked to anybody else at the show. And it, it gets to be a bit overwhelming and you kind of feel a little bit frustrated by it. So it's 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 actually pretty good. It's kind of an etiquette piece, I guess, on, you know, it's okay to ask. And sometimes if it's a very quick thing, yeah, you just go ahead and do it as part of customer support. But in other cases, just be polite and just, you know, tell the person, you know, I don't really have time to do it at the show. But get in contact with you later, and uh, we'll we'll see what we can do type thing. So not to reject them outright, but to you know basically the, at the show may not be the best time to do it. So I thought that was actually pretty good advice. So I, I wanted to mention that. And for you other vendors out there, have you guys ever had that problem too, where you're you get somebody that you know, wants so much help with so many things that basically you're like half your day's gone? Not at Cocoa Fest, BCF though. Oh, okay. Is that on the Apple II side of things? No, actually, it was the Commodore thing. Oh. I see Ken's mentioned at the bottom down there. Yeah, they were covering his series of uh, if you just picked up a Cocoa, a real one, for the first time or the first time in years and years, you know, what whatever you got, what can you do with the type thing? How do you get it set up? Yeah, the vendors I know of that would probably that would still be overwhelmed now would be um, people like, um, you know, when Richard Boys on Tech was doing, you know, the hardware rework to fix Cocos or upgrade them for the 6309s or uh, Cloud9, Mark there, um, you know, and I don't know, is uh, Frank coming to Coco Fest this year? He's his keynote speaker, sure, sure as hell. Hope so. Okay. <laughs> so, so if 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 he, you know, if he even does it, does anything hardware repair, or yeah, he actually upgrades. he just responded to this in chat, so I can read you the answer afterwards. But go ahead. So people like that that spend their whole entire time, you know, just working on that stuff. That's I could see how that could sometimes be overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, Mikey uh, in the chat says, yes, he's had that too. And he says, uh, drive wire help. And that, you know, that can be a bit complicated setup, especially if we're not that familiar with drive wire. Anyway, how to set up the server, how to get the cocoa up to it. Well, how do you install the drivers to get that to go? How do you switch okay. SDC DOS to use drive wire, et cetera? And then Frank says, yeah, that's what we normally do. We can do quick things like CPU upgrades, but that's it. 
people want us to diagnose their machines at shows, but we always tell them to come contact us later. Because you well, don't know can, how deep of a dive you're going to have to go, right? Because that can be a rabbit hole. And yeah. even our guy Sloopy, he he spent his whole cocoa show installing stuff, and I still have this that he didn't get installed in time. Yeah, and that actually rubs people the wrong year, way. Coming to chase him. <laughs> yeah, I guess the other thing is too is that uh, the vendors themselves have to make sure they don't overcommit. And I think that that happened to him. I think that one one year in particular, he was just you know he's constantly on the go doing stuff, and he just ran out of time. Always. And some people were pretty upset. And I guess because you were promised, yeah, this will be ready by Sunday, and it's not. In fact, it didn't get done at all. Then, yeah, I, I thought I'd be a bit upset too. I think, but just don't bite off more than you can chew. I guess. Last time I went and to, then, and don't be angry if they have to say no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, be be courteous and polite about it, and you know, just ship the computer or leave it with them to ship back to you. Or I've oh, done yeah, that before, that was, vendors. That was a whole different deal. What was that, Rick? Uh, nothing. That was a whole different deal. I didn't to go there okay sorry ron you were saying something too or the last coco fest i went to i brought two multi-packs and um cloud nine up, updated both of them you know during or around the show so when yeah we well like frank said that. if it's a fairly quick upgrade for them mm-hmm. then yeah they'll do it at the show but if it's something like my machine's broke i don't know what's wrong with it it kind of screen comes up with that signs I mean, you might get lucky and it can take you 15 minutes. Oh, it's the one chip that's gone, but it could be a broken trace. It could be all kinds of things. So they could literally blow an entire day figuring out one computer. Frank says, then, I ain't bringing my scope. <laughs> what's that? Frank says, I ain't bringing my scope. <laughs> yeah, I'm not looking at my scope with me. That's for sure. <laughs> that's a good move. Yeah, and he also just added, those that tend to be rude or snotty about our response, we tell them to go somewhere else. And that's that's uh, that's true. You know, what they, they, what they should do is have, you know, five or six color, color computer twos and threes. Then when you come in and say, this doesn't work, can you fix it for me? And then you reach under and you say, here, here's the other machine. It'll be, you know, $140. And you've got a machine that works. I'll fix your old one later. Yeah, if you outdo yeah. sell it, but the thing is, Coco threes in particular are getting to be rare. <laughs> and I'm honestly, would you do it for 140 when you could sell it on eBay for 500 in a day? Right. Until we get these replacement boards fully up and going with replacement gimmies, etc. I, I I don't know if that would quite work yet. Unfortunately, it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah the replacement boards is what I'm waiting on. Like Pedro's Coco two and Coco three boards that's going to be handy because i'd like to do a uh like uh the 8-bit guy i'd like to make a ziff coco 3 where every one of the 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 main component chips is in a ziff socket so you can just pop one out and pop another one in and test it as long as rick's alive we have a solution for keyboards (laughs) other things how you feeling rick (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, there's there's actually two options because Ed Snyder also has his. That's oh, okay. a machine over yeah, here too. Yeah. So. But that's a complete replacement keyboard. Rick is actually upgrading the existing ones. And there's a time and place for both of those. <laughs> Next up, we have uh, Lacoco Strangiato, as he calls himself on YouTube. That's uh, Robert Emery, I believe, is his real name, and he goes by. Coconut Bob, I think, on Discord. Or and he's coming to Bob. his... Uh, what was that? 
or Bacon Fire Bob. Oh, I didn't hear that. What, bacon what's Bacon Fire, Fire Bob? Yeah. Uh, it's a side story. He had a he had an accident while doing I think a tailgating party. Oh, because <laughs> I've done bacon fires. I've actually found that the light bulbs over the stove can melt. Imagine it in the back of your truck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like soldering to me. Um. Anyway, he he printed this video here. Um. And this is going to be his very first fest he's ever been to, and he's actually going to be bringing this machine down with these LEDs installed. Um, it's only a two and a half minute video. So I think I'll just play the whole thing. It's kind of a sneak preview what he's going to have showing off the fest. And I think it's a good idea. I even responded to the comments in here because some people are going, you know, it's kind of nice having LEDs. What do you do with them? And I think Frank Swigert, the publisher of the world is six, eight micros back in the day. He actually said, you know, he'd like to see some practical use. So obvious first one would be like as a power LED because the Cocoa doesn't have one. So you can tell if it's actually, you know, plugged in already and, and turned on or whatever. And I had a couple of from the TC9 days that we used the PC AT keyboard, and like it has three lights: scroll lock, num lock, and caps lock. And Bill and I wrote when we did the version two drivers, we put the caps lock. Of course, meant caps lock was on. Num lock meant num lock was on. That doesn't apply to the Coco. But we also had another. We use a scroll lock to indicate the keyboard mouse is on or off under OS nine. And if you hit clear to go through your windows, it'll actually turn on and off as per window, so you can tell which windows have it on and which windows have it off. And that actually proved to be quite helpful because some of your arrow keys and stuff don't work properly on a text screen if the keyboard mouse is accidentally turned on or vice versa. So I think, and then because we already did that, and the drivers already know pretty well how to do that. It'd be pretty easy to implement that. We just need a way to control the lights. So I'll be talking with them at the show here, but I would love to do that as an upgrade. I was planning on doing that with boys and techs because they had some LED programmable lights on his, uh, was it on the two meg board that he had on the boomerang? The DAT board has the, DAT the board? LED on it. And yeah. that was, um, God, I can't remember offhand. I've got somewhere some basic code for for demoing that feature, but that was something that would um that was a default option that if you uh put the Coco 3 into high speed mode, the color of the LED would change. So you Thanks, knew yeah. when you was in in high speed or low speed. And that See, for next time that doesn't apply, we're always in high speed, man. Paul Barton did that too. Paul yeah. Barton loved LEDs. <laughs> my my problems with the Boysen Tech one is it only had one LED. So if I want to do multiple functions, like say caps lock and uh, keyboard mouse, for example, I'd have to do it by colors because I know his was a programmable color one. But then you have to memorize like what colors what because it's all the same light. And the other two is that the light didn't mount outside of the case; it was in the inside, and I hated to have to peer over to look, you know, into the who has the case cases. <laughs> Screws if, I right, if I remember right, I think the, there was a jumper on the board that went to the LEDs as well, and you could piggyback that and put it outside. But yeah, I don't. Well, the thing is, with Bob's, as you'll soon see in this video here, you can mount this without having to touch the case at all. These perfectly fit in the little vent slots, so you don't have to do any cutting, soldering, drilling, nothing. So this is a better solution for me. Plus, it brings the lights out to where you can see them without having to peer into the case to see what what they are. So I'll play the video. It's kind of a promo for both the fest and for meeting Bob because I've never met him in real life before either. Since he hasn't made it to a fest before, um, but it's a pretty cool idea. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the channel. I'm Coconut Bob, and this is just a quick update to remind everyone that Cocoa Fest is coming up fast. We got about two or three weeks left, and. Uh, those of you who saw my Coco 3P in-depth video, I'll throw a link to it up somewhere. Those of you who saw that video know that I do like my power LEDs, and it always bothered me that 
color computers didn't come with one. So this is going to be what I'm doing at Coco Fest. I will be bringing some three millimeter square LEDs that sit right in these little square holes. You can go on this side too, but these are the ones that I chose because it looks neat. And, yeah, uh, it does. Let's just see. Yeah, what it almost looks like they were designed that right way. Here. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. It is what those holes are for. It. <laughs> Only 30 Red, years later, orange, we finally figured it yellow, out. Green, blue, green, and blue. Sorry, they didn't have purple or I would have loaded up. Just to show you, these are very simply run off the 5 volts right down here, close to the supply. And this can be unplugged easily. I'm not going to be putting six power lights in every computer. This is just for demonstration purposes. And uh, these are running 1K resistors. Six? They're actually rated for... I uh, you 12. There's more holes on the other side of the case, like isn't there? Yeah. 100 ohms, approximately. But they were just entirely too bright. So I went with a 1K because that's pretty reasonable. Looks good to the eye. You can also use an LED for a turbo light and one for a floppy indicator or, you know, whatever you wanted to use them for. <laughs> Doesn't just have to be Oh, power, he said floppy. recommended uh, usage. Anyway, just showing you guys what I've got and uh, looking forward yeah, that to is the good. Cocoa Fest. This will be my very first Cocoa Fest ever, and I'm looking forward to meeting some uh friendly faces and shaking some hands and talking cocoa. So I hope to see you there. Cheers. Oh, cocoa for Cocoa Fest. <laughs> you, you know, uh, uh, what would be interesting is that there's a circuit for the turbo on the Cocoa 3 that also works on the Cocoa 1 and 2, but it'd be nice if there was an updated one that can handle the third speed that when you're using a Gimme X. So that way you could know when you're in normal yep. Coco 3 turbo and then the the extreme turbo of the Gimme X. Turbo yeah. <laughs> he used a real bright one for that last one. I can't remember if there's something like that already designed into it. I was trying to look here quickly, but I'll ask Ed. Oh, it's a good idea. And if, if they can get the lights of the programmable, maybe have a memory address where you can just, you know, one bit per light or something like that. I would definitely put it in for some of the stuff in Nitrous 9 because that was really handy to have on the TC9. At first, I thought of uh, it was like a, a breakout board for, um, you know, serial communications. Or no, it would be parallel, wouldn't it? Maybe parallel. Yeah, but you could use it for a lot of things. Like he's mentioning, like, uh, you know, floppy drive access later. SDC light, power light, uh, some of the stuff I mentioned for Nitrous 9 for caps lock and uh, keyboard mouse. Or, you know, there's, there's a ton of things you can just, you know, let your imagination run wild. The power one, you'd obviously just tap right off the power type thing. You wouldn't need to do any programming things for it. But if you can make something programmable, I would love to be able to control some of that from, you can even use it in games like Red Alert and Star Trek. You know, the red light comes on. Green, it's, it's you know, condition clear type thing. You could do all kinds of things. Christmas lights. Yeah, yeah. Hey, anyway, looking Jason, forward to meeting you at the show, Bob. Jason, He's in you're the chat making too. me feel bad, Jason. 
Why? Because you're driving a Dodge Journey. I have one and I can't drive it. <laughs> it's junk. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've, been, I've been there too, but you know, uh, uh, they just figured out that you have to take the wheel off to replace the battery. Yeah, that uh, happens. Actually, Ron, since you brought it up here, uh, for people that uh, aren't on your Facebook group, do uh, you want to explain what happened to you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> a Sunday <laughs> night between 6 p.m. and Monday morning, 7, 6 a.m., they took my uh, Dodge Journey out of my driveway. They wanted to borrow your car. Yeah, and um, my wife got, got up about 6 and left and went, and she uh, volunteers at a horse ranch and came back at 9, and that's when we saw it was gone. So we called the police, and it must have been on the line with them for I don't know how long. First I called 911, and then they say, no, no, call this number. It's, you know, it's non-emergency. So it didn't work, so I went right downtown to the police and filed a re report and called my uh, insurance company. And so uh, three days later, uh, we got a call at like 6, 10 p.m., and they said, um, we found your van. It's in Mesa, which is about 30 miles from where we live. And they said, it's been there a couple of days. So could you come? You know, and so we went there. And um, it wouldn't start because they had a dash all torn up. And the um, switch where you turn on the car was pulled out. And there was wires hanging down. And um, they also found two bullets in the car, two live rounds, nine millimeter, and one spent round. So while we were waiting for the car, the police were saying that uh, they're going to run prints on the car if you could just wait. And they then they said uh, we might have a, a a truck come with uh you know I don't know they must have uh, evidence scanning ability or something whatever and then they, then crime they said, processing yeah and then they said they weren't coming because there wasn't any drive-bys by at the time that the the uh, van was missing. So uh, we we uh, had the truck towed back, and uh, guy at the in the Fountain Hills, uh, you know, the repair shop said that they uh, popped a fuse when they were playing around with the wires, and that that's why the, the vehicle didn't move anymore. So they just pushed it off the road. When we, when we were there waiting for the for the truck, the um, this lady comes out of her house, and she goes. Yeah, and she's got a, a wine glass in her hand. She goes, yeah, uh, we noticed this truck was here a couple of days, you know. And I said, did you notice on the back it says, uh, you know, you know, Tandy Computer stuff? And right above that it says uh, 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 DelvoObservatory.com. Did you think of looking that up? And she goes, no, I never thought of doing that. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, it just kind of like the popper one in the head, you know. <laughs> Boy, your car had quite an adventure. Quite, yeah, in both ways. Now, is oh, is it functional now, or is it still not well, working? Um, the guy at the uh, auto place, uh, he said he was able to hook the wires up. He he called Chrysler and got an idea of where where the wires go, and he got it powered up enough to uh, roll the windows up because three windows were down. And he was able to lock the car because it's sitting outside right now, waiting for the um, State Farm guys to come and appraise what's wrong with it. Oh, okay. So still a work in progress. Yeah. So now, and they called and said they won't be there till Wednesday. So 
I got a, I got a Jeep compass that I'm driving around in, you know, for rental. So how embarrassing. Yeah. It's tough. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm glad they found it at least. But. Yeah. Uh, you know, last right. time I had this, I had a car stolen was 1978. I had a 68 Dodge charger in my, in the street and my wife comes out to go to work and she says, your, uh, your car, where's your, where did you park your car? <laughs> it's out front. Just, no, it ain't. <laughs> we go out there. It's nowhere to be found. So, uh, three days after that happened, I was, uh, lettering in a large arena, sports arena. There was signs up in the top, you know, um, that I worked on. And a guy that runs the Zamboni in the place, he comes up to see me and he goes, you, you own a Dodge Charger, don't you? And I go, yeah. And I, he says, you, you'll, you're not going to believe this, but uh, in my my mother's garage, somebody was messing around with a car. She flashed the lights, called the police, and they uh, came out. And it was a Charger in the garage. Then they started taking it apart. And he says, it's over at uh, police uh, impound. He says, uh, why don't you go see if it's yours? I said, okay, thanks. You know, so I put my stuff away, went over there. Sure enough, that's my car. And it's in the impound. And the police says, you can have it. Um, the doors and the hood and the trunk lid were inside the car. They had the windows down. Jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the, and the police says, uh, you can't put it back together here. You have to put it back together in the street over there. I said, okay. So we had to take the doors and stuff out. It drove. I drove it into the street, and we brought the stuff over. No bolts to put the doors on with because they were <laughs> probably still in the garage. So we had to go to a junkyard, get bolts, come back. And then I'm putting the car to get together. You know, my brother's helping me. We're holding the door, and we're bolting it on. And people are coming by going, hey, what are you doing to that car there? What are you doing? <laughs> I said, what does it look like? I'm putting my car back together. <laughs> I bought one of these cars as a kit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was really something. Yeah, I was glad to have it back. No. Yeah. This is why I buy a Ford Focus. Nobody ever steals those. Yeah, well, I didn't think, you know, mine's 13 years old and 150,000 miles on it. Who would want it? I, I just can't believe someone would steal a Dodge Journey. But, but they had the to leave it. Start. I, I don't know how they even started it. I'm kind of curious how they started the push button start without the key. Well, here, here's the thing. Here's what I told the police. You know, the car's in my, my, uh, next to the garage. It's off. There's, you know, the windows are up and, and there's no keys in there. It's locked. How, how did they get it? And then when you, when in my particular car, when you back down the driveway, the brakes squeak real loud. You know, they squeak you know, they make noise. We didn't hear anything in my, uh, you know, six-year-old, eight-year-old uh, dog is snoring away. She don't hear nothing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they steal it. So they must have either brought a fat, flatbed up there and loaded it up or, or what. I don't know. The, the windows weren't broken. You know, I, I've seen uh, on, on uh, Facebook where people have taken a um, – you know, a, a bathroom flushing thing, stick it on the window and pull the window down enough to unlock it. Uh, maybe that happened. So, I, I have no so clue. The big crime here is that they left it where it could be found. Yeah, because the, the uh, otherwise you could have got a new one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, at least you have the fastest little Jeep you ever own. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to Coco stuff now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, it, this is a, yeah. a, a Coco story because the truck that was stolen had my other computer is a Tandy color computer three on the on the both sides in the back. Yeah, you figured that would have scared off thieves right off the yeah, bat, right? right this guy's a computer. This guy's guy. a geek. Yeah, we're not taking it. Anyhow, back to the Coco News. So next one here is a video by Louis Bulick. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's a Brazilian uh, owner. I think from his tags, it looks like he probably has a CP400, but he's just starting his very first video related to the Coco, and he's actually tackled the semi-language programming as his first thing. So that's jumping in with both feet in the deep end. <laughs> And he's got it you know, for the people that are on the audio here. It's got the uh, Bill Barden book, Tier Study Color Computer Simulation Programming, on the right. And he's got a, a modern text editor just doing a very quick demo. And it's in Portuguese. So I turned on Google Translate, but what you can do as well. I won't actually play the you know too much of the video, but I'll just show the result of the thing here. Because it basically it's just a little loop, and all it does is it draws all 256 VDG characters on the screen at once. No problems. Dennis. <clears throat> Immediate face. And there you can see it's got all the inverse characters, the regular characters, and then all the graphics characters. So just a very quick, quick little bit there, but uh it's probably one of the ones that a lot of us tried for our first assembly language program if you start on the Coco one and two or even on the Coco three in, in, in Dis Basic. He's missing uh, a row. I think the okay prompt uh ended the up being okay clear, yeah. Yeah. But it, it's cool to see. Um, but somebody's deciding to tackle you know mach- machine language on the Coco as their first project to do. Um, and also the fact that he you know he originally had it on the CP four hundred. He's using an emulator in this case, of course, Xword in particular. But uh, it's cool to see that people are still trying to pick up the assembly language thing because it's it's uh, once you get over the initial humps and getting understanding how the whole thing works, how registers work, how memory locations work, it gets easier. Um, that's an initial hump. I think is the hard part. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, uh, Fred. Now, uh, would you pronounce that Rick Gay? Rick? I'm not sure. My apologies if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. Posted in the Cocoa group on Facebook that he's done a rewrite update of Basic Dignified, which we covered some months ago. And that's a tool to help write basic programs and modern programming editors like Visual Studio and Sublime Text. And he's got a GitHub for the project. Uh, and he's also got a quick video showing in action. So, if you go to the show notes on the Discord here, you can get the link to the Facebook post here itself. And you can also get a link to his GitHub, which actually has some examples, etc. And then the video, it's only a 30-second video, so I thought I'd show it. So basically, he's editing in this modern editor environment, uh, IDE, and then he has it automatically fire up the emulator and run it. And you'll notice he's running a Mac. Mm. <laughs> a grunt. <laughs> Nick. <laughs> I was interested, then it went downhill. <laughs> so he ran a little basic program here that drew some lines, and he's got a circle that you can drag around the screen using the uh, well, the joystick or mouse. So anyway, just a quick little thing, and that works on a variety of, of platforms, not just the Mac. It happens to be what he's using. But um, we've seen a lot of these cross ID type things there for the Coco lately. There's uh, actually... Several templates for Notepad++ for doing like OS9 stuff, for doing disk basic stuff, for doing 6 and 9 assembly language, et cetera. That's all color-coded by instruction type, et cetera. So 
lot of cool what stuff actually happening. is the plus plus mean i think it's probably because it was originally intended to be like a c plus plus editor that was kind of a play on it or, or maybe it was a notepad plus and a notepad regular before that i'm not sure well notepad was microsoft and the notepad plus was like an enhanced version written by somebody else and then plus plus is what oh probably enhancements to that too i'd imagine because I know Notepad Plus Plus gets like updates almost every friggin' week. <laughs> Notice, he picked up visual... Notice he picked up Visual Studio, which is the thing I use. So I'll have to go look at this. Yeah, it looks like it's pretty good for that kind of thing. And you can set it up script it wise so that you can have it fire up the emulator with the code. You just edit it as a disk image and just go right into running it, trying it out. I think it's similar to what Rick Adams does, though he does it through the you know the VI style editors, et cetera, rather than a, a full ID. It's just not the same without that nuclear green in the background. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can use the dark mode Mac he was using then, Nick. <laughs> uh, next up, and now this one covers both the Dragon and the Cocoa. I threw it in the Cocoa section because it is cross between both platforms. But John Whitworth of Dragon Plus Electronics has posted some updates and screenshots showing his mini Dragon RGB board, which, because of its small physical size, should actually fit into a Cocoa as well. And uh, you can see a screenshot here. It's coming out super crisp and clean. Um, and here's an actual zoom up of the adapter to do it. So it's actually very small. It's almost like a little satellite socket almost for the uh, VDG chip itself. And basically, it taps off and gives you RGB signals so you can hook it up to a, a more modern display. Well, what what does that mean, RGB? Is that like it'll run on a um, CM8? RGB? I'm sure you could probably adapt it if it's analog. I'm not positive yeah, exactly. So it's VGA, in other words. Yeah. Per, well, VGA is digital. VGA doesn't have analog. That's that's multiple pins to handle your voltage outputs. Um, you're mistaken, Curtis. Well, VGA is RGB. No, it is RGB, but it's digital RGB, not analog no. RGB. No, that's analog. That's DVI. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. DVI is digital. VGA is analog. Remember okay. before that, that CGA and uh, MGA and EGA and probably PGA were all digital, not analog. VGA was the first analog for the PCs. Ah, okay. So I'm getting the generations so you, mixed up. So do you think this is similar to what uh, Coco VGA does? No. This is just converting the 6847 signals to an RGB. Which is... Yeah, whereas the Coco VGA is actually letting you redefinable character sets, 64 column mode, extra graphics modes, and a whole bunch of extra stuff that this doesn't yeah. do at all. I imagine okay. this one is just mostly just passives. It's just that when you say RGB, it, it's... Well, I think left. there's a chip on the bottom. It's like yes. an or orphan. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Like a splitter. Well, this, this breakout goes to a little board he's got that actually makes the RGB signals that will let you make... Ah, uh, uh, oh, okay. That's videos. where it's happening. So, so that's what we're not seeing. Yeah. Oh, okay, is that what this picture is uh, about? There it is. Yeah, there's uh, the, there's yeah, the magic. That's it. Well, that's where it, the magic's happening, yeah. So it is more like a Coco VGA. Well, and then it's fitting well, out more, nah. of a, more of a... Well, not... Coco VGA... VGA is a whole different thing. This is feeding out a VGA-like signal, I'm sure, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Coco VGA, which is 
maybe also feeding out of VGAs that like signal, but they're not related. But so, but the Coco VGA that he's talking about is is like a product name. Uh, that's the name right. of the the project. It does more than just video. It does okay you know, character definitions. So, well said. Yeah, it's kind of like the Coco DV from um, yeah Alan because he also has like you know other things added to it too. This is cool. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Next up, Robert Moore put this interesting one. He said he got some new shelving units recently and decided to put some real valuables on it. Um, <laughs> greatest caption ever. So he's got this four-shelf unit. He's got a Coco 1 on the bottom. Looks like a later one because of the centered Radio Shack logo. Coco 2 with melted keyboard, a Coco 3, and then a Coco Pie. Or Coco 3.14, she calls it, which I thought is a more clever name. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I thought was, that was kind of cool. Nice, nice display case, actually, for Coco's. Yeah. Are they all plugged into one monitor? Well, if it's switcher, you probably could, yeah. Next up, we have an update from Kieran. So we mentioned last week that Kieran's working on some experimental uh, bits on a side branch of XROAR to do better composite video processing, where he's adding in a whole bunch of controls for like brightness and contrast and color adjustments and all kinds of things. And this is a deep dive into what he's doing on that experimental branch of XROR. And he starts mentioning, like, you know, all the different things that you can set and change and the differences between NTSC, PALAM, et cetera. This is going way above my pay grade. I can't even get VGA straight, so you can imagine how bad I'll be at this. <laughs> um, and then he's got some sample pictures. Now, he's, he's not, from what I've seen of his comments on it on Discord, he's not quite happy with it yet. He's still doing some improvements to it, but it's definitely getting there. And um, eventually he wants us to be able to handle like NTSC colors perfectly fine, plus the PAL stuff. I'm assuming the PAL artifacting, which is vertically based. So I know it's available as a download if you guys want to try it, give them some feedback. Uh, next up, uh, Barry Nelson has released a side branch version of MAME himself here for version 2.0.252 i believe 0.253 is the current one and this has a couple of changes that he kind of customized uh, one is to use a floppy controller in any multi-pack slot instead of having to be slot four i believe it's the current limit and he's also allowing the floppy controller to use a custom rgb dos rom uh currently just the windows binary is set up right now because his mac died apparently um but I'm I'm thinking like the custom RGB DOS ROM. I think that's because doesn't MAME do some sort of a checksum or seriously check on a ROM and it won't let you run it if it's not officially yes, approved one. That's an annoying feature. Okay, so he's basically made a version that disables that, so it will be less annoying, right? David, I guess I haven't used his stuff, so I don't know. Okay, because that was something that's always annoyed me too, especially when you. Download a new version of MAME. The ROM hasn't changed since 1980, and it would still report a problem. I don't know how the hell that worked, but oh, just just wait until you see what I just saw committed to the the next MAME stuff related to the Coco floppy controller. There's like a whole bunch of different ROM ROMs that can be loaded into it. So who knows? You mean like HBOS, RGB DOS, ADOS three, ADOS three extended, that kind of thing. Yes, I saw a whole listing for ADOS, 
ADOS-40, ADOS-80. There's all kinds of different labels for rums. And I'm like, uh, all righty then. <laughs> so for those of you who are interested in using a customized one that don't have to try to get around that stupid CRC check, uh, this definitely has that. And if you want your floppy controller in a slot other than four, you can get that as well. Um, it's only one point release off the current release, I believe. So it's pretty well up to date everywhere else. And then speaking of um, the Cocoa Pie project, Ron Klein has posted a couple of updates that uh, you can automatically get if you have the Cocoa Pie, which runs on a Pi 3, Pi 4, Pi 400. Uh, the new MAME 2.253 is uh, one. Now, that does not include the floppy ROM changes you're talking about, David, right? That's going to be an upcoming one. Um, I'm going to assume it will be in the next version because, like I said, I just saw it posted like four o'clock in the morning when I got home, at least for me. And I updated MAME and it's like, oh, what is this? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because he mentions here in his little comment on the toke point, point 0.253 package available for the Cocoa Pie. He says, I did not see any updates related specifically to our Cocoa or Cousins. But there are many updates to MAME itself. Now, what you just described is quite a few updates for the Coco. So I'm assuming this is not quite there yet. And then he's got the uh, new work in progress version of XFOR that we just talked about from Karen with the, um, you know, adjusting the coloring, color filters and stuff like that to get the best display. Now, he mentions here a couple other things that's also in this new version of XFOR that's not involving the composite video fixing up. Um, he adds uh, initial support for middle button paste. For a three-button mouse, I would guess. Um, the brightness, saturation, contrast we talked about already. Uh, new tape control and drive control windows in the Windows UI. An experimental snapshot replacing CVBS emulation for testing feedback only. So Karen's looking, obviously, for some uh, input on, on those features there. So uh, Karen's very active in our Discord. is usually in our chat as well. So if any of you are interested in doing that and actually helping him out with some of the debugging and, and figuring out what's working, what's not, uh, please contact him. He's known as Sixy, S-I-X-X-I-E in our Discord. Uh, next up, Henry Reitfeld, who will be at the fest as well this year, did a crossing the streams type of thing with retro computer video. So you guys may have heard of the Naboo, uh, which was a uh, network computer based out of Ottawa, Canada in 283 somewhere around there um that didn't really get sold anywhere else it's kind of like the play-doh was uh, more in the chicago area that uh, mark was mentioning earlier and what he's done here is he's actually hooked up his fd502 which is the double-sided 360k five and a quarter inch floppy drive system that tandy sold to his naboo so he can install and load pc or cpm version 3 which he then logged into back from his Coco 3. So he's using Tandy and Naboo back and forth like crazy. That's all, that's just under a minute, so I'll just play the whole thing. He's usually pretty quiet, so I'm going to crank the volume up a bit here. This is just a quick video showing you guys my Naboo PC with Tandy Coco FD502 disk drive connected to it. And I'm running CPM 3.0. And I'm running it out to my Tandy Color Computer 3 and using my Coco 3 as a terminal.
So that's just my NABU PC using a Tandy color computer disk drive to load CPM and my Tandy color computer three being used as a CPM terminal. That's definitely crossing streams between a couple of retro platforms. <laughs> it looks like his uh, Coco 3 is actually, you know, it's all up an LED monitor, but it does look like he's uh, running it in composite mode due to all the artifact coloring of the characters and stuff here. Not quite sure if he just doesn't have something to convert it to, you know, decent quality RGB, but it would definitely be, look a lot better with a full RGB style link up. I don't know if he's bringing this system down to the fest. I would love to see the Naboo in person. I've, I've seen Taylor and Amy cover it and Aaron um, cover it and a few other people cover it, but uh, I've never seen one in real life. So that'd be cool to see. Next up, Jay's Vintage Junk. Released a video on YouTube showing how he modified his Coco 2. Now his Coco 2 is the UK PAL version to composite video output without drilling any holes in the case to mount the RCA connectors. This is an over an hour long video, so I'm obviously not going to play it. but. Uh, as he mentioned, most of the composite upgrades that are listed for the Coco 2 are based on the NTSC system. Um, now, I was going to ask you, Nick, I know we had kits and, and we had the educational versions of the Coco 2 here in North America that schools and stuff were buying that it did have the composite built right in right from Tandy. Um, did you guys have such a thing on the PAL ones? No, 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 nothing like that. Okay. So basically it goes through and it's kind of a, you know, a, you know, try by trying type thing so he does a few things and some things don't quite work the way he's expected etc and at the very beginning of the video here you can see he's got a shot of on the actual tv just with a rigor rf out but he basically goes through and he figures it all out and then eventually gets up and running and then his, his crt died in the middle of it so he had to switch over to the different monitors so you can't really compare apples to apples but it looks yeah, nice and look clean it's uh, definitely cleaner than the rf signal right. nice fairly decent fairly clear um image there so if you want to learn how to do that upgrade, he actually kind of goes through step-by-step step explaining how to how to do it. If you want to upgrade your Coco 2 PAL version, I assume this would work the same between the Aussie and the UK version. I don't think there's any difference yeah, between the PALs there. Yeah. I know there's PAL-M and a few things in some other countries that is a little bit different. I don't know if it would affect this or not, though. Is it a, a little board he puts in, or how... um, does he I show the board? Or? This is a hardware. It just went over my head anyway, so. You're on fire. Oh, wow. It goes right into the... Uh... And Nick, you'll have to watch the hour-long video to find out. That's yeah. yeah Get back like to it. us on that ne next week, Nick, after you watch yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool because, I mean, the Coco 2 PAL version, aside from Australia, wasn't that popular in the UK because they were so overpriced compared to the Dragon, which had a better keyboard. That I don't think it really sold all that well. So, kind of nice to see that it getting a bit of love. Next up, we have a Yag Yagi boat on YouTube. I have no idea what that stands for. Uh, so he released a video of him test driving his Coco 2 that he just picked up. Uh, the sound didn't doesn't seem to be working on it, unfortunately, because uh, he goes through a bunch of games and stuff here, and he actually had to load them from cassette from his PC. He doesn't have any sort of media. He doesn't have a drive wire cable. He doesn't have a cassette cable he doesn't or a cassette uh, drive doesn't have an stc doesn't have floppy drives etc so he actually had to run it all across on tape but he goes through and demonstrates a couple of games and his artifact coloring stuff's working he i think asks a question in the video here about you know possibly retrobutting it because you can, as you can see in the picture here 
Uh, it's quite a... yellowed of a case. That's probably one of the worst yellowings I think I've seen. Um, but he, he seems to be enjoying it. He'd never had a cocoa before, and you can see he's got some other retro stuff there on the table. But uh, he quite liked some of the games that he went through and tried here. He tried stuff like Puyan and Lancer and Pegasus the Phantom Riders, Demolition Derby, and a few others. And um, he seems to be pretty impressed with it. So sounds like he's going to continue trying to use it with some other things and try to get some sort of a mass storage uh, solution. So I suggest that Coco STC, of course, in the comments. And our last two bits here are on the MC-10. And this is Robert Seek. So he said, remember pandemic? No, no. The program I wrote in February of 2019, not the not the plague we had here the last few years. Um, he says, here's a high-resolution design of a low-resolution screen if I allow zooming. So basically, these are map screens. And he's kind of like mapping out this game. He's got river systems, tractors, houses, you know, little bits of cactus or something here. And then he did a second post here, too, with some further extension of the maps here, even shrunk down a bit more. I'll zoom it up here so it's a bit easier to see. But he's actually got his daughter, Rhiannon, um, helping along with this, too. So it looks like he's actively getting into this game design again. I'm not sure what the game exactly involves, um, but the graphics actually look pretty decent. This could be some sort of strategy game. It could be an RPG-style game. I'm not quite sure exactly what he's shooting for here. But uh, considering this is all P-Mode 1 graphics, it actually looks pretty good. I mean, these are obviously putting multiple P-1 screens beside each other to do a full-size map, kind of like uh, Erico and uh, Buck Owen slash Steve Rasmussen did for stuff on my webpage, where I've now got full maps of Tut's Tomb, Shock Trooper, and all 10 levels of Dragon Slayer now on my site. And it's kind of the same thing. You take all the screens and you put them together to make a big, big map. So looking forward to the game here it looks it looks pretty good and i'm glad he's actually got his family involved in helping make the uh the graphics for it and that is the end of the news for today wikey wikey yeah but you're already awake nick so no one's really asleep Ah. <laughs> uh. So is there any product updates or acquisitions? I know Brian said he might have been able to get on if it was a certain time, but he knew about the interview, so I, I'm guessing he's not. <laughs> but does anybody else have any product updates or acquisitions? Uh, like, Rick, do you have an update on your network stuff? I know you had some STC problems or something. Oh, well, we're still struggling along with that, but uh, basically I'm... People are buying stuff. People aren't going to the fester buying stuff, so I have to take care of them. And then uh, still have stuff to sell at the fest. So I'm just soldering my little tushy off. <laughs> Here is a burn back pretty far. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jason's saying, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask Jason, are you, are you, have you, you like, you actually put up for pre order this time for the first time? Has that been working well for you? Uh, I got like one pre-order and the pre-orders are, are closed now. Um, so I have time to, but I only got like one. So okay. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm bringing stuff to the show. I've been working a lot to get that done. And, uh, well, we're, we're just a few weeks away now. Yeah. Are you going to have the, the little black boxes yep. with you? Three weeks. There's all kinds of little black boxes. <laughs> Depends on which one you're talking about. For the switcheroo. Yeah, the ones with the Australian names on them. 
that narrowed it down. Yeah. 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 Just a. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Erico in the chat is mentioning. They said the dragon's lair is really impressive. Um, he said you should show it online. Do you guys want to see it? It's all state. See Rasmussen's work. I just put it on my page. But if you guys want to, I can share it. That'll be my project update. I've been updating my website for the yeah, fairly regularly lately. Ooh. Okay, but we're at four and a, four and a quarter hours. So yeah, what's another hour? It's getting to be dinner time. <laughs> Oh, let me go to five and a quarter hours then. That was last week. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, we had an interview. I knew this one was going to go a bit long. So, okay, let me share. I don't need to worry about sound. So, I've been doing little updates as I go through uh, various little things, including a couple rediscovered games that I thought were permanently lost, which is cool. Uh, that's part of where Jeff has kind of spurred me on to do is try to hunt these things down. I've been going through all my discs. I won't bother showing you here, but I just found another pack of about 150 that I'm going to be going through uh, today and tomorrow. Um, but I've actually rediscovered about five games that I didn't know I had or not on the archive. And I've discovered some utility programs and accounting software and all kinds of stuff. that's also not in the archive. So I'm gradually getting those done as well. So uh, if you guys have looked at the archive lately, about the last 20 entries are all mine. So I've been busy. Um, let's go over to Dragon Slayer here. So that's a complete level one, four by four screens. And this is the one that has infamously on the bottom right here. It has TM, Protomic Software, who actually did it. Hey. Anything you see in blue bricks... Uh, those are the dark rooms you need the flashlight to go through. So it actually shows you the map fully. You'll never see that in the actual game. You'll just see the little tunnel you can see from your flashlight. And there's level two. With a bunch of money in the lower left corner, I kind of faintly remember. Level three. Level four. Hope they got the extra five. batteries for those flashlights. Well, you get new ones every time, so... Level six. Kind of reminds me of like the level maps you see like in Nintendo Power back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got editors for some of the games too, like Gauntlet 2, that actually somebody hacked together an editor. You can actually go edit the maps in those if you wanted to. This one is kind of interesting. I've never been this high as level seven, seven here. Uh, but basically the entire thing, except for the first and last room, is all in the dark. <laughs> so it's all like wow. pick up your flashlight here. And figure your way through this whole mess until you get over here. <laughs> Don't call it level seven. Call it screens ninety-seven through one hundred and twelve. <laughs> yeah. There's level eight, Perfect. level nine, and then the final level, level ten, where you've got fire and two money bags and another fire. Then your exit, and I think that's where you slay the dragon. So anyway, but if you want to see the other ones, you can definitely go check out the site. And I'm trying to keep things up to date here. I've got, I think, pretty well 81, 1981 is as much up to date as I can get until I go through these discs if I happen to anything else. But I did manage to fill a bit, a couple bits on my timeline page on my games page that uh, I basically said, now it's long lost, gone. It's on the archive. I don't have it. It's not a new entry in my site. And I've actually had to correct a few of those because I have found them now. So 
hopefully I'll find a few more. I would like to be able to get the, the complete Coco games library and eventually the complete software library where nothing is missing anymore, but I've got dozens listed that I have not been able to find. If you guys have any obscure old stuff there, let me know. That's it for me. Anyway, anybody else have any updates or acquisitions? Well, we were talking about cars earlier. I got a new spark plug. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. Here on on Dodge Journey Talk. After how many miles? Uh, A lot. Oh, and, and a new coil pack. And Ken Waters, how how soon do you expect? How long did it take you to get to the one K subscribers, and how long do you think it'll take you to get to two? Oh, geez, I think I've been at this for about three and a half years, so quite a while to get to a thousand. Hopefully, it won't take me nearly that long to get to two thousand, but. <laughs> hey, it's not a thousand; it's a million base two. And are you going to be shooting any videos from our drive to kind of show as we go? Yeah, I'll try and get some footage for. I promise not to take any dirt roads over wooden bridges like you did when you (laughs) left. Yeah, I'm not doing that again. Yeah, no, no more Google Maps for you. Nope. (laughs) Well, get get pictures of you guys dodging the moose. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we ready for an outro. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I didn't see anybody else put up their hand, so that's all, folks. Push a button, Frank. This concludes another episode of The Coco Nation, the world's leading live interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things The Coco Nation, visit us on the web at thecoconation.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to show at thecoconation.com. The Coco Nation show would not exist without the community and its cast and crew. The Coco Nation theme song, copyright 2022, D. Bruce Moore, mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. The Coco Nation is over. Join us on the Coco Discord server. Coco forever. Okay. Um, that's it then. All right. That's we'll it. Yep. We'll, we'll see you all next weekend. See you at Coco Fest in a couple weeks. Yep. Later, everybody.